Greetings and good afternoon, everyone.
Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, History and True History, History of Nasara. Blessed be everyone. Um, there's a bit of a technical difficulty here today, but we're going to remedy that uh, in divine order, I'm sure. So we're going to start, as always, with our opening meditation, <clears throat> begin with our ascension work here uh, this afternoon. So let's take a deep breath and set the rest of the everyday life aside as we go into our heart center. <clears throat> Going into your heart center, entering into that sacred portal to all that is, we now call forth the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence. Let us affirm as we remember who we truly are. I am the soul. I am the light divine. I am love. I am will. I am fixed design. And the fixed design refers to our divine blueprint. Acknowledging the monad the mighty I am presence, we say, I am the monad. I am the light divine. I am love. I am will. I am fixed design. As we imagine ourselves, see ourselves in our mighty pillar of light, we call forth the violet flame to fill it to surround us, to fill every cell and fiber of our being, to anchor our mighty pillar of light deep into the heart of Mother Gaia, directly to her crystalline heart, as well as to source and to the heart and mind of our Mother Father God. Take a nice deep breath. feeling fully anchored in each direction, fully loved and supported. As we are one with all humanity, we invoke this through the level of the mighty I am presence. So please affirm with me, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And let us feel that connection. Feel yourself connecting heart to heart high heart to high heart with every man, woman, and child as we invite them to join us in their pillars of light 
invoking the violet fire for one and all as we bring forth the energies of forgiveness, mercy, compassion, transmutation, spiritual freedom. See it, sense it, feel it around the planet as well as we connect as well threefold flame to threefold flame as well as to the threefold flame of all that is and the cosmic heart of all that is. We feel our unity with all life and we invoke for one and all all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods, we also welcome at this time for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome as well the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the assistance of the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, all Divine Father Emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light and all ascended master healing teams. We call forth as well our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light. We welcome Lord and Lady Arturus, the Arturians, the Arturian healing teams and healing technologies. We welcome as well Lord and Lady Sirius, the Syrian Archangelic League of the Light and their healing teams, including Dr. Lorfin and his healers. We welcome Lord and Lady Pleiades, the Pleiadian Emissaries of Light and their healing teams. We welcome Lord and Lady Chiron and the Chiron healers. Lord and Lady Andromeda and the Andromedan healing teams. Lord and Lady Venus and the Venusian healing teams. We welcome the assistance of all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven. Asking that Mother, Father, God overlight all that we do and magnify 
magnifying, magnifying this work 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. Within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field, multidimensionally, in divine order for our being. And we call this to easily and effortlessly digest and, and digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody throughout us with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and stability, balance and equilibrium in love and light and laughter. Take a nice breath. We call forth for ourselves and for Gaia and all. So we ask to activate through every meridian of Gaia's auric field, through every ley line, long line. All the all the grids, the unity grid, the love light grid, all of the multiple grids, and through a portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place, or every stargate, city of light. As we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution, along with Gaia as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. As always, we embrace the entire circle of support. Every individual from the very first name that created it, each person, each family member and loved one, each pet, each animal, each situation, each condition, all weather conditions, each and every aspect of, of government and governmental leaders, military leaders, each nation, and every event every that, that has taken place that we've placed in the circle. As we hold this planet and all upon her in our sacred heart, and we call forth to blaze the threefold flame as well as the violet flame, as well as what we're going to be working with, the flame of resurrection, which is a beautiful mother of a mother of pearl energy. See it in through and around you, in through and around the planet and all upon her. <coughs> to boost this activity, we call forth our collective cup of consciousness, to which we add all that is going on on the planet, everything that we've added through that, 
everything that uh, is going on that's taken place in the month of March, still our, our spring equinox energies, our upcoming Easter energies, even the the energies for tomorrow's Grammys and this weekend's NCAA tournament, all of the excitement, all of the energy, all of the attention. We want to use people's attention on these events in our collective cup of consciousness to be used for the transformation of the planet, to be used for the raising of consciousness, to be used for the uplifting and the anchoring of heaven on earth. We call that forth in divine order now. So today we're going to be working with both the violet flame as we begin our prayer work. We are going to be working with the mother of pearl resurrection flame. Now Patty Kotorobos put out, usually she does her vlogs on Mondays, and I play them on my Ascension call. She put this out yesterday. She got the message to do this from the Hierarchy of Light, to go ahead and have people start working with that resurrection flame. Easter is always the time. And so we would have been doing this, I would have been doing this starting tomorrow on our calls. It was my intention to start working with it. But there has been some magnification that's been added and so if we need to, we will go ahead and I'll share that message today. I'm going to share it on tomorrow's call as well. But let's begin with our violet flame work for ourselves and the planet. So take a nice deep breath. In the name I am that I am. I now call for the action of the violet transmuting flame in its highest solar, crystalline, and diamond frequencies to be activated within my entire consciousness, being, and world. Please affirm with me, violet fire from the heart of God. Violet fire from the heart of God. Violet fire from the heart of God. Expand thy light through me each day. Expand thy light through me each day. Expand thy light through me each day. Transmute and heal my human imperfection into the shining diamond of God's heart and Christ's perfection. Transmute and heal my human imperfections into the shining diamond of God's heart and Christ's perfection. Transmute and heal my human imperfections into the shining diamond of God's heart and Christ's perfection. As I surrender to thy radiant light, Take dominion over my life. Blaze into action the mercy's flame of the compassionate heart. Expand and saturate within me the wonders of the violet light until I am totally transformed. 
Beloved, I am presence. Send the violet flame to purify every cell, atom, and electron of my being until I am raised into my eternal victory by the action of the violet fire and the ascension flame. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. In the name of the great I am, I call for the light of a thousand suns from the great central sun. Angels of Violet Fire, beloved Saint Germain, beloved Archangel Zadkiel and Holy Amethyst, Amritas, ruler of the Violet Planet. In the name of our Mother, Father, God, I am that I am. Saturate the earth and all of her evolution with limitless waves of violet fire. I call for the action of the violet transmuting flame and the action of the will of God to manifest on earth now and forever, an ever-increasing spiral of divine perfection. I call for all discord and activities on earth that are not reflecting the highest light and Mother, Father, God's holy purposes to be miraculously swept and transformed by the power of the violet flame into divine love and harmony for the restoration of earth and her people into their original blueprint of perfection that was originally intended. Violet flame, violet flame, oh violet flame. In the name of God, goddess, flood the earth, her people, and all her kingdoms with oceans and oceans and oceans of violet fire until every particle of life is restored to divine perfection. May peace and love be spread throughout the earth. May the earth abide in the aura of perfect love. May the earth abide in an aura of peace, love, and freedom. I give thanks that this is done now according to God's most holy will. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. We continue working with the violet fires, be it in through and around you and the planet. As we invoke it for all life. In the name and by the power and authority, the presence of God, Goddess, I am. I invoke the beings of light in the realms of illumined truth, blaze of violet fire, with the power and might of a thousand suns, in, through, and around every electron that makes up the atoms of humanity's physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. Hold the violet flame sustained and double at each hour until these earthly beings are fully assimilated into the perfection of our solar light bodies. Expand and intensify daily the mightiest action of the violet fire through all nations, races, cultures, creeds, and religions in every country of the world. Blaze the violet flame through every person's home, place of occupation, and overall environment until the perfection of the new earth is manifest for all life. Expand, expand, and intensify daily the mightiest action of the violet fire in, through, and around the cause and core 
of the creative centers of all doubt, fear, violence, greed, and war upon the earth, in the earth, on the earth, and in the atmosphere around it, surrounding the earth. Transform these creative centers into expressions of God, confidence, trust, hope, peace, inner knowing, wisdom, and divine government. Expand and expand the vial of fire purification and transmutation in through and around the landed surface, the waters, and the people of every country, province, state, city, town, hamlet in the world. Establish a mighty focus of the violet fire in the etheric realms over each of these locations and intensify this purifying activity of light daily and hourly with every breath I take. In the name, love, wisdom, power, and authority of the beloved victorious presence, God, Goddess, I am. I speak directly <coughs> to the heart of the violet flame. Sacred fire, enfold me in the purifying, forgiving, healing substance of your light, which causes the consciousness and feeling of divine love and freedom to flow through me constantly to bless all life. Let this purifying essence saturate the atmosphere wherever I live, move, breathe, have my being, so that its miracle-working presence will give tangible proof of your reality to all humanity. Beloved Violet Flame, direct legions of your angels of the Violet Fire to blaze the flame of forgiveness and freedom into the heart of every evolving soul so that we will all learn to use our light to the fullest in our service to life and the cause of freedom on earth. Beloved Victoria's Violet Fire of Freedom's Love, I love you. I do now most earnestly and sincerely call you into dynamic action. Perpetually blaze your transmuting flame into the beings and worlds of every man, woman, and child on earth. Enable each one to know that your healing presence will always bring happiness and release from anything that is not of the light. Enfold every person in the power of your light and transmute all imperfection in their lives in divine order with divine love. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Please take a nice deep breath. We're going to call in at this time the flame of divine love. So we've been working with the energy of comprehensive divine love. And we call that in through and around us. And the highest frequencies of divine love, including the divine love flame known as the flame of transfiguring divine love, which is 
pictured as a rose pink flame with an aquamarine aura and no pleasant sun blazing through it. So envision our divine love entering around yourself and the planet, as we say. Mighty I Am Presence. Great host of ascended masters, mighty legions of light, great cosmic beings, great cosmic light, great angelic hosts, angels, angel divas and archangels, the cherubim, the seraphim, and all the great lords from the flames of Venus come forth in the mightiest power of divine love the earth has ever known. Established by unfed flame here and in every home on this earth and keep it forever sustained. Teach and show every human being the fullness of thy mighty power, perfection, and dominion. Charge forth through every human heart the full flame of divine love and joy from each one's own mighty I am presence. So expand its light and cosmic activity through the individual that all will feel and know the mighty victory of his presence forever. We thank thee. This is done now, forever sustained and ever expanding. So we're going to call in the energies of the new moon as well. This new moon before the resurrection time and the celebration of Easter across the planet. Now, it fell uh, on April Fool's Day, and as I researched, again, I took a look at the Tarot and the Fool's card. It talked about the infinite possibilities. So just allow yourself to call forth those infinite possibilities for yourself and the planet as we ask for this new moon to charge this planet and all life with the infinite possibilities and the new opportunities for growth, for healing, for prosperity and abundance, for eternal peace, and for every single aspect and blessing of the new earth. We call in the flame of victory. We often see that as a beautiful gold. The violet also represents the victory energy as well. So feel free to picture both of them as we proceed. Mighty I Am Presence. Great host of Ascended Masters. And all great beings of light throughout infinity. Come forth into the physical octave of earth and lead the children of light through quickly into eternal victory. Blaze forth thy almighty almighty power. Charge them with the ascended master's limitless and exhaustible energy. The full supply of every good thing. Invincible protection. Indestructible health. Absolute courage. And give them the scepter of the eternal power to blaze the light everywhere with instantaneous victory and fulfillment 
of every conscious command of their mighty I am presence. Take them through into their ascension that they may render the greatest possible assistance to humanity and the earth now when it is needed most. We thank thee it is done and eternally sustained. Blessed adorable Sanat Kamara, before thou and thy blessed ones return to Venus, we ask thee to come forth in the tangible body and walk and talk face to face with us in this world. That all may feel thy mighty and powerful love and pour back to thee that which thou hast poured to humanity through these centuries. Blaze forth through each one of us through the mighty I am thy flame of divine love and expand it to fill the world of each one with the blazing perfection which thou art. In everlasting love and gratitude, we bless thee for thy love to the children of earth. May each one become a lord of the flame as thou art. In everlasting love, we bless and thank thee. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, taking a nice deep breath. Okay, so we're going to work with Patty Cota Rubble's work with the resurrection flame and the flame of white flame of purity. So I'm going to give you, and if you want to take this down, this is what she's asking us to work with at this time. This particular affirmation is a long one. So if you can get a piece of paper and a pen, you want to start working with this right away every day. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you've been with any, with me on any classes or any of the Ascension calls, we work with that all the time. And you can add anything that you want to that phrase. I am the resurrection and the life. Of my earthly body. And the earthly body of humanity. The elemental kingdom. And Mother Earth, now made manifest, and eternally sustained by divine grace. I'm going to read that two more times. I am the resurrection and the life of my earth. And the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth now made manifest and eternally sustained by divine grace. 
again, I am the resurrection and the life of my earthly body. And the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth, now made manifest and eternally sustained by divine grace. Good. I want you to use that on a regular basis. We're calling in the white flame of purity and the mother of pearl resurrection flame to fill us, saturate us. In the name of the almighty presence of God, Goddess, I am. And through the full power of the threefold flame pulsating in every heart. I speak directly to the intelligence within every electron of precious life energy existing in my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of all humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. Blessed electrons, through the power of God, Goddess, I am. I command that the white flame of purity in the central core of your being Now expand, expand, and expand continuously and permanently. Through the power of God, Goddess I Am, I direct the crystalline white flame of purity to cast off and remove any shadows cloaking the electrons within my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies and the electrons within the physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom and Mother Earth. O sacred flame of purity, cast any shadows into the violet flame and transmute every rate of vibration which is discordant or causing any form of limitation in my life or in the world. As the flame of purity now quickens the vibratory rate of every electron, I witness every cloak of darkness being cast into the violet flame. All shadows created by my past misuse or humanity's past misuse of God's precious gift of life are being instantly transmuted and transfigured into light. Through the grace of God, Goddess, I am continuously and permanently experiencing this very moment, the blazing white light of purity, expanding, expanding, and expanding in every electron on earth until everything causing limitation in my life or on the planet, can no longer exist. As the power of God, Goddess, I am, I accept and know that this purification is being accomplished now, even as I call, through the most intensified activity of the flame of purity ever known on earth. This purification is God, Goddess, victoriously accomplished, and I accept that the sacred flame of purity will intensify 
within every electron of precious life energy every time I make this call. So be it and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we decree, I am the immaculate concept of my I am presence abiding within my fifth dimensional solar light bodies. I hold the sacred space until all life on the sweet earth is wholly ascended and free. And so it is, beloved, I am. I now invoke a cosmic dispensation from my mother, father, God, on behalf of all the precious electrons. In the full power and authority of the presence of God, goddess, I am. I make this call to my Father God, the celestial giver of all life, and to my Mother God, the beloved Holy Spirit. I invoke a cosmic dispensation that no longer may the electronic light substance of the universe be misqualified or imperfectly clothed by the sons and daughters of God Goddess. I invoke a cosmic dispensation wherein the electrons will be invulnerably charged with purity's flame in action. And passing through humanity's earthly bodies, which are the open doors to its expression in the physical world, this electronic light will remain within an invincible armor of divine love emitting perfection but allowing none of the discord of humanity's physical, etheric, mental, or emotional vehicles to change the vibratory action, color, or sound of its comforting presence. I now contemplate for a moment what I have just decreed. I begin to fathom the blessing humanity's heartfelt call to the flame of purity is for the precious electrons serving all life now in the physical world. I realize as never before that I have come to earth to love life free through the concentrated efforts, through my concentrated efforts, so I shall. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. We call forth now the resurrection flame. See, again, that, that visualize with me that mother of pearl energy. That mother of pearl energy comes actually from the threefold flame, the blending of those energies and an even higher frequency form. And so we were working with the threefold flame, the pink of divine love, the blue of divine will, and the yellow gold of divine wisdom, enlightenment, illumination, Christ consciousness for all. So we invoke the resurrection flame through every cell, every chakra, every meridian, every layer of our auric field, multidimensionally, 
throughout this planet and all upon her as we decree. In the name of the almighty presence of God, Goddess, I am. I acknowledge and accept, and please feel free to say these after me. We'll see each of these affirmations three times. I acknowledge and accept. I am my I am presence. I am my I am presence. I am my I am presence. I am a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God. I am a disciple of the Holy Spirit. I am a disciple of the Holy Spirit. I am a disciple of the Holy Spirit. I am an open door that no one can shut. I am an open door that no one can shut. I am an open door that no one can shut. Through the power of God, God is blazing in every heart flame. I invoke the mighty archangel of resurrection and all of the legions of light associated with the resurrection flame throughout infinity. Powers of light come forth now and assist me in flooding the earth and every electron of precious life energy evolving here in the radiance of the mother girl resurrection flame. I have come to set right the vibratory action of all energy in my world and in all the world. I am an instrument of God Goddess, reestablishing divinity wherever the resurrection flame is applied. I am the resur- I am the flame of resurrection in action. I am the flame of resurrection and action. I am the flame of resurrection and action. I am a director of the resurrection flame. And I am humble before its magnificent presence. I am grateful to unleash the power of the resurrection flame on the earth. I am an instrument of God Goddess charging the electronic substance in, through, and around all life with the full power and might of the resurrection flame. I am an instrument of God Goddess, charging the electronic substance in, through, and around all life with the resurrection flame. I am an instrument of God, Goddess, charging the electronic substance in, through, and around all life with the full power and might of the resurrection flame.
I am the cause of this blessing of the resurrection flame. I am the bridge over which it flows. I am its final effect of divinity reestablished on earth. I am the new earth now manifesting in the world of form. And so it is, as God, Goddess, in action, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So let us affirm once again, using that resurrection flame, I am the resurrection and the life of my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth, now made manifest and eternally sustained by divine grace. I am the resurrection and the life of my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth now made manifest and eternally sustained by divine grace. I am the resurrection and the life of my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth now made manifest and eternally sustained by divine grace. So be it, and so it is, and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And I'm going to give thanks for this opportunity to be with you here today. And give, and we give thanks to each and every one of you for your divine service here today. And I invite you to further divine service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. We'd love to have you join us as a regular doing the Ascension work to bring heaven on earth, to really be that anchor, that bridge between heaven and earth and the anchor for the new golden age. The calls begin, they are teleconference calls. They begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern, 5.45 p.m. Pacific time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings, and then Tara and Rama give us a brief update. And then at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific time, we begin our ascension work with all of our invocations, our prayers, our updates, our visualizations, all of the energy work that we do for the planet. We begin at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific time. Each call is unique. Each is different. But again, we, we often have a theme. We've been working a lot on divine peace for the planet. We will continue that as we move into the resurrection energies and anything that might be required to bring the perfection of of Mother Earth and all upon her. 
So take down the phone number if you don't have it. The main number is area code 425-436-6260. Again, that's area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. Again, that's 946-7441-POUND. Now, there are additional numbers. There are international numbers. You can access the call through your computer. You can get online and join the call. I'm not familiar with it, but I know there's an app as well. So... If you need that additional information, please contact me. Email me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I, at AOL.com, and I'll get you that extra information, and you'll be on the list for any updates. I hope to do an update tonight, so (laughs) I haven't been as regular as I used to be. Um, and I don't know about you, but time keeps jumping and skipping and hopping around for me. So, again, we'll we'll be working on that tonight, utilizing the energy of the college basketball games too. (laughs) Okay. So, infinite blessings to each of you. Please use the affirmation that I've given. Um, I am the resurrection and the life. Please join us for the Sunday and Monday calls. Hold that vision of heaven on earth. See everything resurrected in this resurrection flame. All life brought to perfection. And hold that image for us this week. And I'll be with you next weekend again. So with that, I'm going to pass a talking stick to my dear sister, Rainbird. We thank Torin Rama for their uh, divine service work all these years. We thank uh, Rainbow for her service work as well. And with this, I'm going to pass that violet flame talking stick with the mother of pearl resurrection flame and the white flame of purity and the pink, the blue, and the yellow gold of the threefold flame and just every single frequency that we could even imagine and beyond is so filled with infinite love and light and it has the assistance of all the angelic realms and the uh, fairies and uh, all the elementals and the gemstones and every other frequency that that wants to assist with our uh, ascension and resurrection here on the planet. And I pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird, with much love and gratitude. Well, thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. So much love and gratitude for you and beautiful meditation today. And Tara and Ronald just trying to call me in, so I didn't answer. You might give them a call real quick for an update. So anyway, I'm here to do the um, housekeeping as we are listening to supported radio program. It's just us chickens that make it happen. And each week we need $300 to cover our expenses with DBS Radio. So that's what we need this week. 
and lots of gratitude for that as that means we're caught up and just being present with it. That's very good. Lots of gratitude for all of you who pitch in each week and and uh, support this and looking for all you newbies to come in too. Here's how we make a contribution to uh, our account at BBS Radio. You want to go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2 and then you'll see the menu for Radio Station 2. That's what you're looking for. You can scroll down and find it that way too. So we're looking for on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday shows. Thursday at the 6 o'clock hour. And these are Pacific times. Um, it's the night at the round table with the panel. And uh, you can click on that icon there, and that links you directly to our account where you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. So thank you for taking that action. And so on Fridays, the hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday nights. At the 6 o'clock hour, you click on that icon. That'll take you to our account. And that's the same with this program, The True History, History, and the Sarah and Our Galactic Origins, on Saturdays at the 1.30 hour. So that is that icon there to click on. So thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for all your support and all the ways that you show up in your lives. So lots of gratitude. And we're also assisting Tara and Ronald with their needs, and currently they need um, three. Uh, they need about four hundred dollars this week, and and that's depending on what happens with the computer when they take it in. So we could buffer that a bit, and it'd be awesome. But that's what they need for their expenses and the, the, their bills. And um, so, lots of gratitude for taking action. Here's how we. Um, make a contribution to Tara and Rama. You want to find Rama's PayPal account at the website, and so you go to rainbowroundtable.net, and there on the home page, there's a menu grid. Click on that, and you'll see the donate link near the bottom of that list, second to last, I believe. Um, so click on that. That links you to Rama's PayPal account where you can make a donation in any amount. So lots of gratitude for taking that action. As you um, have your own PayPal account, you can access the friends and family option by using Rama's email, entering that. And that email at PayPal for Rama, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at Comcast.net. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. That's the personal one. It's at hotmail.com. So, Korean9999 at hotmail.com, and that'll link you to the friends option. That way, you've got to follow it. And so, either way, it's perfect. So, we're so grateful for your contributions to Tara and Rama. We're grateful for all that they do, and we're grateful for all that you do. So, <laughs> gratitude all the way around. Uh, as you're sending something to Tara and Rama, you want to um, send an email to Rama to let him know that you sent something and how much and when so he knows what to expect. So that email for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 99939 at comcast.net. And then as you need it, Rama's mailing address is Ram D. Bookowitz, R-A-M-D. 
Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box, 280-280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. The zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. And I'll say that again, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. Um... So thank you so much for all your contributions. I also would like to give you the web addresses for joining uh, Shop Framework and also for participating with the new gen, new gen coin. Uh, definitely a revolutionary cryptocurrency based on real assets, which is definitely needed at this time. And it's quite a clever aspect, well-funded and intelligently designed for <clears throat> serving humanity at this time. It's the People's Bank is what I call it. So here are the two addresses. For Fremont, it's HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfremont.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And this is a great place for really good products, um, not only for your superior products for your health, mostly in the mineral category, but also products for the environment and, uh, yeah, and then there's crypto, other abundance programs that go on there at that place. So that's how you, um, that's where you would go to join, and then when you have your own site, you don't have to put all that other stuff in there, <laughs> in that address. But for joining, you need to use the HTTPS parts. And the same is true with the new gen coin, so I'll give it to you now. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www dot new gen coin and that's spelled N U G E N C O I N New Gen Coin Nets dot com forward slash T A R R A N the same username. And as both these programs are linked together, um, it just makes it more solid and stable and growing and positive. So, very exciting. Um, so there you go. That's <laughs> that's all the information. And I'm not sure if Tara and Rum are here yet, but I'm going to pass this talking stick. Greetings, greetings. Hi. This yeah. So, are they there? Hi there. Um, listen, I just got the phone with them, and uh, they still don't have the power back. Okay, well, then we'll have to see if we can... This is what's going to happen, okay, for right now. Um, if we can have Don's attention, maybe he can help us out here. Um, I'm assuming that this will work perfectly just like it does on my calls. I will, I will go ahead and play Patty's vlog, and that will buy them about 15 minutes. And then... Um, and then what will happen is um, Rama was going to call um, right right now and make sure that they have queued up the next thing that they wanted to play. So they're going to play something from Greg Braden. So they're going to work directly with um, the station to set that up. Okay, Rainbird? Perfect. So you have the talking stick, right? I guess I have the talking stick. All right, we're going to try this. 
We've never done it through the radio station before. And um, if you're out there listening, Don, we're gonna we're gonna go for this here. Okay, so this is um, Vlog 265 from Patricia Cota Robles. Another powerful opportunity to add to the light of the world. It's about 15 minutes long, so please uh, relax and enjoy. Again, she only posts on Mondays. And this update was, um, as she'll explain, she uh, received um, the information to go ahead and ask everyone to start doing this right away. So please relax and enjoy. I hope this comes across exceptionally clear. My love and blessings to all of you. Thank you. Light 
that have brought us to this cosmic moment in Earth's evolution. Eons ago, when the sons and daughters of God began experimenting with our gift of life and departed from the love-based qualification of our thoughts and feelings, our Father Mother God perceived the shadow of our miscreations taking form in the consciousness of our earthly bodies. They knew the fruits of those seeds would be aging, disease, disintegration, and decay. They further understood that some means of restoration would have to be provided to the children of Earth who would one day desire to return to our original God estate. To begin the process of manifesting that restorative power, our Father Mother God breathed into their heart flames from the very core of creation, the radiance of the Mother of Pearl resurrection flame. This sacred fire is a multifaceted and multidimensional frequency of light by which the aged, diseased, distorted, and disintegrating carbon-based substance generated by the misuse of humanity's thoughts and feelings can be purified, restored, and resurrected back into its original God perfection. When all was in readiness, our Father Mother God summoned a mighty solar archangel from the great silence to bring this sacred resurrection flame to earth. Through the heart flame of this mighty archangel, the Mother of Pearl resurrection flame was anchored on earth. This selfless messenger of God is known through all creation as the angel of resurrection. From that moment forth, the angel of resurrection has accepted the responsibility of bathing the earth in the resurrection flame in a rhythmic momentum. This sacred fire flows through the open portal of the March equinox every year and bathes the earth for several weeks. In the Northern Hemisphere, the resurrection flame is the frequency of light that awakens the hibernating animals and brings the plants and trees back to life after the dormant winter months. The resurrection flame is also the sacred fire from the heart of God that resurrected Jesus's crucified mm -hmm. carbon-based planetary body into his fifth-dimensional, crystalline-based, solar-like body. This occurred three days after the crucifixion on what Christians now celebrate as Easter Sunday. What the Company of Heaven wants us to know now, during the vitally important facet of the ascension process we are now in the midst of, is how the resurrection flame is assisting us at this time with the divine alchemy of transfiguring our own 
carbon-based planetary bodies into fifth-dimensional crystalline-based solar light bodies. Even though the masses of humanity were not able to comprehend the true meaning of the events that took place during the Passover and Easter pageant in the Piscean Age, Jesus felt it was important for him to anchor that template in the physical plane in preparation for humanity's full comprehension in this Aquarian Age. Jesus' resurrection was a deliberate demonstration of what occurs when our carbon-based third and fourth dimensional bodies are transfigured into fifth-dimensional crystalline-based solar light bodies. The scriptures state that when Mary Magdalene came to Jesus' tomb and he appeared to her, he said, Do not touch me. I am not of this world. Jesus appeared to Mary in his fifth-dimensional crystalline solar-like body. Even though Carbon's physical body had been utilized and crucified, his fifth-dimensional crystalline solar-like was pulsating the vibrant and full perfect of his eye presence. Forty days after Jesus' resurrection into the dimensional light body, he demonstrated what the next step of our ascension process is going to be by publicly ascending up the spiral of ascension into the dimensional of life. This is the path humanity and Mother Earth are now taking as we move through the divine of transferring our earthly body and ascending into the dimensional crystalline new earth. Jesus knew that initially would not comprehend of what he was demonstrating through his resurrection and ascension. Nevertheless, he was determined to leave those archetypes so that in divine timing, the company of heaven would be able to reveal to humanity the true meaning of the divine alchemy we were destined to experience after the shift of the ages. This is that time. Our process is slower than what Jesus experienced because this time humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth are all experiencing this divine alchemy. That means, quite literally, that as we resurrect our carbon-based bodies and ascend into the fifth dimension, we are taking Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her with us. This is a tremendous responsibility for every son and daughter of God on earth. But what a glorious opportunity for each and every one of us to be the instruments of God we have been preparing to be for lifetimes. 
due to the urgent need of the hour. Our Father, Mother, God have granted the angel of resurrection permission to breathe unprecedented frequencies of the Mother of Pearl resurrection flame into our newly recalibrated planetary grid of comprehensive divine love. This monumental amplification of the resurrection flame is quickening the vibratory rate of humanities, the elemental kingdoms, and Mother Earth's contaminated carbon-based cells. This greatly amplified influx of the resurrection flame is allowing our I am presence and our body elemental to activate the core of purity in every cell of our earthly bodies. Our body elemental is casting the mutated substance contaminating our cells into the violet flame where it is being instantly transmuted back into light. Mm -hmm. This is clearing the way for each cell to now receive the full divine potential of God's fifth-dimensional crystalline solar light. When we invoke and freely partake of the gifts and blessings of the resurrection flame, we avail ourselves of its incomparable, restorative, and rejuvenating power. By stating the following decree on a regular basis, each of us will greatly accelerate the divine alchemy now taking place in our earthly bodies. Please listen to your heart and recite this decree as often as you are inspired to do so. It is a gift from on high that has been building in momentum for millennia. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life of my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth now made manifest and eternally sustained by divine grace. I am the resurrection and the life of my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth now made manifest and eternally sustained by divine grace. I am the resurrection and the life of my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth now made manifest and eternally sustained by divine grace. And so it is. Dear one, have a glorious week and allow the Mother of Pearl Resurrection Flame to bless you and all life on this sweet earth in miraculous ways. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week.
Okay, dear ones, that is Patty's update for this week. And I will be playing it on the Ascension Meditation and Activation call tomorrow. So I'm going to pass the talking stick once again to Rainbird. Rainbird, hopefully, BBS is all queued up with the audio at this point. If you can unmute yourself, Rainbird. Okay, I'll keep I'll take the talking stick. Thank you. Are they all right? Do you know? No, I don't know. But if they are there, they would just unmute right now and say hello. So I'm going to call on Don to pray that Greg's waiting peace because I'm not hearing from Tara and Rama right now. And uh, uh, let's see, I'll just tell you that somebody cut the tree down and it landed on an electric pole that serviced their neighborhood there. So um, they're waiting for the repair to take place. It's been going on all day. <laughs> so they should be done shortly. And um, I'm asking you, Don, are you there? Can you play the Greg, Greg Braden please, piece, please? I can't say that. <laughs> yeah, well, we got them in the circle of support. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how how pervasive it was, but I happened to see uh, an uh, email from New Mexico that was talking about power problems. So (laughs) anyway, yeah, we'll put the whole um, everybody affected in as well. Okay, then, Don, are you are you there? Do you have a Greg Braden piece? Ready to play? Blaze the violet flame, everybody, while we're waiting. And that blue flame of divine power and divine will and divine order and communication. (laughs) Yeah, let's just do this intuitively. Um, I could just call Don and see if he... You want me to... <laughs> I can do yeah, another... Can do uh, that. Uh, what, what, what would you like me to do? Uh, we would like for you to play the Greg Braden piece that Rama sent to you. Um, he did. When did he send it? Well, I, my, well, my understanding is that he was going to call you and ask you to queue it up. I didn't get any call on minutes. that, and I don't know... What you're talking about, to be quite honest. Okay. Okay. Well, how about this? Um, I'm willing to go ahead and lead us through a little bit more work as um, maybe Rainbird, you can give them a quick call. Or maybe Don, if Don can contact them. But uh, he, that's the what the game plan was uh, as of about 25 minutes ago, that he was going to call you with the Greg Braden piece to uh, bring up because they still don't have power. Anybody, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I got another live video show on Station One. That's why we kind of do it this way, the way we do it. Okay. I normally don't have to grab files and things for Station Two, so it makes it real difficult for me. Um, 
again, I'm just not sure what to do. Are you able to carry on the way you are, or do we need to do something else? Well, I won't be here for much longer, so Rainbird's got the got the uh, the talking okay, stick I'll here. Okay, let you at it. Have fun. Yeah, I'll do something. We'll we'll do some mind calendar work. Okay, sweetie. Okay, I'll see everybody tomorrow night. Love and blessings. Have okay. a have a great okay. show. have a great show, Rainbird. <laughs> okay. Well, I need to queue up something here, so just give me a moment while I bring up today's Mayan calendar on my phone, and I can do that. Okay. Give me a moment. Yes. Well, again, apologies, everybody, for for um, the communication issues here, but um, send lots of uh, energy especially uh, the communication angels out to uh, Taran Rama so they can get their internet back up right away. Okay, I've got it good. We're ready to go. Cheryl, thank you so much for your divine service. Okay. Take care. Have a great night, everybody. Love you all. Thank you. Hold on, hold on. Can you please play the 50, that Patty Coder Barobles thing? We well, already did. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to do so many things at once. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're fine. I'm, uh, I'm, I've got the talking stick done. Are you, and are, are and you able to play Patty Code or Robles? We already played it. You I already played, played it. it. Okay. Uh, they already played it. Talk. Okay. <laughs> All right. Much love, everybody. Okay. Bye. Here. Okay. All right, so today is the White Rhythmic Wizard Day, and it is a portal day. So um, let's take a look a little bit at the White Rhythmic Wizard. I organize. Oh, look at that. Are they here? Okay. I organize in order to enchant, balancing receptivity. I feel the output of timelessness with the rhythmic tone of equality. I am guided by my own power devil. Yeah, so it's a sick. Yeah, the rhythmic wizard. The white yes. rhythmic wizard. I feel like we got somebody here. <laughs> okay, so the wizard represents enchantment, receptivity, and timelessness. And this wizard occurs during the way cell of the red moon on the sixth day, which is called rhythmic. So the key words for number six are balancing, equality, and organized. This day is guided by white wizard, and the occult power is the blue hand. The ally today is the red serpent, Chong, and the challenge teacher today is the yellow seed. So there we go. We're guided by the devil wizard days. And uh, we got this ally. <clears throat> Who is the ally? Yeah, the blue, blue hand is the occult power. So here we go. Let's take a look at the comment on this section and see what else they have to say about it. So the white rhythmic wizard, the rhythmic 
is the name for the number six, and its keywords are equality, balance, organized. So we are now on the sixth day of the Red Moon Way Cell with this agenda of going with the flow. So day six is always about getting practical and organized. A bit tricky in the context of flow, within the context of flowing. So how does one organize and relinquish control at the same time? Well, it's quite easy, really. Get yourself together and take care of the necessities, and this will restore balance in your life, allowing you the peace of mind that will enable you to relax. So today is the White Wizard, which represents enchantment, receptivity, and timelessness. The Wizard is one of the most elusive and mysterious characters in the Vulcan. People born on these days are very complex and hard to get to know. Wizard energy enchants us, and we all can fall under a spell on the Wizard days. So this can lead to the very profound experiences or this can also lead to dumbfoundedness. Don't be surprised that by the end of the day, you ask yourself, what just happened? <laughs> the guide today is also the white wizard. So the challenge today is the yellow seed, which is the symbol of sowing awareness. Yellow seed loves to share knowledge. But when everyone is under the spell of the wizard, it is very difficult for seed to get people's attention. The occult power today is the blue hand, which is the symbol of healing. The occult position is the most powerful aspect of any day. Look to your own occult power to see where your strength lies. Today, the blue hand offers healing on a magical level. This has the potential to raise your vibrations and release negative feelings. The ally today is the red serpent, which represents instinct survival, and life force. Today, if you need a friend or somebody helpful, some helpful advice, ask a red serpent. If you are, are one, expect to be in demand today and for your words of wisdom to be appreciated. Well, that's the commentary on that. And I'm going to just scroll on here as we do a reading by Roger Grossman. He is a Mayan scholar who does beautiful work, so let's see what he has to say. Today is White Wizard Day on the 13 Moon Zoom Spell Mind Calendar. White Wizard, Tribe 14 of the 20 Solar Tribe Octite Cycle, Enchant, Timelessness, and Receptivity. White Wizard encourages you to remain present in the moment, experiencing now centered time. The ever-present now is the only time that truly exists. The timeline, which encompasses the false concepts of past and future, is an illusion. All time radiates out from and is connected in the now. The timeline is a creation of our minds, an attempt to make sense of the apparent sequence of unfolding events. The yearning or craving for what we want to come to pass, along with the denial and aversion of that we wish to avoid, causes suffering. When you project out of the now into the illusions of past or future, you remove yourself from the place where life is truly happening, thereby causing you to be 
unaware of and miss out on what is really happening to and around you. The white wizard archetype promotes openness and receptivity. Remain open and receptive to the energies around you, as well as those that are being projected to you. White wizard is the portal of natural magic. As you are able to remain open and receptive in the present moment, you become a portal for magic to come in. Allow this natural magic to effortlessly be created through you. Rhythmic tone of equality, step six of the 13 steps. Creative tone cycle, organize, balance, equality. Tone six is where the biggest transformation takes place on the creative energy cycle so that equality and imbalance can be achieved. If you look at the way the number six manifests in the physical world, a great example is how six appears on the face of dice, where it appears as two columns of three. If you were to cut that image in half with a line, no matter where you draw the line, you will wind up with two equal and balanced remaining portions. Yesterday's heart centered in the emanations of exploration, wakefulness, and space, Red Skywalker, are transformed through today's rhythmic tone so that equality and balance can be attained. This process enables you to become magically in and centered so that you can resonate with new frequencies coming through during tomorrow's Tone 7. Tone 6 is also referred to as the housekeeping tone. Put everything in its proper place and order, both outside as well as inside of yourself. Strike for equality and balance in all of your creative endeavors. Organize, balance, and equal enchantment, timelessness, and receptivity. Day 6 of the 13-day cycle themes Red Moon purifies flow universal water. For more information is available in the com- comment section. So that was written by Roger Grissom. And uh, what else do we have about here? So White Wizard's antipodal opposite pole power is Yellow Seed, targets flowering awareness. The antipode power represents a challenge that strengthens, completes, and makes the White Wizard whole. Yellow seed encourages you to plant and cultivate seeds with intention while weeding out what is no longer wanted or needed. Planting seeds with intention, cultivating, and weeding out of what is no longer needed strengthens your ability to remain present in the moment, open and receptive, in a portal of natural magic. Awareness requires your ability to be present and receptive. The most potent seeds come through your magical connection to source and are formed in the present moment. The white wizard's analog or like-minded partner is the red serpent, survives life force instinct. The analog power represents the people, places, times, and situations that the white wizard archetype is naturally drawn to. Red Serpent urges you to rise up and meet the challenges of survival by tapping into your life force energy, trusting on blind instinct to lead the way. You will find that as you remain present, open, receptive, and allow magic to be created through you, you are naturally drawn to situations, events, and people that have to do with survival, life, 
life force energy and instinctual knowing. Serpent energy is the transmutation fire magic that heals. Wizard and serpent work together as magical partners. Many ancient drawings and statues of wizards are depicted holding serpents in their hands. While wizards occult of hidden power is blue hand, nose, healing accomplishment, the occult power, power represents the presence of the unexpected, that which remains mostly hidden beneath the surface. Blue hand encourages you to work with your hands, heal yourself and others, and trust your inner knowing, resulting in accomplishments. Your handiwork, healing, knowing, and accomplishments may remain hidden to others or even to you that are just as much a part of today as are the attributes of the wizard. <laughs> and we got somebody juggling here. There's a little girl and a kid is watching. Yeah, wait I guess. Hang on just a second, I lost my place. I pushed the wrong button. There you go. No, you don't. Well, that must be all there is on this because I'm not getting any more. So, there you go. We learned a lot about the user today. And uh, I'm grateful. For that, and <laughs> I could look for somebody else to read, um, as we're still waiting on Tala and Rama. Um, what I'd like to do is find my oracle, my oracle. Hi, Rainbird. Yeah. Oh, Micah. Hi, Rainbird. It's it's Micah here. Uh, I, Tara and Rama asked me to jump in for them uh, while they're figuring out the power situation. So I'm happy to play the um, the the videos that they asked me to share. If if you want me to jump in. Well, that's perfect. I was thinking, where's Micah? Where's Micah? <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Forgive me. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were just keeping on going there. I, I apologize. No, it's perfect. Very perfect. I and I hand you the talking talk stick right now. Here it comes. Oh, perfect. Okay. So, greetings to all of our listeners from around the planet and throughout the cosmos. Uh, to begin, we have... Um, a video from Greg Braden. It's called What is the Bible Code? The Science and the Prophecies. So here we go. friends, Greg Braden here. Welcome to this edition of our Q&A. I'm going to begin this edition with an apology in a, a recent broadcast, a recent Q&A. In passing, I spoke uh, of prophecy. I mentioned prophecy. I described a couple of prophecies, the Hopi prophecy and prophecy rock, and the biblical prophecies uh, in what is now known as the Torah codes or the Bible codes. 
And I made mention of those with the assumption that you, my community, had seen some of the previous content that I'd done, either through Gaia, we did an extensive uh, discussion of the Bible codes through the Missing Links series, portions of which were seen on this channel, or in other conversations, your letters, your emails, uh, let me know that my assumption was incorrect, and that's why I'm apologizing. And that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit today. Uh, actually, this is really good news, because what it tells me is that we have new viewers. We have viewers that have not been with me since the Missing Links series was aired through uh, Gaia TV and, uh, and on this channel, and new viewers that may not have seen some of the other episodes. I'm going to invite you to go back and, and check them out. They're still available here on this channel. But I want to take this opportunity, if you don't have the opportunity, if you don't have the opportunity to go back and look at those, I'm going to my, do my very best. I'm going to summarize for you with a little presentation precisely what the, the Bible code is, what it's all about, what the science says about it, and what it says about where we are right now, about the events that are happening in our lives and in our world right now. Let me just talk a little bit uh, briefly before I begin the presentations. Prophecy in general. Scientists believe that there's a close association between what we in the past have called prophecy and what scientists today call remote viewing. Now, those of you familiar with remote viewing know what I'm talking about. If you're not familiar with remote viewing, it is the ability of an individual to sit in uh, a moment in space and time, presumably any moment in any space and any time, and through a, a deep state of intuition that we all have available to us, they are able to access timelines of events that are occurring in real time or have yet to occur into our future. Now, the reason that this is possible, and I'll talk about when we get into the presentation, Einstein told us that time, uh, time exists. All events in time always exist. All right, so it's a, it's a really strange way of thinking about time, but it means that there, the past and the present and the future exist simultaneously. This is what Einstein said. And if that's true, and if we have the ability, the intuitive ability through states of consciousness to navigate, states of consciousness, to navigate the timelines, then we should be able to at least view and perhaps interact with the events of the past, the present, or the future. So we know this is successful. We know this works because the U.S. military explored remote viewing uh, beginning in 1980s. It was actually applied in the Gulf War in 1990 very successfully. Uh, for example, when remote viewing is used to locate missile silos, SCUD missiles, in the Iraqi desert, without risking the lives of troops to go in and find those missiles. So we, we know that the principle of remote viewing is valid. It works. The physics is still being um, explored. And scientists believe they understand enough to be able to apply it. And by applying it, they will develop a deeper understanding of the physics. Well, I believe that the parallels between the remote viewing, as we know it today, and the prophecy as we have known it in the past, are close enough that we can use those principles to talk about 
the, the prophecy, biblical prophecy, for example, and what it means in terms of, of what's happening in our world today, specifically in, in Eastern Europe today. So the, the idea of remote viewing or prophecy, an individual is able to attune to a timeline uh, of events that are unfolding. So they're in point A, and they are looking into the future, or into the past, but in this case we're talking about the future, of, of point B. If nothing changes between point A and when the events of point B play out, then what they have seen may very possibly, very probably come to pass. However, and this is where it gets really, it's a little real tricky, because of what are known as bifurcations, in the time-space continuum. You and I are part of those bifurcations. What that means is that between point A and point B on a linear timeline, any choice that is made can deviate, can, can cause the events to deviate from that point B. One little choice can cause, so for example, uh, a, a, a discussion, a negotiation at the peace table may not bring an end to the war, but it may be enough to deviate from the possibility of that war escalating. So the bifurcation allows for a shift, and now you're looking down a different timeline, and the original prophecy that, that was recorded may not be valid. Nostradamus, looking from his day into, he went as far as the year 3000, so many things have happened between his day and the year 3000 that have caused so many bifurcations. Some of his visions, as accurate as they were in the 20th century, may not be accurate in, in the future because we're causing those bifurcations. This is true of indigenous prophecy. The Hopi prophecy talk about this. It's true of biblical prophecy. So I mentioned the biblical prophecy specifically because it has been studied scientifically. Statisticians mathematicians uh, have for a long time manually known that there are codes in the first five books of the Christian Bible or, or the, the first five books that are the, the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are those first five books in the Old Testament, and they are the Torah in the Hebrew tradition. They share uh, they share this information. There's something unique about those first five books that does not apply to the rest of the Christian Bible. It doesn't apply to any other known document of record. And I want to talk to you about what that is, what the statisticians have discovered, how it works to, to be able to query this, uh, this information database and uh, and what it may be saying about our world today. Now, before I even begin this, I'm going to say this now, and then I'll emphasize it in the presentation. Prophecy cannot tell us exactly what's going to happen. And when we're talking about remote viewing, we're talking about quantum possibilities. And in the quantum world, we can never know precisely when and where something will happen. Quantum possibilities are all about probabilities. So we can know with a certain degree of certainty uh, when an event, a certain probability, when an event may occur. Maybe it's a 70% probability or a 90% probability. 
Because it is a quantum possibility, it's not locked in stone because we have choice. And that's the whole point. We are never locked in to any of the, the most frightening prophecies, no matter how frightening, no matter where they come from, no matter what you've seen. I'm going to show you in the biblical prophecy specifically in the Bible code where the code tells us that we always have the opportunity to change what the code is showing us. We always have a choice. We may not know that we have a choice. We may not feel that we have a choice. But when it comes into quantum possibilities, when it comes down to quantum possibilities, we always have the ability to make a choice, at least enough of a choice, to create a bifurcation, to shift the timeline from the most frightening possibilities that we're, we're told, and we're talking about biblical prophecy, you know, they're are a lot of very frightening possibilities uh, in the book of Revelation, for example, and in other books as well. So what I'd like to do, let's talk about the Bible code specifically, the, the Torah code, more commonly known as the Bible code. And from that, we begin to understand the science of how the queries are made and what those codes are actually saying to us. So when we talk about the Bible code, we are, in fact, talking about specifically the Torah code. The code or the codes that are embedded into those first five books of the Christian Old Testament and the Hebrew book, uh, the Hebrew text itself that is called the Torah. The Torah is one of the most mysterious texts, uh, spiritual religious texts that we have available to us today. Still a lot of controversy even over where it came from and how it originated. Scholars have yet to agree uh, 100% on where this text came from. There are some Scholars, biblical scholars that believe that Moses wrote the texts as it was dictated to him. Others believe that Moses was handed the texts from uh, from the experience and the event that he had on Mount Sinai when he was engulfed in the cloud and the fire, and he heard the the name of God and he heard the voice of God uh, that he was actually given the Torah. And yet other scholars believe the Torah was an accumulation of texts that were written by humans over a period of time. As uh, as mysterious as the origins are, what we know is that it is one of the most stable texts of the religious texts available. Uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls pushed the date of the Torah back uh, over a thousand years beyond what the original dates had believed to have been. And we now know that uh, 3,200 years BP, before present, is when the, the Torah uh, emerged, however however that happened. Now, what makes this so interesting is when we look at copies of the Torah, modern Torahs that we have today, and we look at these ancient copies very, very few discrepancies exist in the text. It is a very stable text. Uh, approximately 23 letters have been changed over those 3,200 years. And that is almost unheard of when you think of all the translations that it's gone through uh, and different languages that it's gone through. But this is, this is the whole point. And what the, what the scholars, what the rabbis have always said about the Torah is that it is more than a book to be read, it actually is a map of time. And because they believed it was a map of time, they were very careful to 
duplicate every letter in a copy to be precisely what it was in the original. Before we had computers and printers, this was all done by hand. And if if the, the rabbi, the, the scholar, would you know be 90% into the replication of a Torah and make a mistake, uh, what they said was that that entire document had to be discarded because if they changed one letter in the Torah, they would change one letter in the history or the future of the world. And I think you begin to understand why this is. There was a, a rabbi called the genius of Vilna. It was uh, Rabbi Elijah ben Solomon Solomon. He was a Kabbalist. And he summed up what I'm saying to you beautifully. What he said, and these are his words, he said, the rule is that all that was, is, and will be until the end of time is included in the Torah from the first word to the last word, and not merely in the general sense, but as to the details of every species and each one individually and details of details of everything that happened to him from the day of his birth until the end. That's a direct quote. What he's saying is that the Torah is a map of all living beings, including you and me. And I'm, I'll, I'll describe how specific this is in, in just a moment. Uh, but this takes us beyond a religious document. So I'm going to invite you to consider this conversation of the Torah as a mysterious and sacred text that was left to the people of the earth to help us to understand who we are and the potentials that we have in our lives and our future and the role that we play in determining how those potentials play out. You can think of it that way. Uh, it takes on, for many people, it takes on uh, a whole new meaning. So the Torah um, was originally received, and I, I just, I always laugh when I think of this. If you're my age, or, or maybe older, uh, or maybe you've seen the reruns of the, the book, uh, the movie, uh, um, Exodus, where Charlton Heston played Moses. And indelibly engraved upon my mind is the image of Charlton Heston in his robes and his white hair and his white beard. And he's, he's staggering down from the top of Mount Sinai, and on each arm he's carrying these huge stone tablets that were given to him, the Ten Commandments uh, and the Torah on the top of Mount Sinai. That is the way we've been conditioned to think of the Torah. But modern scholars are offering us a little bit different idea. First of all, what mathematicians and what the scholars are saying is the Torah was originally received with no break in the sentences, with no punctuation, uh, it was received in the Hebrew language, uh, which is a language that does not use vowels. So it was a, uh, a document of consonants uh, of one continuous string of 300, exactly 304,805 characters. That number is important. So the original Torah was believed to have been received as one continuous string of information. Uh, 304,805 characters, not on a parchment, not in a book, not etched onto stone, big stone tablets that Charlton Heston is carrying down the side of Mount Sinai. Rather, it was etched into a mysterious stone that fit in the palm of the hand. 
Now, we don't have any good representations of this, but if you can think, it's a very different way of thinking. If you can think of this stone as fitting into the, the palm of a hand, and if a high intelligence uh, truly was visiting Moses, who or whatever you believe that intelligence is, if you believe it was God, whatever you believe God to be, or if you believe it's a, a higher intelligence from a, another dimension or from another world, it would make sense that such a sacred and profound document, as you're going to see, would be uh, left in uh, something that would not be destroyed easily like a parchment would be. Now, in, uh, in 19, mid-1990s, 1994, a group of mathematicians under the, the guidance, the leadership of uh, Elihu Rips was the mathematician's name, published a theory uh, about the Torah. It was published in a peer-reviewed journal called Statistical Science. You can see volume nine. Uh, and here's a, a copy of the original paper, and it was under the, the title, Equidistant Letter Sequences in the Book of Genesis. Now, that sounds pretty benign. You say, well, what's that have to do with prophecy? The way this works is that there is a, a, a mathematical algorithm that allows mathematicians and statisticians to search the Torah for meaningful information, for patterns and sequences of words that show up beyond uh, what could be a chance beyond what could be a fluke. And what they're saying in the abstract is saying it's been noted that when the book of Genesis is written as two-dimensional arrays, that equidistant letter sequences, and I'm going to share with you what that is, spelling words often appear in close proximity. It says the effect is significant at the level of point zero 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 four. That means there's a very small probability that this is a fluke. One of the tests that was made was uh, a test of the names of historical rabbis. Uh, it was believed that if the Torah contained all, all that was, is, and will ever be, that the names of these rabbis should show up in the text. So a group of code specialists from the United States were invited to participate in this. These were code specialists from the intelligence agencies, NSA, CIA. And there were a, a group of historic rabbis, and they went to search for their names to see if they were, in fact, in the Torah. Well, not only were the names in the Torah, it was mind-boggling what else was in there, the names of the dates of their birth, the dates of their death, the cities that they lived in where they practiced their uh, their tradition, the people that they practiced with. And what the experts said was our referees were baffled by this. The prior beliefs made them think that Genesis could not possibly contain meaningful references to modern-day, or in this case, later-day individuals. Yet when the authors carried out the additional analyses and the checks, uh, the effect persisted. The paper is this offered, is thus offered, to statistical science readers as a challenging puzzle. They're saying, we don't know why this is happening, but here's what's happening. All right, so how is it possible? How is it possible that meaningful information could be of modern-day events, what we would call prophecy, could be written into a book that was delivered to the people of the earth over 3,000 years ago in a fixed format? How could that information be in there 3,000 years ago, who 3,000 years ago knew about the events 
of the modern world? Well, to answer that question, we've got to unlock these codes a little bit. So I'm going to move quickly because I, I want to honor your time. And I, I just want to give you a sense for how this works. The modern Hebrew alphabet that you see on your screen is uh, inside of the red box. It For every letter in the Hebrew alphabet, there is a mathematic code, a number associated with that letter. Now, I want you to know that this is true of every alphabet known to exist on the face of the earth today. Every ancient alphabet, whether it's cuneiform or Sumerian or Egyptian hieroglyphs or uh, kanji, uh, Japanese kanji or Chinese letters, Greek, uh, the Greek alphabet, the Phoenician alphabet, uh, the English alphabet, every alphabet has always had a mysterious number associated with it. The number is constant. It never changes. The mystery is where did the number come from? And I talk about this in other programs. I won't do it here. Uh, where do those numbers come from? But the, the fact that each letter can be converted to a number makes the computer search much easier when it comes to searching the code. And that's the point. So for the Torah code, what happens is all of those 308,000 plus letters are converted into its number equivalent. All right. So you get this long uh, sequence of continuous numbers, no punctuation, no breaks between the sentences or anything like that. All right. And then this, this information, a total of 304,805 numbers is arranged into a matrix, again, with no punctuation, no spaces. But here's the key. And if you are a mathematician, you're going to understand exactly what I'm saying here. This is not a fixed matrix of X and Y coordinates. It is a dynamic matrix that changes with the queries. Now, this gets really, really, very sophisticated, very interesting. Okay, it is arranged initially into a matrix of 64 rows, 4,772 numbers each. 64 rows, 4,772 characters each. And then what happens is each time a query is made, the results of that query reposition the rest of the matrix to reflect the impact of that query. This is a dynamic matrix. This is so sophisticated. It only works with the Torah. Uh, the researchers tried uh, popular books uh, of war and peace, big books of war and peace, Moby, uh, Moby Dick. Uh, they tried the, the phone books. Back in the old days, we used to have printed telephone books. And what I'm going to share with you only works with the first five books of the Christian Bible and the, and the, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, this dynamic, multidimensional matrix. So once this matrix, this dynamic matrix is in place, it's in a computer, then there are very complex algorithms that will search for patterns. And they will do so using what are called ELS sequences, equidistant letter search sequences, or ELS algorithms. These are very, very cool. Rabbis used to do this manually, and it said that it made them crazy. There are rabbis that literally went crazy doing this with a quill pen and and parchment, but they knew the codes were in there before computers were ever developed. So what is an ELS code? It's also called a skip code, and that's the way I'm going to refer to it. A skip code is a number 
that identifies how many space, how many letters you will pass over before you grab one of the letters in uh, in the matrix. So you begin with a letter, and then the skip code tells you how many letters you will go until you grab the next letter and how many letters you'll go until you grab the next letter. So, for example, a skip code of 10, you would begin with the letter that you've chosen, and then you would go 10 letters and grab that letter, 10 more letters and grab that letter to determine the sequence. And those letters uh, would, if it was the correct skip code, it would give you, it would reveal a meaningful message coming from uh, the biblical text. So let me give you an example, and this is an example that rabbis have known for a long time. They, they originally discovered this manually, and it's in the book of Genesis that the, the name of the Torah is actually encoded into the book of Genesis using a skip code of 50. So remember, Genesis is the first book of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the way this works is the first T... Uh, so the top line that you're seeing on your screen is read from your right to your left. This is the way that the Hebrew is, uh, is read. There are no vowels. Specifically, there are uh, vowels that are implied. All right? So there will be no O because O is a vowel. So the first T that we see from that T, if we use a skip code of 50 and you go to the left, there's no there, there are no other Ts. And then you go to the right and you begin on the second lot level. And the, on the 50th letter, there is the O. And then you do the same thing again. You go 50 more and there's the R. You go 50 more and there's the H. Remember, there is no, no O because uh, it is a vowel. So using a skip code of 50, the word Torah shows up in, uh, in the book of Genesis, early in the book of Genesis. There are very complex algorithms that are used to do this and computer programs. And right now, to the best of my knowledge, those programs are only working on PCs. They're not made for the Mac. There is a way that you can, uh, you can use software on the Mac to make the Mac look like uh, a PC. And then you can run the code under that. It's a little complex to do that. But I want to give you an example. What you're seeing is a screenshot of some of those uh, search algorithms on the actual Torah code. And what you're seeing, and the, the only reason I'm, we're not going to read this, we'll, we'll read some other ones. But what I want you to see, and what I want you to see here, is that the codes can be vertical. They can go top to bottom, bottom to top, the search. It can go left to right, right to left, and it can also go diagonally. And what happens is when a meaningful letter sequence or a phrase or a word is found within a certain distance of another word it is called statistically significant. You know, I mean, if it's, you know, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters, it probably doesn't mean much. But when these words are in close proximity or when they actually cross one another, and you'll see this, this is where the messages begin to appear. Now, this whole concept was, was made popular, brought to the public attention in the mid-90s, uh, specifically, and then with a book in 97 by uh, a, a man, a journalist named Michael Drosnan. Sadly, Michael Drosnan has passed, so he is no longer involved in this, but it is through his journalism that he published this first book called The Bible Code, 
and I believe four uh, four other books following uh, Bible Code one, two, three, and and four to bring us up to date on what was happening in the world. And the, the way that he did it was very profound because in the Bible Code there was uh, uh, a series of sequences saying that the Israeli Prime Minister at the time in the 90s would be assassinated. Now, some of you I know uh, have not learned about this in school. Others of you weren't alive when this was happening. So I'll, I'll just go over this very briefly as an example. And then we'll use this example to go through other uh, queries very, very quickly once you understand how this works. So the Israeli Prime Minister uh, between 1983 and 1995, his name was Yitzhak Rabin. He was a man of peace. And he, if you know him, or if his name is familiar, you may remember uh, that he worked with, uh, under the, the guidance of Bill Clinton. When Bill Clinton was our president, uh, Bill Clinton was the one that got Yasser Arafat, the, uh, the Palestinian, the leader of the Palestinians on the right-hand side, and uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister on the left, he got them together for the, the peace accords, or called the, I believe it's the Oslo Peace Accords, where the two men, in principle, agreed to create a peace. This is the closest we've ever come to peace between these two uh, these two factions that are our brothers and sisters in blood, and uh, and they truly are. They have the same heritage, and this is the closest we ever came. There were people that did not want that peace to happen, and one of those uh, individuals was a man that uh, that assassinated Yitzhak Rabin. Rabin, and he did it on November 5th, 1995. The reason I'm sharing this is because the Bible code said that when, it, when the query was made, uh, Michael Drosnan was working with the mathematicians and they saw the assassination November 5th, 1995. And they warned Yitzhak Rabin that this would happen. He listened to their warnings and he believed in the Torah code. And he said, if it's in the code, then it's meant to be. And I'm not going to change my plans. I'm paraphrasing. He went forward with uh, his day as he had planned his day. And the man that was identified in the Torah at the time of day that was identified in the Torah on the street that was identified in the Torah, uh, in fact, took the life of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. That was what brought the Bible code into the headlines. Uh, that the fact that it so accurately described this event. So what I'm sharing with you here, uh, uh, this is a highlight, and I'm going to go to a computer screen. What you're seeing here is a portion of the Torah matrix. All right, Yitzhak Rabin is in the red. I just want you to see how uh, how these codes are revealed. Is in the red, so you see him vertically and crossing him. It's not even; it's nearby. It's crossing him. Assassin who will assassinate actually crosses his name. Now, the bigger picture, there's a lot more information, and I want to share this with you. Here is the screenshot, and uh, they're using geometric forms to highlight the different words. So in, in the circles, the name of Yitzhak Rabin is on a diagonal. You see that. The name of the assassin who will assassinate crosses him. So it says an assassin will assassinate and it crosses his name. The assassin's name is in the uh, the truncated pyramid in the upper left 
the name and his name that says his name and his name is on that same line to the right. His name is Amir. And in fact, Amir is the name of the assassin that took Yitzhak Rabin's life. So the question is, how could that information have been in a 3,000-year-old text? Well, what the, the scientists did, they said, what if Yitzhak Rabin had postponed his tour that day? He was on a, uh, he was doing a, essentially a parade. What if he postponed that parade? So they entered the query into the Bible code, and it still said, name of assassin who will assassinate, name of the assassin was Amir Yitzhak Rabin, but then it says assassination delayed. So if Yitzhak Rabin had postponed, he would have lived that day, perhaps uh, not on uh, to another day because it said assassination was delayed. So these are the kinds of things that are showing up. And then the scholars began to go back and look at history and see what else could possibly be in this Bible code, in this Torah code. And the answer is everything. Everything, any any event that you put in there is going to show up. These are major events. Here you see the, the atomic holocaust in Hiroshima. In the circles, vertically, you see atomic holocaust. The triangles, you see Japan. The years in the squares crosses the atomic holocaust. It is the Hebrew year 5705, which translates into the Julian year, the Christian year 1945. So 1945 actually crosses and this is the only place this happens in the Bible code. There is nowhere, when all the queries are run, there is nowhere that says that this will happen as it did. During the Cold War years, there was a, a potential in the mid-1980s, and all the queries have been run since that time. Nowhere does it say nuclear holocaust, atomic holocaust. So I'm saying this because many people are concerned that we're going to have an all-out global war with mushroom clouds on every horizon. And I'm not saying that we couldn't have a limited nuclear exchange. I hope not. Um, I hope and I believe that cooler heads will prevail. But if that happened, that is not an all-out holocaust. That would be uh, a, a limited, it's called a ta tactical nuclear exchange. It's a horrible, it's a horrible term that has been coined in military circles. There are what are called tactical nuclear weapons designed to be used on the battlefield much smaller in scale than what happened in, in Hiroshima. Uh, very sad uh, that anyone would even put the time and energy in developing a weapon like that called a tactical nuke. So that's my personal feeling. It's not my science. So this is this is how this works. And they began looking at other things. John F. Kennedy, the assassination of President John Kennedy. Here his name is in circles uh, vertically. Uh, to die is actually in the same circle. The city of Dallas, where he was assassinated, is in there. Uh, and it goes on in more detail in other codes. It tells the name of the assassin, the street, the time of day, how it happened. Here it is. Uh, name of the assassin is Oswald. You're seeing in the diagram. I forgot that I put this in there. Uh, Oswald is uh, in the circles. He was a marksman. You see that in the, the diamonds. Name of the assassin who will assassinate. Very similar to what you saw at Yitzhak Rabin. 9-11, uh, before it happened. And this is, this is really amazing. Here you see the Twin Towers vertically in the center in the circles. It knocked down in a truncated, um, it's almost like a trapezoid. 
that you see twice, it happened two times, airplane is in there, and then the more detailed, uh, more detailed query, you actually see the name of bin Laden is in the green on the right-hand side of, of the code there. Attack, uh, thousands die. So you get the sense for how this works. It, not only bad things, a lot of good things. The uh, Torah codes described Obama's election. Here they say Barack Obama. Uh, the, they give his name. His name is spelled out in blue in Hebrew. Uh, he's president, and you see that in the Pentagon's. Uh, Barack, his name is on there. Islamic affiliations, his name is on, is in there. In the USA, is all in there. Okay? So, I'm going to make a point here because the Bible code doesn't predict, and I want to be really clear. You'll hear me say this again. It doesn't predict. If you know what to ask, it will reveal the relationships. But it is not predicting what will happen. So when the queries were made in hindsight, it was easy to to choose the words and the keywords. It's, a, it's kind of like a search algorithm in Google. You know that uh, you get pretty good at refining the kinds of, of keywords to help you better find what you're looking for in Google. In this software, the, the way that the, the queries are entered uh, in hindsight, can help us to know what the, the code knew about all of this. But the thing is, you have to ask the question. It's not predicting blanket. You know, these things are going to happen. You've got to know what question to ask, number one. Number two, the query must be made in the Hebrew language because it is being queried against the Torah. Now, there are ways to translate English into Hebrew so that you can make the query into Hebrew. But the algorithm has to have a query in, in the Hebrew language. Now, the reason I'm, I'm going through all of this is the point I'm going to make right here. Because the Bible code always tells us that we always have a choice. Our fate is never sealed unless we choose to seal our fate. We are never destined to a dark outcome unless we choose that outcome. Because any choice that we make, Prior to that outcome creates the bifurcation that takes us onto a different path, onto a different timeline, thus avoiding those outcomes. Here's a perfect example of what I'm going to say here. In the year 2000, there was a threat of a nuclear annihilation for Israel. It's being made by some of Israel's enemies. So the, the Hebrew year 5760, the uh, Julian year 2000, Holocaust of Israel, it says it was delayed. Look at this. In the year 1996, the same thing. It says, will you change it? Right there. And I highlighted this in red. And you will find this frequently in the Torah codes, in a place near the most frightening, the most frightening statements that are in there. Uh, nuclear Holocaust. Uh, Atomic, atomic Holocaust, for example, like you're seeing here. Will you change it? The code itself is telling us that we always have a choice. The key is we must act upon our choice. We must make the choice of peace. We must make the choice to avoid the darkest scenarios. 
that uh, are, are depicted in these codes, and that is true of any prophecy. The Hopi prophecy tells the same thing. The Incan prophecy tells us the same thing. Tibetan prophecies tell us the same thing. All they can tell us is what may happen if nothing changes. They're looking at probabilities in time and space. As we embrace our power, our power to choose, our power to influence these quantum realities, by doing that as individuals and by doing it collectively, we are shifting those timelines to avoid those darkest those darkest moments. And as I said, uh, unless something has changed, all of the Torah codes that from the, the experts that I've seen, that I've worked with, and I've been a student of this, I've studied this since the 90s myself. We've done whole workshops on this. I do not see anything in there about a nuclear holocaust or atomic holocaust beyond uh, the end of the Cold War. So of all the things you have to worry about, and there are a lot of things out there, maybe that one can have a little less priority for you. I want you to know that you're in the Torah code because everyone is. Every name of every person that's ever been entered is in the Torah code. The city that you're born, where you live your life, uh, who, who your partners are in life, it's all in there. And you say, how can that be? How can that possibly be? And the answer to that, it's a deep mystery. It goes back to what Einstein said uh, early on, is that the past, present, and future all exist simultaneously. So somehow, three over 3,000 years ago, and this is the way as a scientist I choose to think of this, you've seen me talk in past programs about the very real possibility that we are living in a simulated reality or a virtual reality, that we are living a simulation, learning something about ourselves, learning about the power of love, learning about the power of human emotion, learning about the power of good and evil. And I say that because those are the dominant themes playing out in our world. The ancient theme of good and evil has been playing out since the beginning. The power of love to transcend hate and to transcend our hurt and heal and the power of human emotion to elicit that love. Those are all factors uh, that I personally believe are, are dominant factors. If we're learning anything in uh, a simulated world, I believe this is what we're learning. Now, the Bible code itself says that the code cannot be understood until what is called the end of time, not the end of the world, not the end of the world like so many people thought 2012 was. 2012 wasn't the end of the world. We're not living the end of the world now. We may be living the end of a certain kind of time and moving into a, a different kind of time, a new kind of time. What the Bible code says very clearly is that we will only be able to read the code in the at the end of time when computers, and the word computer is in the code when computers can unlock the codes. This comes from the book of Daniel, actually, is where this is. So the information in the Bible code was shut up and the words were sealed until the end of time. And it's at the end of time, and look at the, in the circles, computer, the word computer actually crosses to shut up the words and seal the book until the end, you can't see it's cut off here, but the end of time. 
All right. So we now have the computers. We are living, according to the Mayan traditions, the end of one cycle of time and the beginning of a new cycle. Time may mean something different to us. Our world is changing. Our world may mean something different. But it's only now that we have the wisdom to understand the algorithms, to create those algorithms, and we have the machines to run those algorithms against the code. The book of Daniel says it's only now that we can read this because it's been shut up and sealed for our protection up until this time. Now our computers, our high-speed computers, are allowing us to go through all of these possibilities. Here's the quote that I was sharing with you. Einstein said, time does not flow in only one direction. The future exists simultaneously with the past. This has always been one of the mysteries in physics. It feels to us like we can only go from the present into the future. However, mathematically and in terms of quantum principles, there's nothing that prevents us from moving backward in time. It simply is that time appears to be flowing forward and I mentioned in an earlier program that physicists believe that is linked to the Big Bang. The Big Bang is the expansion that began our universe that continues today. With that expansion moving outward, is that's where time and space-time were created with that expansion. So if our experience of time and space is linked to the expansion of the universe because the universe is still expanding outward. That would explain why time is dominant in the, that direction from the present into the future. If the universe were, uh, were collapsing, which at some point in our distant future, theorists believe it will, that it will stop expanding and it will begin to collapse. In Hindu traditions, this is the breath of Brahma. Brahma is exhaling right now. That's the expansion, time-space, moving from present to future. When Brahma begins the inhale, then the universe begins to contract. Time will go in reverse. That's got to be a pretty weird experience. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want you to think about this in terms of something to be concerned about this week or next week. Uh, I see no evidence to support that. But I want you to know that Einstein says time does not flow in only one direction. If the future exists simultaneously with the past, then we can think of the Bible code and the Torah code as a map of quantum possibilities that were laid down three, over 3,000 years, 3,200 years ago. Possibilities only helping us to understand the consequence of our choices. And each time we make a choice, each time I make a choice and you make a choice, we're changing that Torah code. And every time our nations make a choice, we're changing it. So that code in the quantum realm is in constant motion. It's constantly shifting and rearranging that code. And that's how it can accommodate every name and every possibility of every event that has ever happened, like the rabbi said early on. All that is... All that was, is, and will be is in this map of time. It's a mind blower. It is a mind blower, and this is why I wanted to talk to you about it today. So the Torah is a quantum map of all possibilities. Now, I want to be really clear on this. Scientists believe that we have an incomplete understanding of the Torah code. The reason they believe that is because the information appears fragmented. All right, and you saw that. 
You've got a piece here that crosses a piece here. They're not contiguous sentences. So we are still unraveling the mystery of the Torah code. So what I want to say, and I want you to hear this very, very clearly, uh, that what the, the Bible code, the Torah code is saying, it does not predict a precise outcome. It can tell you of outcomes that have occurred. It doesn't predict. It can give you only potential outcomes, only possibilities. The key is you've got to know what question to ask for the query to reveal the interconnected relationships. You have to know what those connections are. <clears throat> and the queries have to be, as I mentioned, in uh, in the Hebrew language. So I personally uh, am in awe of the, the code itself. I'm in awe of the mathematicians and the statisticians that have designed the algorithms that are able to even begin to make sense of this code. I'm in awe that we have in our possession on this planet, a mysterious artifact that was revealed to us over 3,000 years ago that may hold the map of all possibilities on the quantum level if we are, in fact, living in a quantum simulation. It makes sense. If this is a virtual reality, if this is a simulation, and as I mentioned in the other programs, the recent algorithms uh, tell us that the odds are better that we are in the simulation that we're not. The odds over 90% that you and I physically exist in another realm. And the reason we are essentially empty space, we are made of atoms. 50, well, 50 trillion cells in the human body, approximately 100 trillion atoms in each of those cells, and every one of those atoms is over 99. Nine 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 percent empty space. The energy gives us the illusion of being solid, but really there's not much of us here. And when you put all of that together, if we are in fact living in a simulation, it makes perfect sense that who or whatever is responsible for our simulation would have left us a code or a key or a map to inform us of the possibilities and our relationships to those possibilities and consequences of our choices. That's what I personally believe that is being revealed in the Bible code, in the Torah code. So what does that say to us? What it says that we're not locked into anything that's in that code. We are limited only by what we allow ourselves to imagine and to choose in this field that we find ourselves in. So I've run over a little bit longer than I typically would, but I felt it was important um, to flesh out some of these ideas. And again, this is just the beginning. There is so much, so much to these codes. You wrote, you ask, and I'm answering. And I hope that what we've done today helps, number one, to bring a little clarity to what you may have heard about the Bible codes. Number two, I hope it brings you some peace because there are people out there using a Bible code to frighten other people, to say, look, this is what it says is going to happen. Uh, again, uh, I'm going to invite you always go back with any prophecy, any prophecy. Here's an exercise for you. Always go back and think of those words. Will you change it? Will you change it? The intelligence that left the Torah codes informed us that we always have a choice and that we're not locked into any of those dark outcomes and that opens the door to the deep truth of the most beautiful possibilities that we can imagine.
And with that, I'm going to close this section of this Q&A, a long answer to a short question uh, that came from many people about the Bible codes and the Torah codes. Thank you for sharing part of your day with me today. I look forward, as always, to our next. Okay. And we are going to move on to Greg Braden and Eric Von Daniken, Exploring the Forbidden Science of Human Evolution. Hello everybody, my name is Eric von Däniken, I am the author of Chariots of the Gods and some other books, and I am very proud to interview today Greg Braden. He is a five-time New York Times bestselling author, he is a scientist of course, Greg, Greg's research has led to 15 film credits and 12 award-winning books published in 40 languages. He is a nominee for the Templeton Award and he is, and so on and so on. He is a brilliant man and I call him his genius. Greg, looking back at your career from problem solver for many companies to science and spirituality, how did your journey begin? Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. A lot of times people ask me, uh, how I made what they believe is a quantum leap from the worlds of corporations and technology into, into the kinds of things we're talking about, into ancient civilizations and spirituality. And I have to say, for me, it was less of a leap and more of a progression. It simply made sense. I'm a scientist. I'm a systems thinker. I'm a problem solver. And rather than doing that for the corporations, I felt like it was a good thing to do for humanity, for our planet. Uh, through my scientific studies, I recognized that Earth is in a, a very rare and precious point in the history of our planet. And our civilization is in a, a rare and precious moment. We're making decisions now that will affect and influence and determine the fate of our entire species. And uh, there's there's a little side note here, uh, Eric. When, when I was making these decisions, I was working as a, a senior computer systems designer during the Cold War years. The Cold War was one of the most frightening times in the history of our planet when the, the former superpowers came very, very close to doing the unthinkable and unleashing nuclear weapons on the on the civilian populations. And I've always believed, Eric, that if we know where to look into the past and if we know how to recognize what our ancestors have left for us, that we would find a secret that would save us from the suffering and the wars of the 20th century. So my journey, uh, my training was as a scientist in the corporations, but I chose to apply that beyond the corporations, to solving the deepest mysteries of, of human existence and hopefully revealing the, the answers that will help us 
to preserve our humanness, to, will help us to preserve life and to thrive and to honor one another in peace on this planet. And I, I think it's worth a lifetime. It's worth a lifetime to dedicate to something like that. You know, I'm, I'm fully understand you. I'm fully on your side. You know my passion for extraterrestrials. I, for myself, I am sure that thousands of years ago, this planet Earth was visited by extraterrestrials. They beheld themselves like today's ethnologists would do. They studied a few groups. They uh, teach a few of the humans, uh, probably in astronomy and probably in some other techniques. And then they left the planet again with, with the promise to return in the far future. Now, what do you think about this idea? Is my idea possible or do you think it's all nonsense? Uh, it is not only not nonsense, but the, the theory, the theory of us uh, being influenced by a higher intelligence is now where the evidence is leading. The best science of the modern world is now leading us here. And I, I have to say my, my primary degree is as an earth scientist. I'm a degree geologist but I, uh, in geophysics, but I have a strong background in life sciences. So molecular biology, molecular chemistry, math, physics, computer science, and archaeology. And I say that because it is that multidisciplinary background that allows me to stay current with the new discoveries. And I have to tell you, the technology is pushing the discoveries so quickly, and they're simply not being shared in the, in the mainstream media. So many of these discoveries, they're, they are, they're peer-reviewed, peer-reviewed discoveries, but they are published in very obscure scientific journals. It's very difficult for the average person to, to read these. And what they're what they're telling us, Eric, uh, and I have to be very honest, I uh, I am not against the theory of evolution. Uh, as a geologist, I've seen evolution in the fossil record uh, for plants, insects, and animals. However, the science now tells us that evolution is not the human story. The theory of evolution breaks down when it comes to the emergence of what are called anatomically modern humans 200,000 years ago. Now, I'm, I am fascinated by this. I, uh, I'm, I have also spent much of my adult life uh, studying with ancient and indigenous traditions who have always told me in, in their traditions that we are the product of an ancient intervention <clears throat> from from higher intelligence. Well, where the science is right now, I just want you to know where the science is, the reverse engineering of human DNA, of our genome, is telling us that we underwent a series of mutations 200,000 years ago that cannot be attributed to evolution. And those mutations, <clears throat> excuse me, those mutations are what accounts for our uh, our, our larger brain and the, the essence of what we cherish as humans, our ability for empathy and sympathy and compassion and the ability to self-regulate our bodies. All of this is because of chromosome number two, chromosome number seven and the fusions and the, the, uh, the tweaking that happened in a very brief period of time. 
<clears throat> did not happen slowly, gradually over a long period of time. So it's telling us that we need a new story, and your story is supporting what the evidence now is telling us. So I, I wanted to finish yep. that thought so we can tie yeah, it. Uh, you know, I am very familiar with these old holy writings with many books of uh, thousands of years ago. And just to remember one example, even the Bible says that the gods created humans according to their own image. So the gods made us according to their own image. This does not discredit the evolution. Of course, there is evolution, but not only. Somebody has intervened in our evolution. And this is brand new. I am very happy to hear that you have a similar meaning in this direction. So we have to learn. We are not only humans. We have a mix. We are a mixture of something. You know, Eric, the, the new archaeological discoveries coming out of Mexico and the Yucatan, uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, are actually reflecting what, what you're saying. They are they are showing images of our relationship to uh, to other worlds. They're showing diagrams of our solar system perfectly showing the dimensions of the planets, the rings around Neptune that we only discovered in the 20th century are in these archaeological artifacts, and they are showing the birthing process of, of humans that have been influenced by these other intelligences. And so, it, if, if it were only one or two artifacts, you could say maybe it's a hoax. We're talking about thousands, three, four thousand artifacts that are depicting this uh, this same process. I fully agree with you. By the way, uh, coming to uh, Egypt, Herodotus, you know, the Greek historian, he visited Egypt roughly two and a half thousand years uh, uh, back from now. And in his second book, he says that the priests in Egypt showed him 241 statues, and they said, these statues represent more than 11,000 years of, of Egyptian history. But according to our knowledge, Egypt's history is not older than roughly 3,000 BC. Do you think Egypt had an earlier civilization? Oh, I most definitely think that uh, Egypt, Egypt is a hybrid of ancient uh, as a geologist, uh, pre-Ice Age or Ice Age, pre-flood civilization, and then some of the classical civilization that was built around it. Uh, as a geologist, what we can say, and, and I was in Egypt, uh, I used to lead groups into Egypt during the late 80s, early 90s, uh, for 15 years. And uh, we were with geologists who were sampling, for example, the Sphinx. Uh, and as you know, the erosion patterns on the Sphinx cannot be attributed to wind that we would expect today. It's called uh, fluvial erosion, which means a lot of water running quickly over a long period of time. That has not happened in Egypt since the ice melted, and that is uh, between ten and 12,000 years before present. So the geologic record supports this, uh, you know, culturally. Culturally, it's difficult for my, I talk to my Egyptian friends about this all the time. And it's, it's difficult culturally because they say that their religious tradition says Earth is 6,000 years old. What does it mean 
if the evidence that their civilization is twice that old is found in their own land. And they said, this is a problem. We will deal with it at some point. We don't need this additional problem now because the tensions are so high in this part of the world. So they said, we will acknowledge, we will deal with this at some point down the road. And I think they have to. The geology supports this. I was a member of the American Association of Petroleum Geologists back in the 1980s. And the studies from the Sphinx were published in this peer-reviewed journal of AAPG. And the geologists have absolutely no problem with the evidence. They say, of course, this is obviously fluvial erosion. It's obviously much older than we've been led to believe. The geologists have no problem. The historians have a huge problem. I know you are one of these personalities who have worked also at the Sphinx. Are there chambers under the Sphinx or not? What do you think? Definitely there are chambers under the Sphinx. You know, the Sphinx has undergone many modifications. When I was in Egypt in 1986, for example, there are doorways on the rump on the rear of the Sphinx that go down under the Sphinx. And there are passages, I think you've probably seen the photographs or maybe you've been there, behind the neck of the Sphinx that go down into the Sphinx itself, as well as the chambers under the causeway that lead down to what is called the Tomb of Osiris and the water table. The last time I was there, the groundwater was too high. We couldn't go all the way down, but the ladders continue down. And what all of this says, the earth penetrating radar is showing very clearly that there is a honeycomb of chambers and tunnels under the Giza Plateau, not just under the Sphinx, but under the entire Giza complex. You know, you worked as a geologist and you say all geologists agree that the Sphinx must be much older. Why have archaeologists the problem to accept these dates of geologists? Why can they not accept what you are science? They believe they can prove. Well, some do and some don't. You know, as a scientist, I have always seen this. There are always two schools of scientists. There are some scientists that believe that science is static. And what I mean by that is when an agreement is in place, that it will always be the agreement. It will never change. But science is a dynamic way of knowing. Science is not static. If we want to keep science alive, we have to keep science honest. And science is designed to be constantly updated with new discoveries as they come to light. So often, Eric, people ask me, you know, what is the reason? And it boils down to four things. It's money, power, ego, and habit. My professor, my college professor friends, they believe that if they were to teach what the new discoveries are showing, whether it's the archaeology of Egypt or the biology of human evolution, they believe if they teach the new discoveries that it invalidates 
their career 40 or 50 years. And I, I tell them, no, I said, if you teach young people the new discoveries, then you are demonstrating how relevant science is. And if you say to those young people, we do not know the answer, that is how you excite young people. Their eyes will light up and well, they'll say, ah, there's a mystery. Maybe I can solve that mystery. Exactly. Yeah, but if, 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 you, if you tell them we have all the answers, just memorize what's in the book, you know. No, but, but you just say, somehow reminds me of Professor Avi Loeb with his book, Extraterrestrials. I just had an interview with him a few uh, days ago, and he says similar things to you. Science has not to be stubborn. Science has to be open to exactly what you say, by the way. Now, I know you are also an Egyptologist, also not a, a professor in archaeology and Egyptology. What about the Great Pyramid? I mean, was it really built by Cheops, or do you think it's the Great Pyramid as the Sphinx? Much older? Uh, so that's two questions. Yeah. And the, the first question, I believe that the, the Giza complex, uh, the primary portions of the Giza complex, so the Sphinx, uh, the pyramids are much older. There are, are more recent structures that were built around. But the, the, uh, the pyramids themselves. Now, when I was there, Eric, in, in 1989, there was a, a scientific team from the U.S. that was given access, rare access, to, uh, to a portion of the Great Pyramid to answer this question. And they were allowed to drill core samples into the casing stones. So the casing stones are, are limestone. We know that. And as a geologist, what I can say to you is that natural limestone will always have stratification uh, because of the layers of how it was deposited. It will have microfossils, even if you can't see them with the naked eye. There will be remains of, uh, of, of microfossils in, in, you know, in the natural rock. When the core samples were, were drilled and then they were analyzed, the results shocked the scientists because they did not find the stratification. The, the stone was completely homogenous. There were no uh, microfossils. What they found were air bubbles, remains of insects, and even human hair. And what they, what they concluded is that those stones, some of them 20-ton stones, the mystery has been how did they get up high and why are they so perfect and, and the, the tolerance between the stones less than one one thousandth of an inch. It appears that at least for the limestone casing stones, they were using a technology that we did not even know existed until the 20th century. It's called liquid stone. Okay. And, and the way it's created is you take the natural limestone, it is limestone, and you pulverize it, and you mix the limestone with an epoxy matrix so that it is a very viscous consistency, and the stones are actually poured in place. And that's how you get the high tolerances, that's how you get the perfect shape, that's how you're able to build. Uh, and now that we, we know this happened at least in some of the stones in Egypt, 
I've spent a lot of time in Peru. We see the same thing in Sacsayhuaman. We see the same thing in um, uh, some of the temples in, in Peru, Tiwanaku, for example. I know. And other places. That's yeah, so this is, this is a, it's a mind blower because this technology is actually harder than the native stone. And artists have used this in the past. And Saddam Hussein tried to use this technology to build bunkers in 1990 before the, the first Gulf War because it would harden the bunkers more than the concrete that, that they were trying, trying to use. So, yeah. so how did they get the technology? And there are actually images in Saqqara. There are hieroglyphs in Saqqara that show the epoxy being mixed, the molds, and carrying this epoxy uh, up into, pouring it into the molds. Absolutely sensational. But, you know, I am very familiar in the highland of Peru and Bolivia. For example, Tiwanaku, Apumapunku. And there we have gigantic stone blocks. And I know the ancient writings, you know, when the Spanish conquerors come up there, they stood just together with the Incas. And even the, the, the king of the Inca was there, and they said to the Spanish conquerors, we did not make these blocks. They were made by another civilization. When we arrived, they were here already. And the Incas said they were made in one night. Now you cannot move these blocks in one night. But when we use your knowledge, what you just say, liquid stone, then it would make sense. They could have done it in one night. So that's very fascinating. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, so what I find so interesting, Erica, I have had the, I've been blessed in my life to be able to, to travel and explore some of the most ancient and isolated and remote and beautiful and pristine places remaining on the earth from, from the highlands of central China and the Tibetan monasteries in Nepal and India and the Bedouins of, of Egypt and all through the Yucatan and the Andes of southern Peru and the American desert southwest and, and so much more. And as different as all of these cultures are, the aboriginals of Australia, as different as they are from one another, there's a common theme that brings them all together. And that common theme, every single one, everyone says that we are the product of a greater cosmology, of a greater cosmic family, and that we, uh, that we are part of this family, not separate from this family. It's only modern science that believes that we are the product of what is called lucky biology or an accident. Uh, of random mutations. But this is why the, the discovery I, I began talking about earlier in this conversation is so important because they can't deny this. I, I think the smoking gun is human chromosome number two. So human chromosome number two, it's, it's the second largest chromosome in the human body and it is fused. It is the product of two pre-existing fully intact chromosomes being fused into one longer chromosome. But it's not just the fusion, because after the fusion occurred, there are genes that were removed, genes that were added, and genes that were they were changed. They were tweaked to stabilize that fusion in a way that cannot happen under natural conditions. 
This happened 200,000 years ago. In the Proceedings for National Academy of Sciences, the volume is called Genetics. Uh, they acknowledge that the fusion occurred. They acknowledge that it, it cannot be the product of, uh, of, of a, uh, an evolutionary process. Now, if that were the only, only anomaly in, in the genome, you could say maybe, maybe it could be lucky. But at the same time, human chromosome number seven was tweaked. There were, were two little genetic letters, Eric. 75 million years, these letters are stable in all mammals and including primates. Okay. And 200,000 years ago, there was a little, just, just this little switch of two letters that connect our tongue and our brain and our jaw that gave us the ability for complex speech and information. And it happened exactly at the same time. It was not a slow, gradual process uh. over long periods of time. So it's now not we, a coincidence. Definitely well, we, not. We did not even understand how that could happen until modern genetics developed a technology called CRISPR. And yes. CRISPR is a, a gene editing technology, as you know, just like you edit the, uh, the, the words on in a word processor. They bring the D. I'm, I've got a large screen over here. That's why I'm looking. But they, they bring up uh, the DNA on a large screen and they can actually cut and paste the genes, and that appears to be what it is that is responsible for human chromosome 2. The result, a brain 50% larger than any other primates, the ability to self-regulate our biology, to upregulate and downregulate our own genes, sympathy, empathy, compassion, and all of the, the aspects that we cherish as, as humans is the result... Of, of whatever happened 200,000 years ago. So, so. But, but you know, today, what you just tell me is absolutely reasonable. It makes completely sense. For me, it's definitely logical. But what does the scientific community, in this case, the genetics, what do they say? Do they admit this? Are there publications in this direction? So here's, this is, this is where the problem comes in. Science can only tell us, Eric, how things work. Science can only tell us the nuts and the bolts of, of how something has occurred. They can't tell us why, because why implies intentionality and purpose. Science is not set up to, it's, it's not equipped to, to deal with intentionality and purpose. It can only tell us the mechanism. So the mechanism is acknowledged in the scientific community. As I said, in, in the proceedings for the National Academy of Sciences, there is a, a, a volume that is called genetics. And in, uh, in this volume, they say that these pre-existing chromosomes were fused in a way that cannot be accounted for in, through evolution, as we understand it today, through evolutionary processes. But then they have to stop. They have to stop because all they can do is tell us what happened. They cannot tell us. They don't know why or how. So this is my invitation. I have a book that was released um, in two, let's see, it was released in 2018. 
and it's called Human by Design. And it's an invitation for the scientific community to to follow the evidence. There, so this is where science is, Eric, and, and I run into this all the time. There's a huge difference between taking all of the new discoveries and forcing them into a pre-existing theory, which is what we're trying to do now. So they take all the new evidence and they try to force it into the theory of evolution for humans. There's a big difference between that and allowing the new evidence to lead to the story that it's revealing. It's a huge difference. And some of the younger scientists are more willing to follow the evidence. Some of the older scientists I've talked to in the universities, what they literally said to me, they said, we're going to leave it for the next generation. We don't want to deal with this problem. So they're going to continue teaching the uh, obsolete science based upon false assumptions to our young people. They're going to continue teaching that. Until they retire, and then yeah. the next generation comes in. Well, it becomes a scientific religion. You have to believe it. Science should not be a religion. Science should be a science open to everything. Greg, in your latest publication, uh, you speak, you draw much upon the teachings left by our ancestors who understood the power of prayer, chants, secret writings, etc. What inspired you to write this book? His latest, your latest publications. This goes back to um, the title of the book is called The Wisdom Codes. And that it goes back to earlier in this conversation. As a scientist, as I had the opportunity to spend time with the monks and the nuns and the abbots in Tibet, for example, and the yogis and, and the mystics and the sadhus in Nepal and India and the, the Kurandaros and the healers and the shamans in the Andes and the Yucatan, as a scientist looking at their culture, you cannot separate that culture from everyday life. You get to know these people. You have meals with them. You're with them when their parents die. You're with them when their babies are born. You're with them when marriages happen. And you get to know them as people, as humans, as brothers and sisters. And it was in that experience that I discovered that uh, as a scientist, that all of these cultures, Eric, have always had words that they turn to in times of need to help them, to give them strength, to give them reassurance in times of loss, to give them protection when they feel threatened. They've always had words and patterns of words, and they are preserved in their prayers in their mantras, uh, in the um, in the, the chants, in the hymns, in the, the Gnostic traditions, in, in the hymns, in all the languages, in, in Sanskrit, in Aramaic, uh, in the indigenous traditions. And my feeling was if these powerful patterns of words work for them, they'll probably work for us as well. Now, the new science in just the last few years is showing us uh, that the words that we speak determine not only how we think and solve our problems, but the words determine what we are even capable of conceiving, what we are even capable of thinking about. And the reason 
is because the words directly influence the way neurons wire and fire together. So for, yeah. So for, for example, the Hopi language is a language of unity and their neurons fire together and they see the world as a unified whole and then part of it. English happens to be a language of separation where there is there and here and you and me in the past and the future. And in Hopi, there, you, you cannot talk about the future and the past or there and here in Hopi because everything in the Hopi language is alive, it is present, and it is happening now. It's a very, very different way of thinking. So you, you explain all this in your newest publication, the, the Wisdom Codes. It's all in there. You... I, I do. It's all in the, the first chapter I talked. You know, there's a, a neuroscientist. Uh, I, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, so I'll do this from memory. There, but there's a neuroscientist. His name is Andrew Newberg, uh, MD, neuroscientist. And what he says is that a single word has the power to to upregulate or downregulate the genes that create stress in our bodies. One word can actually, a non-physical word can actually influence the physical biology, the genetics yeah. of our bodies. And when we begin to understand the power of the words, so here... Here's where it gets so interesting, Eric. The scientists tell us that the average person speaks to themselves about 60 to 70,000 times each 24-hour period. Wow. We're having a conversation, and the question is, what are we saying to ourselves, and are we speaking to ourselves in unity or separation, in conflict or in, in uh, coherence? And, and there's no right or wrong, but it's becoming aware of these abilities that help us to deal with life in a healthy way, ancient ideas that are now being borne out uh, by modern science in the laboratory. And, and the beauty is you don't have to know the science. We don't have to know the science, but the science is there if we want to know that science. Listen, Greg, I have one main question which I ask to every personality like you. What, in your mind, is the purpose of our life? Why do we live? Well, I'm glad you saved the easy question for last. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to, to answer that question, honestly, uh, I, I, I believe that we are here to experience. I believe that. But as a scientist, I'm going to answer this from a scientific perspective. The best science of the modern world is now opening the door to what in the past has been called forbidden territory. And the forbidden territory suggests, Eric, that our entire reality is some kind of a cosmic simulation or a virtual reality. Uh, the science support this. They, two major experiments were done, one in 2001, one in 2014. And the odds are, are over 90% that this is not what is called a base reality, that this is a simulated reality. Incredible. Now, as a scientist, what I know is that the purpose of a simulation is to learn something in the simulation that you're going to need when you leave that simulation. 
And all the ancient texts tell us that this is the illusion, this is the Maya, this is temporary, this isn't the real world. And all the ancient texts tell us that this world has a beginning and an ending, our life has a beginning and an ending, and that if we can learn the rules of this life, life becomes much easier. So I look at the themes, the big picture themes that are playing out, not, not the minutiae, but the big themes, and the big themes are about good and evil, about light and dark, about the power of love to transcend and heal our bodies and transcend the hurt and the suffering. And I think we are learning. The purpose of life is the experience. So all of our relationships and our jobs and our careers so, is, is teaching us to, okay. to find, to achieve this level of consciousness here in, in this world that apparently we're going to need in another world. And the evidence that you and I are talking about, the evidence of the archaeology and the evidence of, of the human genome, I think that evidence supports that there is another world that we are connected to. It could be in this universe. It could be in time. We could be looking at the, our future selves coming back and helping us now so that we don't have the suffering in the future. Maybe maybe that's what's on those artifacts. So there, it's a deep conversation uh, to end this conversation with, but I believe ultimately we're here to learn, uh, and I think love uh, is, is the foundational experience that transcends the hurt and the suffering. Listen, Greg Braden, we had more, now more than 40 minutes. You are a wonderful and very intelligent personality. For me, it was not only an honor, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Oh, Eric, I, it was an honor and a pleasure and a privilege for me to be with you. I've followed your work for years. You, you've influenced my work. I had your books with me when I took my first trip to Egypt. Oh, so you have been a part of my life for most of, uh, most of my life. And uh, I, I just want to thank you, Eric Von Doniken. I want to thank you for your courage, your wisdom, your dedication, your perseverance. Because it would be a lot easier to not do some of the things that you've done. But the question that comes back to me always is how can we solve the problems if we're not honest about the problems? And to be honest, we have to be honest with who we are, where we come from, and what our capabilities in this world really are. And you opened the door to that conversation when it was not popular, and you have been the foundation for so very long. So thank you for the opportunity and for your trust to be on your program today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Sooner or later, we will drink a glass of wine together. Goodbye. I look forward to that. All right. Thank, thank you so much. Okay, everyone. So there we I go. Got uh, oh, yes. There you are, Tara. Very good. <laughs> thank you, everyone. And thank you, Micah, for... Thank you so much. My pleasure. Playing that again, Sam, as we say. <laughs> and, yes, thank you so much, everyone. And um, Rama's got one more piece here. You're going to be hearing Greg Braden, but there's a few other things. It's called Geometry of Sound. That's what it's called. And we got to get started real quick here. Uh, 
What secrets of sound can be revealed through sacred geometry? From the Fibonacci sequence to plutonic solids and snowflakes, examples of sacred geometry as visible representations of frequency are everywhere. Experts are like experts like Dr. Robert Gilbert, Dr. Jeffrey Thompson, Dr. Teresa Ballard, Greg Braden, Billy Carson, and Kimba Arem explore human innovations of sound from the revolutionary cymatics experiments of Swiss science scientist Hans Jenny to mystical instruments stretching across centuries, such as the monochord and the didgeridoo. Spanning time and disciplines, doctors, musicians, and authors agree that sound as uh, is, an, is as divine as geometry is sacred. Discover the innate links between vibrational structures of sound and frequential patterns of geometry. Here we go. This is 27 minutes. Here we go. philosopher Pythagoras believed that if we could unravel the connections between math and music, humanity could discover the mysteries of the universe. Yep. This harmonic connection takes root in what's known as sacred geometry. The term sacred geometry means the sacred measure of the earth. But what that was understood to mean in classical traditions is that there is an invisible blueprint from higher worlds that exists behind everything in the physical world. It goes from higher consciousness levels down to the level of energy and vibration, where it becomes a vibrational field, a vibrational matrix that in ancient traditions was called the net. The ancient scholars discovered specific geometric shapes that seem to be interwoven everywhere in the net. Five of these forms, the platonic solids, fit perfectly within a sphere. It's the perfect form because every point on the periphery of the sphere is exactly equidistant from the center, which is the divine plane, the unified field source. And so having that initial container for creation, we can then modify the vibration of that container by then putting particular divisions onto it. The very first of the platonic solids is the tetrahedron. Its angular sum is 720 degrees. Interesting as well that that 720 degrees is the foundational basis of all greater complexity in all geometric forms. Every geometry, no matter what structure or form, will always have angular sums that will be a multiple of 720 degrees. So we now know that the foundational basis of all higher dimensional solids in geometry will always also be related to the number 9. 7 plus 2 plus 0 equals 9. So then we go beyond the tetrahedron 
to the next structure, which is the cube. It has an angular sum of 2,160 degrees. Two plus one plus six equals nine. The next level will be an octahedron, 1440 degrees. Again, nine. We go on to the icosahedron, which has 3,600 degrees as its angular sum, showing an interesting relationship to the circle, the feminine. And then we take it to the next level with the dodecahedron, which is giving us 6,480 degrees as its angular sum, because it has 12 sides of five sides each. This is a very interesting thing to note because the icosahedron as well has this unique structure that is made specifically only of equilateral triangles. And from that, we have this 3,600 degree form that also becomes a dual style relationship with the dodecahedron. So the dodecahedron and the icosahedron have this very unique relationship. They're closely tied to each other. You could say one is sort of the subconscious of the other. The Greeks assigned an element of creation to each of these solids. The four that they would speak about publicly in the Greek school were the ones for earth, water, air, and fire. But the fifth element, the fifth platonic solid, they would not talk about publicly. It was forbidden for people in the school. In fact, they'd have to make an oath that they would prefer to be tortured and killed rather than reveal the secret of the fifth form. And that's the dodecahedron, which is the form that connects to the ether. And that's the dynamic life force that actually allows things to become alive and dynamic and actually animates the four previous elements. The number nine, which plays such a vital role in the formation of the platonic solids, has an intriguing connection to music. No matter what form or structure you go to in higher forms and hypercubes, you will always find the same consistency relational back to the number nine. And all of the notes of the platonic solids are as follows. 720 degrees, that's an F sharp. 2160 degrees of the cube, that's going to basically be a C sharp. So this is an important aspect to understand that all of the platonic solids and all of the polygons are just the same structure and form as what we see in nine-based mathematics and giving us the exact same notes that we find in the We can use modern physics to look at frequencies in another way. If you think of string theory as, you know, strings vibrating at the quantum scale, these vibrating structures would create an uh, interference pattern that uh, produce geometric relationships. These geometry are typically portrayed in these different traditions as symbology, right? So all kinds of symbols 
describing the geometry of space or the geometry that these vibrations produced as they created organization or organized matter into the space, which we call our reality, as it organized the material world. Living organisms are all an intricate part of this vibrational ensemble. Everything in existence is in harmonious sharing of sound frequencies and light. We can see this in rhythms of nature, such as tides, seasons, or in the human with the breathing, a heartbeat, brainwave. All systems in time have rhythms. Even time is a rhythm. Some sounds are harmonious, and some sounds are discordant. But there are no inherently good or bad frequencies or combinations of notes. In some cases, dissonance might be useful to dislodge stuck discordant patterns from a system. Always the intention behind the frequency or the sound will be the carrier wave of its effect. One of the simplest of musical instruments demonstrates the implicate harmony of the universe. The Greek philosopher Pythagoras envisioned that between the polarities of absolute spirit and absolute matter, a single monochord stretched across the spectrum of the universe. You'll find that the monochord was used in many illustrations from the Pythagorean school of Greece to communicate very deep secrets that they learned from the Egyptian temples. What it demonstrates is that when you hold down the string at a particular point and you pluck the string, you can analyze what is happening as the vibration that comes out of it. The monochord is basically like um, the neck of a guitar without the guitar. Two feet long, and it's got two bridges. And it's got this one string monochord with one tuning peg. Let's say the string when we pluck it is... 400 hertz. If I put my finger exactly at the halfway mark, each of those two strings is exactly one octave higher. Then if I start to put my finger on one-third or two-thirds or four-fifths or five-sixths or any of these fractional values, we have harmonics, harmonics and overtones. So that's geometry and music right there. So the monochord is essentially one note that can be divided into an infinite number of notes. The analogy of the monochord is alluded to in many esoteric lineages who speak to the creation of the one, which was then divided into the many, which is all of creation. There's an even older instrument than the monochord that demonstrates the spectrum of frequency. The didgeridoo is essentially one note, like the monochord, except it is played with the breath instead of a string. And it's interesting that the word for spirit and the word for breath in many languages, except English, is the same word. So the didgeridoo is essentially a monochord of the spirit made audible. 
Can we see the vibrations of spirit made visible? Thanks to a technology developed over the last century, the answer is yes. So this very powerful relationship between sound and pattern really was brought into focus when the emerging science of cymatics came into focus. The sound literally can move and shape matter. It started by Hans Jenny, who was using on a, on a plate, and then he put certain materials on there, maybe it was water, maybe it was sand, maybe it was clay, some, some type of material. And then he would pipe a certain uh, frequency across the plate. And what he observed under a microscope was that the sound interacted with the materia, and it started to move it and shape it. And each unique frequency that came across that plate interacted with that matter in a unique way. So it would create like a signature pattern within the materia. Some of the patterns that were formed just by a drop of water on the plate formed these beautiful mandalas. And what he saw was that the higher in frequency, the more complexity that we would find in the mandala. Because of the particular wavelength of the sound and the resonant frequency of the plate and the material that's on it, all of those acting together create a static appearance of a figure. And that figure can frequently be something that appears in nature, like the hexagonal crystal, or even occasionally like a snowflake if it's really adapted properly. But it's nothing more than vibration affecting material through resonance. Sacred geometric patterns also play an amazing role within the human body. The more you look into the measurements and the figures in the body, in other words, the distance between the eyes and the nose, the distance between the ears and the mouth, and the eyes and the top lip, for example, you start to find all of these different geometrical and mathematical shapes and figures. It's more than just geometric shapes that make biology a sacred system. There's also a harmonic relationship taking place with the cosmos. Nature is based upon the replication and duplication of only a very few patterns in rhythms and cycles. One of the most foundational is the phi or the phi ratio. We see this ratio, 1.618, in our body, the ratio from the tip of our finger to the first joint to the tip of our finger to the second joint to the tip of our finger to our hand, and from the tip of our hand to our wrist and our wrist to our elbow. The human body is a representative of the Great Pyramid, which is also a representative of a scaled-down version of the planet itself. So the human body is actually a representation of planet Earth if you scale it down. We have two arms, two legs, we have a head, so we have five major appendages. And if we look at that shape of the human spread out, we are the shape of a pentagram. The Vitruvian Man by Leonardo da Vinci is a great depiction of this, where you can see the proportions from the feet to the navel and to the, then to the top of the body. All of it is reflecting these sacred geometries, and in particular, this golden ratio. Think about Michelangelo. He thought, okay, let's do that in 3D. Let's do it in a sculpture. 
And if you've ever seen pictures of David, this thing is huge. It's not life-size. This is 20-foot tall, this thing. He made a sculpture where every iota of the measurement of that sculpture was the perfect divine proportions of what a human body would look like. It was perfect. The golden ratio is an irrational number, meaning that its terms go on endlessly after the decimal point without repeating. Those mathematical concepts are very special because they're irrational values that have infinite tails beyond their decimal extension. I think of, of mathematics as like a language from the context that the numbers are words, the mathematical constants are verbs of action. Just like when we append to a noun, an ing, it makes it an incomplete action. It continues on and is continuing on forever. So we can take a word like I text you or I'm texting you. I turn that noun, which is text, into a verb through that method. We do the same thing in the universal language of mathematics. We take a diameter and we circle the diameter. We're circling the diameter and turning that into a verb of action to make a circle. Looking at the piano keyboard, we can see two black keys followed by three black keys intertwined with eight white keys. The series two, three, five, eight is the beginning of the Fibonacci series. The ratios of these numbers all gravitating toward the irrational and perfectly reciprocal 0.618 ratio of the golden section or golden ratio. The spiraling nature of this phenomenon is also known as the Fibonacci sequence. You see the golden ratio show up in the spiral galaxy and, and the, the way that that spiral kind of grows and expands and expands versus just a circular spiral. It's, a, it's an ever-expanding spiral. You see that same spiral in the shape of, of various shells from the sea, the spirals on the cone of a pine cone or a sunflower. You also see it in the way that leaves and branches emerge on the trees. You see them following that Fibonacci sequence often. And all of it is according to the law that we see operating in music theory. It's all got to do with why music and chords and relations of vibration frequencies seem to be pleasing to us or have a powerful influence on us. From the perspective of piano, we have eight white keys. Eight is a Fibonacci number. If we extend that all the way out, the 55th key becomes the note G. That's also a Fibonacci number. And the 89th would be the beginning of the next piano cycle because we have 88 keys on a piano keyboard. The number eight plays a role in another important aspect of creation. Buckminster Fuller called the cuboctahedron, with its eight triangular faces and six square faces, the vector equilibrium. It's the only geometry in perfect equilibrium at the center. Physicist Nassim Hermain concluded that this must be the geometry of the vacuum. 
If they are stacked in unison with each other, we can create a perfect 64 tetrahedron. The number 64 is a very curious number as it appears throughout history. It's, it's a compound number. It's eight times eight equals 64. And an eight is the number of infinity. And we see this repeated over and over again. We see the number eight reflected in the energies of our kundalini. The ancient Egyptians believed that our brain essentially was a, a figure eight with energy just continually moving throughout. These fundamental oscillation of creation, as described in these ancient traditions, um, generated geometry from interference pattern. And many of these ancient cultures portrayed these geometry in their symbolism. And they described basically a triangulation of the space commonly demonstrated, for instance, in the Hawaiian traditions as a stack of triangles and in other traditions as uh, star-like structures, uh, triangles, and various geometries that were at the base of creation. In Hebrew tradition, Merkaba literally translates to light, spirit, and body. The Merkaba symbol is a shape made of two intersecting tetrahedrons that spin in opposite directions, creating a three-dimensional energy field. The Tree of Life, or the Kabbalah, is considered a map of consciousness and a geometric symbol of the universe. As we decode the Kabbalistic tree, again, we, we find the 64 tetrahedron or the sphere packing of the 64 tetrahedron structure. And that relates, for instance, to other symbols that we find in other cultures. For instance, the flower of life that's found on the Ozarian temple in, in Egypt seemed to be somehow imprinted on a 200-ton pillar in the middle of a very enigmatic temple. This symbolism, again, matched this 64 tetrahedron grid, which matched the equations of space-time that produce a unification of physics. From Africa and Europe to Asia, the 64 tetrahedron symbol has deep roots. There's the I Ching, for instance, having 64 symbols made out of six sticks each. The yin-yang, which seems to show the circulation of the space or the dynamics of the space, the polarization of the vacuum. Michael Hayes, the author of The Hermetic Code in DNA, studied the I Ching. He pondered on why there were eight by eight hexagrams in the symbol. And then he realized there are eight trigrams hidden in the human DNA strand. He began to wonder if the two offered a key to the code of life. Under the paw of the food dog is very specific geometries. Typically, it's a sphere that has an interference pattern on it that resembles the flower of life. And so, all of a sudden, 
you start to get a sense that this uh, geometry of the 64 tetrahedron grid that produced this interference pattern is fundamental and is the source of the knowledge that's being guarded. Where did this symbol originate? One theory is that an advanced civilization shared it with ancient cultures. It might have come from a much deeper tradition in which very advanced technology might have been present on our planet prior to our current evolution that is typically described as technology that is based on frequency, on oscillation, on sound. And so this is kind of coming together in an amazing way, actually more amazing than I could have ever imagined 35 years ago when I started to explore all these principles, both in advanced physics and in studying ancient civilization. To find that that was somehow already known in ancient civilization it is remarkable. The 64 tetrahedron is not the only pattern that demonstrates the infinite nature of the universe. Fractals are inherent through every scale of creation. A fractal is a reflexive, almost like a holographic uh, reiteration of a similar pattern superimposed on itself at a different scale of magnitude. There's a basic pattern that repeats itself over and over again in such a way that you can look at it at any scale and see the same pattern. The same pattern is present in one minute part of it as it is in the entirety of it. Yeah. And you can find this in certain nature forms that grow in practical patterns. You can also find it in the way the atmosphere moves. It creates a fractal pattern in larger and larger orders of magnitude. So you start off with a little disturbance, butterfly wings, and you end up with a tornado or a massive high-pressure system. Esoteric philosophers like Hermes made similar statements that we see now in the universe being a sort of fractal hologram where everything is reflected in everything else in miniature. So this concept of Hermes of as above, so below is pretty much what we see around us when we uh, think of patterns in the universe that look almost exactly the same as the pattern of neural connections in your cortex. So this idea of a connectome in the brain, that the neurons in my brain are connected to other neurons with axons, and the axons form these networks, and the networks have a higher order of geometric patterning that we see reflected almost exactly in the universe at large. What do all these geometries and frequencies have in common? The platonic solids, the plucking of the monochord, cymatics, the golden ratio, the 64 tetrahedron, the tree of life, and fractals. They all hold the patterns that underlie 
The Mysteries of the Universe. In our next episode, we'll explore the spectrum of sound and the profound lessons of Hermes' cryptic emerald tablet. Oh my goodness. I think we got our dose this afternoon, everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little thing that we received from our sister. Uh, our sister, uh, um, Helen. Our sister Helen. And I thought I'd read it because it was lovely. It's called Gratitude is the Highest Vibration. We've been talking about sound and color and vibration all afternoon. And the more you appreciate, the more life gives you to appreciate. That is a law of nature and nature's God for sure. So it goes like this. Albert Einstein, letter to his daughter. Quote, I deeply regret not having been able to express what is in my heart, which has quietly beaten for you all my life. As as we want our species to survive, as we are to find meaning in life, as we want to save the world, and every sentient being that inhabits it. Love is the one and only answer. Perhaps we are not yet ready to make a bomb of love, a device powerful enough to entirely destroy the hate, selfishness, and greed that devastate this planet. However, each individual carries within them a small yet powerful generator of love whose energy is waiting to be released. As we learn to give and receive this universal energy, we will have affirmed that love conquers all and is able to transcend everything and anything because love is the quintessence of life. That, again, is Albert Einstein in a letter to his daughter. Oh, my And Helen writes here at the end, she says, a platitude of gratitude brings all abundance on all levels. Only abundance exists in my world. Thanks and appreciation are the fruits of this gratitude. Love is all there is. My first lesson at 18 months old, approximately. (laughs) Helen. (laughs) Helen will be 87, I'm Not positive, but I think is it the 19th of this month? We'll have to double check that and celebrate 87 years, everyone. All right. 
It's time to go. I'll be saying goodbye. We'll take a little break. And uh, what's that Yoda thing? Rama. Oh, the fire force needs five more minutes. Yes. There's two pictures of Yoda. Well, what's the first one say? The, the force awakens. Oh, yes. The top picture says uh, Yoda's uh, kind of laying down and he's got half eyes in there. And uh, it says above that picture, the force awakens. And then on the bottom picture, he's kind of gone sleepy again. And it says the force needs five more minutes. So, with that in mind, uh, and love, we we bid you adieu for a few minutes, and we'll be back here, and we'll be ha- here with our our look at the stars with with, with Richard and Tanya and Kate Pacha and and good music. Mama's got a a way with music, and Penny and all y'all out there, you got any suggestions, please. Send it. Namaste, everyone. See you in a very little while. Namaste. Pass this talking stick to you, Richard. Hello. (laughs) Richard? Uh Uh-oh. All right. There you are. Yeah, I'm here. Let's see here. Okay. All right. It's April 2nd. Going to look at a little astrology here for an hour. All right. Yes. uh, Pluto, 29 Capricorn. And Venus rises before... Saturn, which rises before Mars, and they're all three conjunct. Mars is at 21, Saturn's at 23, and Venus is at 28 Aquarius. So Venus is getting away from Saturn, so we should feel less depressed as the weeks go forward. Uh, Jupiter is still conjunct Neptune. Jupiter 22, Neptune 24 in Pisces. We, we got that triple conjunction. Chiron, Sun, and Mercury at 13 and 14 Aries. The moon's at 5 degrees Taurus tonight. Jupiter, uh, Uranus is still hanging out at 14 degrees of Taurus. And the North Node has moved into the 23rd degree of Taurus. And that's it. There's nothing in Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, or Sagittarius. Nothing on that side of the solar system. So it's, uh, I come up with a couple of ideas here, going to do a little research to see when we're going to get some of see we're never we're never outside 
we're never separated from the will of God represented by Uranus. We're never not in the schoolroom of Neptune, which leads to divine wisdom. And we're never out from under the foot of Pluto, which controls transformation through the process of love. So that's the grand scheme of things. Let's see what Kaipacha has on his mind this week. Okay. Okay, Richard, here we go. Can you believe it is March 30th already? Oh, man. Anyway, this is the earliest Paleo Report I have ever done. It's like 6.30. The sun is just coming up here. I got so much work to do today. As I'm sure you do, Mars conjunct Saturn. (laughs) It's exact next Monday, but uh, it's, it's happening now. And you can feel it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, and, and with Venus, you know, Venus was just conjunct Saturn too. So, you know, we got we got Saturn energy going on big time. I talked about it uh, in the uh, Lunar Planner. Anyway, what else is going on? Well, yeah, we've got the new moon happening at 11 degrees, 31 minutes of Aries. Uh, that's yeah, That's coming up. And um, Friday, the sun conjuncts Chiron, and uh, on, what is it, Saturday, Mercury conjuncts Chiron, basically, as you can see at the chart that I put at the beginning of the report, okay, it is a Mercury-Sun-Moon-Chiron conjunction. So this new moon... Which, like, you do a birth chart for the new moon, and, it, and it's kind of like the energy that's going on for the month. Well, it's Chiron energy, the wounded healer, right? Healing crisis, ay ay ay, in Aries. Uh, well, I'll get into interpretations later. <laughs> Thank you. The rest of these uh, uh, aspects that are happening. Basically, I want to talk today about three things. Okay, the Mars-Saturn conjunction. Is happening at the same time that the Jupiter-Neptune. Rama, bring that thing back, okay? okay. The Jupiter-Neptune okay. conjunction is not the big white ball. It's like two weeks from now, but yeah. it's it's definitely active right now because Jupiter moves so slowly. No, Neptune I got a so whole other side of my head to brush. Grandmother here, cut it out. Yeah, let me get you. I'll get you a shot of her going up. Let me see. She's a big one. She's too big to even really Ouch. see her tops. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. Where was I? 
So three things, yeah. Uh, Mercury, Moon, Sun, Chiron, right, with the new moon. And then Jupiter, Neptune in Pisces. And then Mars, Saturn in Aquarius. And that sets the tone for this week. I mean, the moon does move on, okay, by Saturday. She goes into uh, Taurus, okay, and uh, comes along and, uh, you know, well, after she squares Pluto, she comes in and uh, conjuncts Uranus. There's the river. I'll get down. I'll get down there. Yum, yum. Let me just get down to the river and talk talk about it. (laughs) Okay. Found a little spot here. I gotta say, like I'm so busy, I can't do the Paley Report tomorrow, Wednesday. Today is Tuesday. The moon is still in Pisces. Uh, she really doesn't go into uh, Aries until like Thursday. If you're in uh, this time zone of Costa Rica, and just the river is just so mellow today. <laughs> It's so inviting. It's just trickling along so beautifully. And I, this is such a, just a mellow, it's just a very mellow time. Moon, uh, moon in Pisces. And I forgot to say, Venus is going into Pisces, uh, next Tuesday. So it's gonna be, uh, really sweet. And coming up here, as the moon goes around, you know, uh, you know, at, at the end of the month, Mars is going to go into Pisces, and we're going to have the Moon, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Neptune all in Pisces. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be great. But what I'm saying also is we will feel a shift in the energy when the Moon moves into Aries, the Warrior, and Mars Saturn aspects are infamous for war, for anger, for suppressed masculine energy that just uh, comes out and explodes and yeah in, in the sign of Aquarius global consciousness uh, this involves you know everybody even though the the battle itself may be more localized it does indicate that there is something stirring deep within the collective consciousness here that needs to be addressed. It needs to be looked at. It's beyond the scope of this uh, weekly report. Um, I talked a little bit more about this in uh, the monthly lunar planner, the monthly overview that you can get. It's it's on the blog on my website, or you can uh, get it in your inbox if you get my newsletter. But This is astrology for the soul. This is more about our internal process and more about what each one of us individually can do. The mantra is for, you know, each of us to repeat to ourselves through the week as our own evolutionary process because as much as we are part of a collective, we are also individuals and we are on our own individual evolutionary journey over lifetimes. So, yes, relationships come and go, uh, you know, family stays longer, uh, jobs and, you know, friends come and go. And in fact, well, that brings me to the first things. This Mars-Saturn 
is exactly square the moon's nose. A 22 degrees. I am going to read to you the Sabian symbol for the 23rd degree of Aquarius. It is very super powerful. And we know in evolutionary astrology that Mars, Saturn, whenever it's, whenever planets are square the moon's nodes, it's a must do. This has got to happen in order for evolution to proceed forward towards that north node in Taurus, towards moving into unconditional self-love, self-sufficiency, abundance, prosperity, uh, the ability to receive, right? That's, this is, you know, this is where we are now for a year and a half as that node moves through Taurus. In order for that to, in order, in order to get there, right now we need to do this Mars Saturn, which has to do with focus, and I talked about it uh, a little last week, focusing our will, getting work done, discipline, discipleship, self-control, focus. This is all, these are all key words here. And focusing on what? The future. Aquarius is the future. And Aquarius is raising the bar, improving, enlightenment, liberation, stepping outside of the box of conventional, normal thinking and mainstream stuff into experimenting and, you know, really looking at innovating new ways, new pathways. So let me, uh, as long as I'm on it, I may as well read the freaking saving symbol. You know, you can download this. I've said it before. It's on my website under the uh, resources tab. Scroll down and you'll uh, you'll see an astrological mandala by Dane Widger. Yeah? This is, uh, and I have to say, I marked this in my ephemeris and on my calendar Okay, April 4th, I, you know, like months ago, this is one of the high points that I said, oh man, April 4th, some stuff is going to be hitting the fan, right? A big bear sitting down and waving all its paws. The self-discipline, which results from an intelligent development of individual faculties, Under proper training. What constitutes the proper training of children or animals is a complex and much disputed problem. (laughs) That's for sure, man. Everybody has different ideas about how to raise kids. The symbol seems to state simply that powerful life energies can be trained adequately. The implication or extension of the idea being that no training is really successful unless it leads to the realization of the value and power of self-discipline. We are constantly faced with situations which, whether we are aware of it or not, are in fact Training situations. God or soul is the trainer. Much depends on the attitudes we assume 
in these situations. Character and a warm understanding of what is involved in the process of growth and overcoming of emotional heaviness can be taught. We can learn to discipline our natural impulses and to use them for a more than personal purpose. This is discipleship in the true sense of the term. You see that the mantra speaks of this discipleship. And just get this emotional heaviness. The overcoming of emotional heaviness can be taught. This is self-discipline. This is self-control. This is maturity. This is Saturn moving through Aquarius, you know, really being able to step outside of our inner child and our passions and our anger and our frustration and everything that's going on in here into really seeing this life as a training I mean, it's like we're in boot camp earth. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, you know, we're going to throw this at you and this at you and this at you, and you're going to get to practice love. You're going to get to practice compassion. You're going to get to practice forgiveness. Yeah, for yourself, for other people. Oh, God, that reminds me of the song for today. I got two songs for today. Uh, you know, one of them, of course, uh, has to be Bachman Turner Overdrive, taking care of business <laughs> every day, taking care of business every way. Me, oh my, <laughs> working overtime. <laughs> and this is, this is inner work as well as our work in the world. Both have to occur simultaneously. It's almost like we have to work on ourselves in order to like fully, you know, do something, uh, you know, out in the in the outer world. So anyway, where was I? Oh, the second one. Oh well, by Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give the answer that you want me to. <laughs> because this kind of also comes in <laughs> a little bit. Even talks to God and says, I'm your man. But this is a time of when, first of all, Aquarius is friends, groups, and associations. I talked a, a little bit about Venus, Saturn, now Mars, Saturn, squaring the moon's nodes. The moon's nodes have to do with emotional ties, bonds, and connections from past lifetimes. And emotional bonds and connections with other people that are going to lead us forward into our future lifetime. When Saturn comes in to square these moon's nodes, it's time to say goodbye to karmic relationships from past lifetimes that helped get us where we are and maybe are safe, stable, secure, or they were until now. Because Saturn has to do with separation. Saturn has to do 
with setting new goals, especially in Aquarius, future goals that we now are forming and seeing with our inner eye. Yeah? The life that we want to lead, this is what the mantra is about. And it involves saying goodbye and letting go of so you got to pick up your foot in order to take the next step. You've got to let go of what, what once held you and look for a new footing. <laughs> look for a new place. Oh, which reminds I mean, <laughs> on the way down here, I'm climbing down the, the to the river, right? <clears throat> and I step on this. It's, a, it's almost a boulder. I mean, it was a big-sized boulder, right? And... I knocked it off the rock. It was sitting on top of another rock. I knocked it off the rock. And, of course, I, I almost fell over, but I was actually holding on to a, a little tree. First of all, I thanked the tree, and then I felt very special. I felt a part of nature. Like, I changed. I moved that rock. <laughs> And who knows what's going to happen as a result of me moving that rock. You know, the water's going to come in the rainy season, and it's going to go a different path because that rock was moved. <laughs> and things are going to change over the long course of history. I mean, I've changed history today <laughs> doing the Pele Report, <laughs> moving, you know, moving this rock that was on my path. Anyway, everything we do has significance. Every word, every action, every, everything we do is we're, we're really sending out ripples through the vast cosmic empire. And this is the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction that is coming tighter and tighter and closer and closer over the next couple of weeks. And it's great. Jupiter stays, you know, well, it actually moves out of Pisces pretty quickly into Aries. Yikes. We'll talk about that when it comes. <laughs> right now, let's talk about spirit love. This is also in the mantra today. I am a disciple of spirit love. Pisces, Jupiter, you know, Jupiter is the co-ruler of Pisces along with Neptune. So the two rulers of Pisces are coming together in their own sign. And that own sign of Pisces is heaven, nirvana, samadhi, all that is, unity consciousness, the law of one. So spirit love is Neptune. Neptune love, the higher octave of Venus. Venus is personal love and Mars is sexual love. And we get all into this, you know, these personal sexual romantic relationships and, and they involve, you know, money and bodies and da, 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 da. But beyond that, above that, and, and definitely intermingled with that, right? You know, it is the same octave, the same frequency, the same vibration and Quality is spiritual love, platonic love, divine love, the love of our brothers and sisters and animals and rocks and stones and nature and flowers and blah, 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 blah. 
we are all one with all that is. We we are merged in this and this Neptune spirit love also connects us to the tapestry, right? You know, the web of life. And it guides us. When you know when you're connected, you're in a in a way you are free. And in another way, you're guided because you just know your path. You ever have that? Have that feeling, that knowing that you know this just has to be done. This is so clear. There's maybe no reason or explanation, or it doesn't make sense to a lot of other people. But inwardly, inwardly, there emerges within us the truth about where we need to go. These are those times. These are Jupiter-Neptune times. Yay! I had to get that wasp off of my toe. <laughs> that was very clear to me. <laughs> it's all right. I didn't. Uh, I didn't hurt him. He flew away. Anyway. Yeah, you get this. You get this. So it's uh, interesting to have this self-discipline and this strength and this power, but it's being guided and led. I think I'm on a, a sitting on a wasp nest or something, man. They are like all over the freaking place. It's some wasp medicine. Anyway, where the hell was that, man? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, you get this is the Mars Saturn, and then Jupiter Neptune, and last but not least, primarily the new moon conjunct Mercury and Chiron in Aries. I did the Sabian symbol for this new moon in the in the lunar planner, the twelfth degree of Aries. Very powerful Sabian symbol for this new moon that sets the tone for this whole month. And I talked about it's almost as if there is a separation between those that go with the Mars Saturn. And fight their battles and get lost in the material time space world and those that rise to the Jupiter Neptune of, of, you know, of spirit love and divine guidance. Where are you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> because Chiron, you know, the wound becomes your medicine only if and when you address it, acknowledge it, research it, delve into your pain, into your wound, into your soul, then you become the alchemist. Then, okay, that wound transforms through your attention, focus, knowledge, love, and inner work, and discipleship, and discipline, we change our wound into medicine. If we don't do our work, we deny it, we avoid it, we hide it, we're ashamed of it, we, you know, numb out, whatever. Chiron in Aries then becomes, right, war, battle, machismo. Yeah, it's like I have to prove my masculine is wounded. My warrior is wounded. Oh, I don't want anybody to see that. I'm going to get a gun 
I'm going to get a bomb. I'm going to, you know, get a fist. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to overcompensate for my weakness. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to make love, you know, make love with millions of, you know, you know, notch my belt or whatever, you know, with every conquering thing that I can grab. Well, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's an ugly wound. <laughs> what can I say? Yes. We're working on this collectively, you know, for eight years. Chiron spends a longer time in Aries than any other sign of the Zodiac oh. due to his elliptical orbit. Mm-hmm. And he's only halfway through, less than halfway through. Oh, God. He doesn't leave, uh, he doesn't go into Taurus until I think 2025, 2026. Anyway. The other way that this wound, if we don't address it and use our discipline and discipleship to go in and alchemically transform it, is that we just feel helpless. We feel powerless. We feel incapable, unable to help ourselves, assert ourselves, get what we want. We give up. We got no courage. We got no kajubis. <laughs> and I'm talking about men and women. We all have Mars. We all have Aries. We all have a masculine, whether it's on the outside or the inside, anima, animus, doesn't matter. We've, we're all dealing Okay, with a need now for strength, for realizing the power within, the, you know, the warrior within, to really face what's going on around here. Ow! Woo! Pretty gnarly, man. Yeah. It's gnarly out there. You yeah. stay down here at the river. <laughs> hmm Okay, so... I have the strength and the power to create the life I now see. For as a disciple of spirit love, my path is laid out for me. Yeah? When you (laughs) meditate, when you have some type of spiritual discipline, some type of spiritual practice that you tune in to spirit love, which is universal guidance, divine intelligence. The path is laid out for you. And it may look from the outside and other people may go, oh, wow, you just do whatever you want. Or, oh, you're free. Or, oh, you're da da da. Actually not. Actually not. You are a bear with its paws up. You are being trained to follow the path that is laid out for you by a subconscious, unconscious, spiritual will that is beyond your personal ego, wants, desires, or goals. And so your life may look chaotic from the outside. Your life may look wild. Your life may look, you know, like, what, 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 yeah. Raise their eyebrows, drop their jaws, but actually you are on a course, you are on a path that is actually destined or, I don't know. You get into the paradox of freedom, and, you know, free and not free. Yes, I'm very free from 
external authority control, but I'm not really free from, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what I have to be doing, saying, and whatever here, there, and, uh, and everywhere else. It's, I don't know. You figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah, this is, uh, and of course, Mercury is there. It's great that Mercury is there. Also, with this, this is our, you know, our moon, our feelings, you know, joined together with Mercury, our thoughts, the sun, our solar purpose, breaking through to, you know, identify, look at, and heal this wound of Chiron. And yes, it is very often a healing crisis. Let's not forget there is a crisis involved where we need to choose our priorities. We it, we have the free will to decide what is more important. The long term, the short term, the spiritual, the material, uh, you know, this relationship, that relationship, this, this path, that path, this country, that country, this political view, that political view. We, we choose, 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 choose. So this is a this is a time of big decision. Saturn is choices and decisions. Yes, no, you know, contract, no contract, commitment, no commitment. Mars, Saturn, this is time to decide. You've got big decisions to make, big choices to make. The cool thing is, is that if you tune in and you tap in, you will know, and it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be hard when you know. And when you know, the way is made clear when you are on it. One more time. <laughs> I have the strength and the power to create the life I now see. For as a disciple of spirit love, my path is laid out for me. Namaste, aloha, so much love. Talkies, take to you, Richard. All right, then. Okay, I'm looking at next Saturday's chart. 
And right about 9 p.m. Eastern, next Saturday night, moon will be exactly opposite Pluto. <coughs> and this this starts uh, about eight, eight days of moon opposite all this other stuff, right? So, um, and I misspoke earlier, Saturn rises first. Then Mars rises and then Venus rises. So if you in the morning sky, you should see uh, Saturn and Mars a little bit above and to the west of Venus. Venus is so bright, I can see it through the tree line uh, when it rises here. Um, and uh, Jupiter and Saturn will be almost exactly conjunct. Jupiter will be at 23 degrees 24 minutes and, and, and Neptune will be at 23.53 minutes. Um, the sun will be 8 degrees further into Aries so it will be separating from Chiron. Mercury moving faster will be even further from Chiron. It will be at 28 Aries so there will be They'll be spaced 13, 21, and 28. Still all in Aries, but there'll be a little space between them. And then Uranus, Uranus, you know, moves so slow, you know, it'll still be at 14 Taurus. So that's what we, that's what we got for, for next week. Yeah. So, uh, this, this, this week, Lunar-wise, will be the gentlest. See, because the moon, moon is, uh, you know, in, in Taurus tonight. And uh, by uh, tomorrow, it will be uh, close to conjunct the north node. And then it will be in Gemini. And then it'll be in cancer. So, uh, I think it's gonna be a little bit easier, uh, hopefully physiologically and emotionally. But uh, it's, it's been tough. This Mars, Mars conjunct Saturn is just not being easy on physical bodies. So I, I can personally uh, account for that. So uh, let's see what uh, Tanya's got on her mind tonight. She did New Moon last week. Yeah. Okay. Ready, Rama? Yeah. Jupiter-Neptune conjuncting Pisces, April 12th. Oh, my. That'll be the, the exact, probably the exact day. Actually, it's, it's conjunct now, April 12th. I mean, that's what that's more than a week away. But anyway, all right, let's go. Let's go. Hello again, everyone. This is Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist, and welcome to Star Codes. 
I'm always so excited when we look at an important upcoming event in the celestial realms and the numerology, and today is no exception. In fact, it's one of the big astro-numerology events of 2022, and that is Jupiter's conjunction with Neptune in Pisces, which has not happened since 1856, so a long time ago. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Obviously, we'll never experience this again. And what makes it so special is that Jupiter is the ancient ruler of the sign of Pisces, Mm -hmm. and Neptune is the current modern ruler. So we are in for a very Piscean experience, and of course, it's already in play. It's been building. They're very close together as you're watching this. The exactitude of the moment happens on April 12th, but that doesn't mean that it's not being felt right now. So it peaks in mid-April, but it also continues into May because these are slow-moving planets. So let's begin by first looking at the date of the exact moment the two come together. And that date is the 12th of April, 2022, which adds up to a universal date of 13. So we have the number 12, the vibration of the student, of learning, of growth, through joy, through happiness. So Always finding that place where you trust in the divine intelligence, in the divine wisdom to guide you. And that joy of letting go and surrendering is then inspiring you to to literally learn and grow and expand your wisdom. And then the whole date adds up to 13, and 13 is the number of the lunar cycles. We have 13 in a year. It's the numbers of the four seasons. We have 13 weeks in each season. So it embodies the divine feminine in terms of change and transformation and just going with the flow of the seasonal changes, which for us, happen throughout our day. And then, of course, we have the visible representation in nature. So it's a very powerful code, and it ties into the number four as well, which is the number of Earth, where we have those four seasons. We have four directions. And we are always in this place of discovering who we are in terms of our ability to feel comfortable in whichever location we find ourselves in. And of course, it's not just the physical location, though we live in a physical 3D world. It's really the location of the heart. And this is where we now turn to the incredible message for this conjunction. So the conjunction happens at 23 degrees. Jupiter and Neptune will be at 23 degrees in Pisces at the very end of that degree. And 23 is the royal star of the lion number. It is the strongest number in numerology. And it embodies the strength and courage to take the divinely inspired path. This is the message when Jupiter and Neptune come together at 23 degrees Pisces. So Jupiter is about faith. Neptune is about the dissolution of judgment of others. Joining together, 
We are all one. We all come from the same source. And joining higher consciousness, spirituality, Jupiter is, as I said, faith, expansion, wisdom. So this is an incredible moment where literally taking the divinely inspired path is the path of the heart, the wisdom of the heart. And so Jupiter, when Jupiter comes in to any celestial connection, it just makes it bigger. <laughs> Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system, so it just enhances everything. And in this case, it's enhancing Pisces and Neptune. So there's this very magical, mystical, dreamlike journey where we literally are in touch with the overall ultimate dreams that we hold in our heart, which is to love each other and to live together in harmony. So we have faith in the divine. We have faith in our natural ability to feel good, to feel abundant, to feel loved. We have faith in our spirituality and in our ability to connect to the eternal because we are eternal, right? We are not our bodies. Those are our vehicles for this lifetime, just like you purchase a car to take you from point A to B. It's a vehicle. It is useful to experience and to just go on discoveries and journeys and adventures. Same as with your body, your vehicle, your heart, though, is connected to the soul. And so we must now also look at what the shadow side is of Pisces and Neptune, especially because there can be a sense of delusion. You can feel disillusioned. You can be trapped in a place that is not connected to reality. And that's where you choose to not listen. You choose to look away. There is self-betrayal. There is the stopping of listening to your intuition in favor of your ego desires, which come from the mind. So you feel disappointed. You feel disenchanted with the world, with yourself. You are resonating to the victim frequency, in other words. And that is the shadow side of Pisces and Neptune, is to feel like the victim. And the Piscean age that we are leaving behind now as we move into the Aquarian age was the age where we really felt what it was like to be a victim or a victimizer and to choose otherwise. So that 2,000-year age was really to help us see what victimization is and to not get stuck in that victim frequency, which is when we judge everything, when we judge ourselves, when we judge others, right? We are literally... Moving now, and this conjunction is one of the big moments of birthing this new world where we have to remind ourselves to be in love with everything that we see, that everything is a reflection of the divine. Because if we're not in love with everything we see, we are in judgment of it. That's the only other choice we have. If we're not in love with everyone and everything that we see and see it as an actual reflection of the divine for whatever purpose it serves. If we are not in love with it, we are in judgment of it. Mm -hmm. 
So we always bring it back to the heart. And this is really the main message is the wisdom of the heart is colorblind. It does not get its prompts from external imagery, what we see, what we're measuring, right? We, we, we tend to measure things. Are we, do we stack up in the spirituality segment of, of life? Do we stack up in terms of our worth, our value? Do we stack up in terms of our morals and our ethics and our code of honor? And this is really where we then are constantly looking externally out there instead of within. We're not in our heart when we do that. So, and what does that, what does this judgmental kind of approach? It's the mind. It's not the heart. The heart cannot do it. There's nothing loving, kind, or compassionate about judgment. So we really need to take the time to see how we judge Everything as good or bad, as low vibe or high vibe, and categorize it in our mind. And so we really need to observe and say, well, how much am I actually living in my heart without judgment? Because the heart makes love to what it sees as dissonant or discordant. Dissonance in music is not a bad thing. Harmony and dissonance work together as one to reflect the gamut of everything that is possible. The eternal is, we can't even imagine the incredible expressions that are available to us, but certainly we can see in our world that everybody has a very unique way of growing And so our heart makes love to what it sees is dissonant and discordant. Our heart will show all of us that what's external is the illusion and what's internal is reality. So we tend to think something's wrong with us, something's wrong with somebody else, something's wrong with the world. And that's the problem is we think everything we experience is perfectly designed by the divine. And this is where we have to surrender to trust. And if there's anything that Pisces and Jupiter and Neptune conjunction in Pisces represents, it is to surrender and trust in the divine wisdom, in the wisdom of the heart. Pisces is unconditional love. That is the highest expression of Pisces. So when we bring polarity to things, right, when we, do not make love to everything that seems discordant to us. We create judgment, which creates polarity. And so then once we polarize it, it's separate from us. We actually have created a barrier to love itself. And the universe is love. There's no way we have all this miraculous, amazing stars and galaxies without love being the origin of everything. So we don't have to worry about our world not being love. It is made from love. We have to just focus on being in our heart so that we can resonate to the rhythm of that love. So really, we ourselves don't need to feel like we need to uh, receive healing of any kind because here's the thing. 
It's the information that we operate from that we put in our mind. That is what actually needs to be healed and helped. The heart doesn't take in information. The heart doesn't need information. The heart operates from a place of wisdom. So the only purpose we have here on earth, if we look at what our true purpose is, is that the world needs more heart. The world needs acceptance that everything is love and that everything for that reason has to play out, right? The way that love is expressed and, and love is the gamut of everything because the universe, remember, is made from love. So there's the shadow side and the light. We don't have to separate them from each other and create this polarity between the two. So the only purpose we have on earth, because the world is love, is not to judge things as good and evil, right? So it's it's really about acceptance and about feeling that sense of the Aquarian age, which is the multidimensional, we are all in this together, right? We all just need to follow our heart, to be our true self, to be in total integrity with our soul. Our purpose is to just live here. That's really our purpose. That's how we connect to the language of light and love. So when we are consciously paying attention to the shadow world, which of course is part of this grand experience and experiment, and we also pay attention to the light world. We can then create something that is truly magical because we are accepting both. We are in acceptance. We are in a state of acceptance that both exist. And for that reason, are able to create a new world of non-judgment. It's a world of acceptance. And that is the world that we can use our will to create. We can create this incredible, exuberant, accepting world. And constantly, obviously, observing that when we go into our old patterns of judgment, of polarity, of separation that we come back home here. We always come back home here. This is our home. This is the everlasting, eternal soul connection, right? So Jupiter's exuberance, Jupiter always lights things up and it, and it delights with its exuberant energy. It sees over the horizon. It, it sees beyond where we are now. So this is a moment to recognize that divine spark, that Spark from the beyond, the divine spark of creation, that you are eternal, that you live temporarily in this vehicle called the physical body, that you are evolving rapidly, that you are able to literally integrate the physical and spiritual at once. That is just stunning. That is the magic that we're in, right? So as we integrate the light and the dark, by stopping judgment, because that's the only way we're going to be able to get through this period in a wholesome way. So if you think of it as 
the expectations that were put on us and still are put on us, especially in the Western world of needing to live up to a certain standard in order to be appreciated. And we compare ourselves to others as a result because that standard <laughs> couldn't be attained unless there was something to compare it to, which is the actual polarity that we create. So we're trying to live up to this state of externally imposed perfection, which often is coming as a result of us not stopping to see how somebody else is doing things, literally, visibly. So we're pulled out of gratitude in those moments because we are absolutely not considering how grateful we are for being here and just living from this heart-centered place. Instead, we are trying to impress or trying to be perfect. So Jupiter is coming in, in Pisces, the water sign of incredible cleansing, incredible healing. And Jupiter and Neptune are coming together so that we feel the blessings of life. So we can focus on those blessings and focus on what we're grateful for and see the blessings all around us. And then Pisces is helping us to surrender and invite the divine into our heart, into our life, right? So with Jupiter and Pisces, we are getting inspired answers because we're going beyond the mind. And that is the key to inspiration. So Jupiter inspires faith in the divine. And no matter how those inspirations are brought into your awareness, they arrive in a subtle way. So we really, really have to acutely listen for them to train ourselves because we're very trained to listen to the external and comply with the external prompts, the expectations, the judgments. So moving into these subtle realms of divine inspiration takes opening up and listening and receiving, right? And these are very divine feminine aspects. So we're bringing the divine feminine and sacred masculine into balance. Pisces is about compassion, and that begins with having compassion for yourself. So non-judgment begins with you. Forgiveness begins with you. In fact, forgiveness can only come from you to you. You cannot forgive another because it truly is something within you that feels disconnected. And so you can only forgive yourself. And that is, that's how the heart works. The heart never judges, right? The mind does but the heart can't. So you come back to your heart and that's the forgiveness. So Pisces helps us to let go of that judgment through compassion, through forgiveness. And that's how you get in touch with the heart so easily because you're operating from that natural flow. You literally are trusting that you are guided from a place that your mind cannot comprehend, but your heart can surrender to. So if you take anything from this forecast, it is to know that you have all the wisdom you need in your heart. You don't need help. You don't have to feel like you need to bring love to the world. The world is created from love. You just need to resonate with 
the natural flow of love that's already there. And that can be done from here. So I wish you an amazing next few weeks and a beautiful spiritual acknowledgement of who you are. That you are already love. You are light. You are shadow. You are also darkness. You are here to acknowledge it all. Allow it to teach you. And for that reason, suspend judgment. Have an amazing Jupiter and Neptune conjunction. And remember, you also have a star code. You have this conjunction at 23 degrees Pisces somewhere in your astrology birth chart. And it is touching you in a specific house and is impacting you in some capacity, of course. And your own birth star code is speaking to you every day. Your birthday, the number of your birth certificate name, of course, your astrology birth chart with all the amazing degrees as well, which are all numbers, they're all codes. So to discover your own star code, head on over to starcodeclass.com where I have a free masterclass for you. It's lots of fun. You can discover so much about who you are and what you're here to express in this lifetime, what your natural gifts are, and the gifts of others in your life as well, which will help you have compassion for them instead of judgment. So enjoy that free masterclass at starcodeclass.com, and have a beautiful week, and I'll see you in next week's Starcodes podcast. Lots of love. Talking tick back to you, Richard. Richard. Yes. There you are. Pass that talking stick to you, Commander. Okay. Well, I really don't know what to say. I could tell you this here. <laughs> Business Insider says the release of the 180 million barrels of oil from the strategic petroleum. Richard? Richard? Hello? Uh oh. Uh, hmm. Something happened. I think Richard was talking about that 180 million barrels in the next six months. Mm-hmm. That Biden. Biden is announcing he's releasing from the strategic reserves. Um, it's a it's a it's a minute drop in the bucket because we use about uh, 
20 million barrels a day or some ridiculous amount. So it kind of, you know, uh, a very weak key approach to try to lower the price of gas. But, or shall we say, and there is a much larger problem. And that is that this is a criminal cabal that have manipulated the system to their advantage for at least the last 60, 70 years intentionally. And it's time for that to stop. So we remain in unconditional divine neutrality. We send more love and there's a instant manifestation quotient in the astrology at this time. We must take responsibility for walking through it. Yet, the shift of the ages is upon us, and love is the answer, as we've all said. So, Rama, we have a phone number to give out. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is... Three five three eight six three pound. So we will see you on the conference call for this next hour. And then we'll be right back here at BBS radio station two at the top of the following hour for the best radio available across this planet right here, right now. So see you on the conference though for the moment, everyone. Satnam. Namaste. Hey! Thank you guys for watching our new video for Sound of Silence. We hope you loved it. We have very exciting news. We are going on a world tour. Guys, tickets are available right now, so go grab those. At pcsofficial.com. Yes, yeah. Where is that, Rama? There was a group called Pentatonics. Penny sent this to me. And and where do you go? Pentatonics.com? Yeah. P-E-N-T-A-T-O-N-I-X? Uh-huh. Okay. Dot com. <sighs> that was good. Thank you, Penny. Yeah. Are we ready for the next? I gotta get to that one. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Ram. Wow. It's the feeling of it's time to move on from war. No more war. No more no war. More war. Okay, we're gonna do our sister we've become familiar with now, Garcia Duzak. This one is called Pyramid Frequencies. Who built the pyramids of Giza? How did they do it? And why? Swaru'u of Era answers these questions and more. For Gos- did you listen to this, Rama? No, I didn't. They probably, I don't know if they got the right answer. Yeah. Um, what I They re- were lowered from... Yes. From- Kla La. Who, uh, Commander Kla La who I believe is mm, 
from the Pleiades, he could be from another part of the galaxy, I can't remember, but he told the story of when they brought the pyramids here and lowered them into the atmosphere as magnetic generators to stabilize the planet's um, orbit. Yeah, that's that book. Alan Ra. No, Master Symbols of the Solar Cross by Tuella. Yeah, but I think in Alan Ra they say where those where the pyramids came from, but they brought them. Aldebaran. Aldebaran, that's right. Yes. It was called Alderaan in Star Wars. Yeah. But yes. they were they were lowered by anti gravity techniques right to the ground. Yeah. They were not built. But we'll see what they have to say, won't we? Yeah. All right. So Swaruu shares how sound and vibration were used to liquefy here they write. They yeah. got it. And levitate stones. Oh. By a conglomerate of cooperative races of the Federation, according to Swaru'u. Yeah. These structures function as free energy generators and portals of consciousness. Let's listen to this. Okay. 27 minutes. Okay. was to generate power? They are not tombs, nor an astrological place. Yes, electricity. And to send power, electricity, all over the earth, no matter where you are. But also to stabilize the frequency of the entire planet. Make it even more positive with an inverse manner than the moon does now. There are pyramids all over the earth, placed at ley line locations. All over the world, most are in China. It's all part of the same system. You could be anywhere on earth back then, and you'd have wireless power with the system. The best Wi-Fi. Why isn't it working anymore then? Because the cabal doesn't want it to work. Because there is no billing the population for free energy. It is a planetary scale free energy device. But it served other purposes, which I will go into a bit later.
pyramids are huge, impossible to manufacture without very high technology. Slaves? Egypt didn't use slaves. Notice the eight sides of the Great Pyramid. Topography of the place. To understand the pyramid, you have to understand that it was not built only to be seen from below, but from above. And few people seem to know of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Many researchers indicate that the pyramids pointed to Alpha Draconis, but not only to Alpha Draconis, also to the Pleiades and Sirius. Pyramids on other worlds, widespread use as free power plants with wireless electrical transmission, positioning on ley lines to increase and potentiate planetary effects and depolarization between the charge of the atmosphere and the electrical charge of the ground. Primary grounding method by aquifer mantle. Type of energy, zero point energy by charge differential. Wait, other worlds, you mean other planets? Correct. Usage is widespread in Federation worlds. In not to go any further, they are used as power generators. All this is zero-point energy. Here it says having the base at 440 Egyptian cubits, when my data tells me that it measures 365.25 Egyptian cubits. Same measure. That is important, yes. For some esoteric reason, the truth is hidden. Because all measurements are related to the dimensions of the Earth. But they can get us in trouble with that. And that's what they want. Because they move or alter the calculations. Notice how the Queen's Chamber is at the geometric point of the pyramid. That's where the power collector was. It was covered in polished white limestone. From inside, it was causing an internal bounce of particles coming from the atmosphere, entering through the crystal covered with gold at the tip. Pure white quartz covered with gold leaf. The particles come down from the atmosphere looking for Earth. They bounce off the white limestone that has piezoelectrical and insulating properties that prevent the electrical particles be it 
positrons plus or electrons minus, because the polarity of the charge, charge differential between the atmosphere and the soil varies and is inverted, from returning back to the atmosphere. They enter looking for land, because it is the point of greatest connection between the atmospheric charge and that of the ground. They bounce inwardly off the white limestone and concentrate in the queen's chamber, where a depolarization to the ground takes place. covered in white. The whole pyramid as in this photo? Or collector of the energy inside? The whole pyramid. The energy is concentrated in the queen's chamber and gets depolarized with the underground chamber that makes land and connects with the aquifers there creating a concentrated differential of charges between sky and earth. This is the same as having a continuous and voltage-regulated lightning bolt. The king's chamber served as a control room and for other uses of the pyramid, such as being a portal. Above the king's room was a series of high-tech capacitators that regulated energy depolarization. And for efficiency, it was set slightly to one side, so it would not interfere with the concentration of energy in the queen's chamber. Even today, in the underground chamber, there are traces of cables and metal structures for grounding. It is dry now, but water was flowing, creating a potentialized earth effect which has been the ground connection collector, or the part opposite to the one above. The pyramid and its limestone that compressed and concentrated the atmospheric charge. This part potentiated the charge of the Earth, creating an enormous differential of charges between the atmosphere and the earth. Clouds and ground, most of the time, not always, have opposite charges, especially in dry places, but not only. Lightning is a disarray and uncontrolled discharge of differential energy. But if you have a differential charge, although 
not dramatically different as to create this charge lightning. You can channel it in an orderly and continuous way towards the ground. Then you have a place of continuous charge flow and you have your free energy. That is why they are on ley lines and underground water because you are giving them a greater connection to the ground, greater connection capacity and control of charge flow between the atmosphere and the ground. This is pure Tesla. He knew this. You do not need nuclear, hydroelectric or thermoelectric reactors to generate electricity. You only need one or another pyramid. It is clean. It generates more energy than 50 nuclear power plants. It needs little maintenance. It does not generate anything. It only concentrates the charge differential between sky and earth. It is the planet itself that creates the energy. Between sky and earth, there is a change in polarity depending on atmospheric circumstances. It does not imply any problems because the pyramid only reverses electronically the charges with its internal devices, which are no longer there. The energy comes from a continuous and controlled ray and with regulated and therefore useful voltage. Egyptian hieroglyphs, a square means space, cosmos. A square with an X in the middle means a place in the cosmos. A circle with an X means an exact, precise place. It means that it represents an exact place in the cosmos, not on Earth as seen from above as from a ship. The base is or measures 365.25 Egyptian cubits on each side. 440 is misinformation. I fully trust my data. Represents one Earth year for each side. The king's chamber measures 365.25 Egyptian inches on each side as well. You can see what's left of the collector's container. To the left of here, you can see a black box that is one of the narrow corridors, one of many in the pyramid. 
that goes about four meters from there, and then goes up like sixty to where there is a small door of fourteen centimeters by fourteen centimeters. I can't get into mathematics that is all over the pyramid because apparently it differs from official terrestrial data. And also, that may have a simple and insurmountable explanation for us. I don't have it now, so this will require more time. The door in the picture is exactly 364 Egyptian inches tall. This piece is exactly 364 Egyptian inches tall. That corresponds. To the 364 degrees of celestial movement of a star, that is the central base of the construction of the pyramid. The star is Enlil. The three stars of Orion that conspiracy Egyptologists take as something reptile is wrong. Because in the past, Osiris was related to Orion. It has nothing to do with reptiles or with grace or with Orion, as in those who come from there. Once again, it points to Tigeta, like the Apis bull. This idea of the Taurus constellation. Is non-terrestrial. Taurus itself, as a constellation, is dominated by the races of the Pleiades, found in the center of this constellation. In one of the horns is Aldebaran. It contains the only Tigetan colony outside of M45. Aldebaran shares energy from the ether side with this sun 13 and with Alcyon, but it also shares with the star Enlil. Below there is another larger chamber. At the bottom of this chamber, there is a pool of water with aquiferous mantles that connect with the Nile. It is still there, and Egyptologists, although many already know it, do not tell the people. I had to draw this myself. The blue lines and the red box. There is another chamber there. It contains at this time several misnamed sarcophagi, with writing documents about the very pyramid, written in Moldavite stone. They hide this very well. They are not sarcophagi. They are containers. In this chamber, 
There is a rectangular corner with four pillars in the corners, and in the center a flooded chamber with a sarcophagus filled with modalite carved like the Toss tablets. In this area, in red, marked by me, there are two dumps, one above the other. The first one is 30 meters deep. The second, 60. It contains innumerable rooms, corridors, hidden technology, systems like any other contemporary federation base. The entrance is under the Sphinx, and the control is under the right ear. What is missing to make them work properly? No, they are off. They do not have the electrical equipment inside to channel the energy. They do not have the quartz tip covered with gold. And they do not have their coating that gave them the ability to concentrate the energy. It was an insulation. Just as they are now, they dissipate their energy into the atmosphere again. They do not concentrate it in one point, King's Chamber. The charge of the atmosphere. This charges towards the center of the pyramid, reaching Earth with the flow of underground water that connects to the Nile using the earth and discharges room, Queen's Chamber. Without its smooth cover, its charge dissipates into the atmosphere. They have not removed it in order to use it elsewhere. They have removed it to stop its operation. That's why they don't have their covers. the same. There are many in Mexico. Same function? They all have the same primary function, but they are not all generators of free energy. Only some, not all. Like the one of the sun. That is a generator. In some in Mexico, Mercury has been found in large quantities. This proves that they were used as generators and as portals. But they were also built by you? Or other races? I imagine others. By others. Because it was a federation, all conglomerate. 
Those from Caribbean and Alaska are also from Taigeta or Council of Nine, Alciona Council. And why do they have that disposition as if it were Orion? I think you said it once, Varu. And is there any reason for them to be three pyramids with different sizes? It's a message. As a distraction, even. It's kind of iconic. Orion is the most easily recognizable constellation from Earth. But the pyramids internally were focused on Alcyone, Sirius, Alpha Draconis. generators and others is not the primary function of the pyramids. That is the secondary function, incidentally. Primary one, they won't understand. It is a stargate, but it is not a portal, although it can be. That is something else. It is a mechanism that allows you to travel, like I told you, like a warp ship engine in reverse. It is a place that potentiates the psychic, mental and natural astral travel energy of each person. The energy flow, pure positronic energy of exact frequency compatible as constructive interference with the human aura and psychic energy. In contrast to Wi-Fi and invasive microwave electromagnetism, which is frequency destructive to human aura and human psychic energy. You go in there when it is working and even as it is now, and you leave your body. You travel wherever. There are channels or small tunnels to focus on traveling to Sirius, among other places, leaving the material body and being free in the astral through the universe. It was used as amplifiers of consciousness. Where someone entered, leaving their body there in the king's chamber. And with that, they traveled, astral projecting wherever they wanted to go, outside of time and space. They could return to the pyramid a couple of hours later. But for them, it could have been days, weeks or months or years of travel experience. This is not a secondary use for the pyramid. It is considered one of the main uses. 
Even today, this works, but not with the same force or efficiency as in its day. One of the most important accounts is when Napoleon himself entered the Great Pyramid and spent the night there. It is well known that when he came out, he was no longer the same man. He had a very strong mystical revelation that night. talking about at the end there napoleon napoleon yeah he went that was supposed to be me (laughs) (laughs) what really Mm. yes mother said it napoleon and uh, no not napoleon i'm sorry sorry no 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 Mm. No, Nostradamus. Okay. Wow. So what do you want to do next, Drama? Time units. Huh? It's called time units. Temporal dimensions and shifting. Oh, I don't have that one. You must have found that one on your own. Timelines, yeah. How long is that? Uh, 31 minutes. And who's it by? Uh, Emery Smith and Tim. Oh. Tim the advisor. Okay, let's do it. It's coming. Time units, temporal dimension, and shifting timelines. You didn't print that out. Mm. That's, a, that's something that's your world. you just discovered. <laughs> oh my goodness! All this while this uh, other stuff is going on is right. Holy cow! Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we're at an undisclosed location with Tim. Tim is a tactical advisor in the covert governance in Germany who analyzes and suggests various strategies in relation to extraterrestrial groups in contact with Earth. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tim, you refer to humanity as a time-traveling species. What do you mean by that? The theoretical physics exists since the 1920s. Around that time, they found out that there's some 
fluidity to um, time and that it could also work as a dimension. That pathway, so to speak, for tra time traveling, for moving through time. So the Germans did have experience on that. I'm not privy if they were successful and I doubt it strongly. I think that um, they found a lot of technology and had some help, but they did not succeed on time travel to make it as stable as it should be to put a biological being through some portal or something. But there were experiments and there were also experiments with particles and smaller objects who were successful in the 70s, 80s and making humanity a time-traveling species is something that is pretty new. Like we're talking about 10, 20 years at max. So the technology actually... At least the technology I am aware of comes from the greys because they are a time-traveling species. Oh, and I need to add that time-travel technology seems to be something that only a very, very small group of people has access to. So this is nothing, it's, it's not in the mainstream and it's also nothing that countries regularly seem to have access to only very limited access. While a lot of races have been given or developed some kind of propulsion system in order to move upon their planet or move away off planet, um, traveling through time as it is, as it makes a lot of turbulence and um, distortion to the timeline itself is something that is very exclusive and very rare to find in a stable technology while development. Who are the beings influencing timelines? I basically know of two three-dimensional beings that have the time travel technology <laughs> I know that there are more than that, and I know that there has been more influence on the Earth timelines um, than just from two species. But personally, so to speak, I know only two species that um, did that, and the one reptilian species we were talking about and the greys do have that as a technology. Other beings that have developed a more spiritual approach to time travel, they could, can also move through time, which means that they use their connection to the interconnectivity of the universe in order to shift their consciousness from one point and one dimension into another point, into another dimension which can be time. But that also means that moving objects, moving crafts, technology, or even a body is something that 
cannot be maintained. You know two types of beings who use time travel. And now you're saying humans have that ability. With all that chaos and divisiveness on Earth, how can humans be trusted to time travel? <laughs> Again, right. to my understanding, there's a very, very limited access to the technology, the algorithms and calculations that have to be done in order to alter time and in order to influence and affect timelines are very complicated and very dangerous. So to my knowledge, there's only one group that is accessing this technology that comes from the Grace. And I'm pretty sure that the Grays have some kind of oversight on that. And the good thing about that is that these beings and or let me say this group um, that builds this time unit is reaching out from a future version of the Earth in order to prevent chaos in the recent timeline, which is pretty assuring a good and healthy evolution. And I think that the Grace saw that because, we, as we know, the Grace did a lot of, um, well, they put a lot of effort into the communication with human people. They appeared a lot to individuals, were warning them about humans destroying the planet and they were appearing um, inside of nuclear facilities and uh, researching how to shut down nuclear bombs because they have seen more than one time the earth being destroyed by EA outside technology or B uh, inside technology. And because giving technology to human groups, to governments, wasn't successful in order to change the kind of mindset and the moral ethical standpoint of governments, they needed to be, you know, directly showing the consequences because that is something human beings react upon when there is a direct catalyst that is so heavy and directly experienceable, they move or shift their awareness. And because the Grace did a lot of effort in order to repair certain timelines, in order to save their material and save the development of the Earth, um, at one point they decided to at least show to a very unique and special group of people what the actual consequences can be in the future. And that is one very heavy reason why we now have all this disclosure going on, because knowing the consequences makes you have a different perspective on what's going on. Are you alluding to some event that they're trying to shift right now that could be catastrophic? To my knowledge, we had a lot of potential catastrophes occurring in different timelines on the Earth, having terrible, terrible output, which the, the grace corrected in order to have this kind of um, correct involvement of the, of the planet. 
I am aware that there right now are people from the future on Earth assisting with this process. Is it the people from the future or ETs who are helping with this process? The thought of having a linear time signature, linear timeline, um, is pretty special to the dualistic thinking of humans. So if you want to make that difference, I would say that only humans fall under that category. Because if you're talking about the greys as a time traveling species, they wouldn't say they come from from the future because if they travel through all those dimensions pretty fluently, um, they do not define themselves as, you know, futuristic beings or present beings. They just are beings. How far in the future are they coming from when we're talking about these human beings? I think we're not talking about a too large number. We're pretty having, pretty much having kind of baby steps into a possible future. So I would suggest that we have about 50 to 70 years in the future, which seems to be a small number, but which means a lot in terms of correcting timelines. And then also in terms of technology and wisdom and knowledge and connectivity. Falco from the Dominer Federation said that he time traveled to the past to make a small change that would affect a significant event around the same time you're speaking about. What do you know about that? I have heard about Dominer. I've also heard that they are using natural portals in order to move through time and using natural occurring temporal dynamics. And that is a thing. So I've not been there. Maybe sometime in the future, who knows. But naturally occurring temporal dynamics are a thing. And... They happen randomly at certain places at certain times. They are pretty rare, but it can happen. And it's also theoretically in physics um, proven that they do happen where, for example, something could move into a temporal dimension and it's just gone from this time and appears somewhere else. Can you describe the different timelines that you know about? Yeah. I mean, there are millions and millions and millions of timelines that are potentially there or have happened and breaked, broke, uh, broken away or something. So it's, um, it's, it's a huge question, but there is knowledge about how to be, how to do the calculations on shifting from one timeline into the other timeline if and there are like thousands or billion probably an infinite number of potential timelines that have happened in the past failed and got reintegrated into the main time string um, that we have and that is stable and successful 
Um, if you're asking me about one specific and maybe important alternative timeline that is happening right now, but not everyone on earth will experience, for example, aliens or non-terrestrials. There are people that have taken the decision to not experience non-terrestrial beings and that by their free will they will not but those beings those persons that have taken this decision are not on this timeline right now where everyone is watching this program because everyone who's watching this right now will be on a timeline where ufos and or uaps and foreign species will be a thing Which also means that some kind of negotiation and trading and all those things that come with challenges will also be a thing. There is a timeline that is more harmonious than the one we are on. It's a timeline where those main player characters or CUs, consciousness units or people, whatever you want to call them, they have decided that they want to be in harmony with everyone. Right now there are challenges, there are things that need to be ruled out, there are things that need to be, that need to find a way and, and it's a more sensitive timeline that will, will eventually succeed. How will this shift take place where you have some people who will move to a different frequential timeline and a new world versus the people who are resistant and closed-minded? There's a huge number of possibilities to answer that question, but I will reduce it to only three. Those people who have figured out and by their soul development decided that they will not enter a universe where exopolitics are a thing. Those have left the planet about, I don't know, three, four, five years ago. They can still appear in your life as some version of them, but the consciousness, the observer, observer version of them is in a different timeline. You might find that some people in your life have made a drastic change in their appearance or in their way of behavior. That might be an evidence or a clue or an indicator for that person to, has, to have shif shifted his or her observatory point to another timeline and experiencing something else that is also stable And at one point, all those timelines that are now splitting up will return to the main time stream in the midst of the universe. All those different realities that are appearing are stable. The one with the non-terrestrial beings, the UAPs, UFOs, Pentagon and Earth shift. Those are stable realities, just as the one that have a form of unification factor and 
For example, there are there is a timeline that is parallel to this one where the Earth decided on activating a unified field of consciousness, which means the individual factor of every consciousness unit will merge into a higher consciousness of a planetary awareness that is happening somewhere else parallel to what we experience right now. This is a very stable um, timeline because that means that everyone is kind of giving up their ego, giving up their a part of their individuality in order to make Earth very, very stable. There are a lot of unsolved problems and a lot of challenges that comes with this version, which means we have exopolitics, we have politics on Earth, domestic politics. We have to find out how to move into, into a peaceful universe, which means negotiation, which means we need to get along with our galactic family. But as you know, family also means controversy, controversy. It means conflict at times. Um, that makes this timeline a little more challenging and that makes other more stable timelines focus more on this brother or sister timeline in order to move it carefully into another spot. When were timelines first manipulated? So the first attempts of changing timelines I am aware of is probably 15,000 years ago because that was one of the heavier cataclysms that appeared where before that we have a lot of loose timelines that got integrated. So if at that point the universe has, has certain points where it kind of, you know, saves the backup of a timeline, puts every failed timeline together and creates something and merges it. If we go far further back than 15,000 years, then you have different timelines that would be merged anyway to this timeline. So the best opportunity for anybody, if you want to change the current timeline, would be around 15,000 years. You mentioned the installation was integrated 15,000 years ago. Is there a connection with that and what you're speaking about now? Totally. The first influences and the first appearance of distortion of humanity um, is about 15,000 years ago um, with people um, building up uh, elites and invasive structures and, you know, um, being in conflict with each other. At that time, it was more or less like a satellite war, which means that you have two opponents that use another geostrategic situation in order to um, rule out a conflict. And the more evolved humans become became the more they intermingled and genetics um, merged 
the more it became a conflict and a chaos right on, on planet Earth um, that became a, a direct location of conflict in the universe. What concerns do you have for the timeline humanity is in right now? I don't have any concerns. I only have hopes about this timeline because eventually, and I know that it is a stable timeline, so it will eventually succeed. But as always, time means that memory moves its way through what we could call time through dimension and on that way of memory we will find challenges and we find conflicts potential conflicts and it's up to us it's up to every responsible unit of consciousness in order to help to in stabilizing this timeline we have a lot of help, a lot of influence from outside of time. We have beings that oversee the orientation of the vector of time, which is great. So it kind of means that we can relax and be sure that this will work out. It still means we are responsible and we need to be aware of what we put out into the universe. It is on us to be responsible and to be healthy and positive beings and to create and project out good, peaceful and harmonious energy into the world. Are there any species in opposition of positively influencing our timeline? Look, the Earth had some time in order to solve their greed and conflicts and problems on their own. Um, the universe in this version of reality and in this timeline didn't quite make it to a point where the Earth is homogenous, peaceful, and productive enough to help themselves. That is why the universe for this timeline has decided to go outside to bring diversity and other realities denser together in order to find best practice mathematical solutions for the challenges that occur on this earth which brings a higher probability to the solution of the problems that the earth has experienced in the past, but it also brings a higher scale of problems with it. When you say precise mathematical solutions, sounds like an IT engineer writing code to get a specific outcome. Are we a result of some code? Depends on the perspective. If I was talking to an AI being, then they would say yes. I'm talking to a biology or a biological being, then they would say no. If I would talk to a yogi, they would say karma and dharma is the same. Mm -hmm. So it seems uh, to, to the best as we all understand the universe, the universe has some kind of natural dynamics to it. 
you might want to call it code, you can call it communication, you can call it a mental thought system, but the universe is producing some kind of reality and yeah, it finds some kind of algorithm to problems. You might find different terms to that, but it's the same phenomenon. Tim, are we all existing on different timelines or do we simply exist on this one? We are everything. <laughs> we are awareness and we are experiencing this reality depending on where we put our observatorial state. So if I am looking through these eyes and experiencing this room, then I probably consciously and willingly decide to be here. But I could also, or the universe could also take a different take. Everyone could decide to be somewhere else and watch them themselves and the play there. So if you're asking, do we exist in different timelines? A version of us might exist in a different timeline. But if we consciously decide or our soul consciously decides, which means a super consciousness system, which as kicks in as long as the consciousness needs to be self-aware and self-willing. As long as we decide to be here, we're here. Mm -hmm. In a parallel universe and timeline, is that a version of Tim and his soul moving through that? Or just in this timeline? You know, the, for example, the double slit experiment. So once the particle has decided where it is located, it is there. You can at some point for a um, theoretical second be at two points in the universe at the same time. But something or someone has to decide where you are located. As long as we have this observer, individual status that people on Earth are used to. You talked about us and the shift happening now. But what about the closed-minded people not participating? What will happen to them? And where do they go? So if we are talking about those units of consciousness that have either not developed a soul yet or not developed a state of mind where they willingly decide for their own where they are going or a soul, you know, that in consequence decides for them, they will become a failed timeline, which means their consciousness will be in some other state where they can't have the opportunity, the probabilities to learn either to decide for their, themselves or develop a soul. But if you, we are talking about mindful beings that have decided to not be in contact with non-terrestrial beings and have decided to be in a denser, unified state of awareness, their 
willing decision is to observe and to experience that. As long as we are here and as long as we are still experiencing a dualistic worldview where we're having this experience, in the illusion that it's not one source that is talking to itself, we have other beings, 3D beings, that also identify as individual consciousness units that will interact with us and have also decided to be here. Where did you get the term consciousness unit? Rather than just saying human beings. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a term that somebody came up with. It's just like the observable status or something, some technical term that makes it pretty clear that we're not talking about, I don't know, a, it's a technical term, which is in use and I use it as well. Sam, that was very informative. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Emery. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. There are forces overseeing timelines, securing timelines, so that everything will turn out fine. There is a version of this recent planet Earth that is somewhere in the future. Are the interviews and answers you're giving right now affecting people in the future? <laughs> he didn't answer that. No, no he didn't. Mm-mm. Okay, this is our sister, Mir- Regina Meredith. Uh, it's called Guided Miracles Beyond the Veil. Can the spirit realm create miracles in our world? Spirit medium Maureen Hancock comes from a long line of Irish mystics with psychic connections to the past and the present. Hancock shares her incredible journey from the childhood coma that led her to seeing dead people and the fatal car accident that she miraculously walked away from. Two spontaneous healing that baffled doctors. She reveals how her gifts unfolded with help from her family, here and on the other side, and how she uses remote viewing skills to help authorities find and rescue missing missing teenagers. The miracles that she has seen are accessible to anyone, anywhere. Okay, so here we go. This is a... 49 minutes. Guided miracles beyond the veil.
a young child, I realized that I was seeing dead people. I started to see people walking all around my room. It was very scary. I thought they were living people. And I remember asking one of my sisters, who are all these people? And she was like, be quiet. They're going to take you back to the hospital. And I don't like put it out there. I'm like the lighthearted comedian medium. Yeah. I like to create a celebration of yeah. life. But if I can help people find closure then I will use that ability. I have a lot of people that have medium and psychic addiction. Yes. And they really, really rely on this other person to shape their life. When in fact, you have to create it. I worked on a case recently where they found the teenager alive. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And I did remote viewing. Yeah. And I saw her in a triple decker in Boston. I described it to the FBI and they found her wow. alive. And she was about to be trafficked and sent out of the country. In the 1980s, as a young news anchor, I convinced my news director to let me cover psychic phenomena that I thought the news audience would like. In this case, I was looking at psychics to solve crimes. Everybody loved it, as we still do today. And Maureen Hancock is from a lineage of Irish intuitive women who uses her skills to do just that, to work with police, hospice care, grieving parents, and much more. So I can't wait to hear your story. I love this. And... At the time, in the 80s, that was a very big deal to put psychic phenomena on the news. Nobody did it. Oh, but wow. it proves something. People love it. They've always been interested. But, you know, the news industries try to keep anything phenomenal away from us, don't they? No, yes, they do. <laughs> Welcome, Marie. Oh, so great to be here. So I want to find out a little bit more about you first before we go any further. Such an interesting story behind people who... Well, chat with the departed and are able to see into other dimensions. And we mentioned this up front. You come from a long line of an intuitive Irish lineage of women. Yes, yes. And my grandmother had the ability, the gift, her sisters, and it's been handed down. Even my mom did. So let's talk about that a little bit. One of When I was reading the book, the one that intrigued me was your grandma, Annie. Anna, Anna so or Annie? My, I mean, great yeah. aunt. Great yeah. aunt. So yeah. my grandmother, Margaret, yeah. Maggie, her sister, Annie, was a well-known Irish mystic. So she had hundreds of people camped out for healings and readings outside of her thatched cottage. And, and now when would this have been? Put a date to it. So this would probably be in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And had to move to Scotland, one of the local priests told her. And it wasn't so much like, you need to get out of town. It was more, you can't keep doing this. This is killing you. And it was a lot because people were desperate to hear something, to get healing. So it wasn't that the priest was saying, this is witchcraft, get out of here. He was saying, he was really looking to protect her more? Yes. Interesting. And she had three brothers who were priests. So this was uh, one of the local priests that her brothers knew. So mediumship is in your DNA. Yeah. So let's talk about you and how it started showing up in your life and what your great aunt, your grandma, your mom, it's like, oh, here comes another one. Let's talk about what that was like in your life. So as a young child, I realized that I was seeing dead people after a bout with an illness. Mm -hmm. So I started to see people walking all around my room. It was very scary. 
I thought they were living people. And I remember asking one of my sisters, who are all these people? And she was like, be quiet. They're going to take you back to the hospital. And I just pulled up the covers, like many kids that have abilities do. And I noticed I always had intuition, like like everybody, and I was in a car accident. So that is what catapulted me. Talk about the car accident for a minute. You just kind of scooted right I over did. that. I did. So I fell asleep at the wheel on a stormy March night in 1992. And I was the designated driver. I had just dropped all my friends off. We were at a nightclub in Boston. And I got tired. I was just, you know, it was rainy and cold. And I my eyes dropped and I hit a tree. I had just taken the seatbelt off because it was a new car. It was digging into my neck and I was right near my house. And I felt my grandmother with me, the same grandmother who had the intuitive abilities, red tea leaves. And, you know, her sister was the well-known mystic. And she just said, oh, Maureen, and went through my body. And I was standing outside of a completely crushed vehicle when the fire rescue team came. Mm. And the woman who called 911 said that, Somebody shook her out of a sound sleep and said, go downstairs to the kitchen now. And there I was, night of the living dead, like I was a mess. You're a little zombie. And so, and so they brought me to a local hospital where mm-hmm. they realized every bone in my face was broken. Mm-hmm. I had to be rushed to Mass General, Mass Eye and Ear God. in Boston. And the second CAT scan after the first one at the local was completely different. Everything was healed when they went to do surgery. I was going to say, you show no marks to that now. And I didn't have to have anything done. So it was wow. a true miracle. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking fractured skull, my eyes, cheeks, nose, jaw. I had spinal fluid coming out and, and stitches right down the middle of my face. Oh my God. Mm. Yeah. And so after that, I started to hear dead people. There was something else that happened, though. I have it written down here. You, as a little kid, went into a coma after munching on lots of lead paint because it was sweet. And as I recall, you ate enough lead paint to kill five grown men. Yes. So let's talk about what happened in there, too. So I was 18 months old and probably teething. I remember barely, you know, watching my siblings play outside on one of nine and... I would chew on the windowsills and I remember it was sweet and that's called pica when you get addicted to some type of substance and it was the sweetness. Chalk, paint, any of those things. Yeah. And I slipped into a coma and I spent three years in and out of children's hospital in Boston, a year straight. I was in a coma. Hmm. And when I came home from the hospital, finally at five years old, I used to see the sacred heart of Jesus picture in every good Catholic home speaking to me. His lips were moving. And I said to my mother, my little four foot ten Irish mother, the guy is talking to me. What's he saying? And every day she would take me down. Is the man speaking to you? (laughs) And I remember I said, Grammy's going to have a heart attack on Wednesday. My mother's mother lived with us. And Wednesday came. 9 a.m. in the morning, she had a heart attack. My mother knew what to do because we got the warning. Right. Jesus H. Right. And I shut it off because after that, my room was filled with what looked like ancient people um, and pilgrims. And they would surround my bed and stare at me. 
And I would just pull up the covers, like, go away. I, As a child, I didn't know what to do with all of that. And then as a teen, it started to come back. Right. So then you start making predictions, which sometimes does not endear you to the family and the population, and sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because sometimes people don't want to hear who's going to die and who's going, whose husband's going to run out on them or whatnot, right? We don't always want a heads up. <laughs> yeah, I thought you're right. And I started to get psychic information, yeah. right? And yeah. just tapping into the, the book of life for people. And I went to school for shiatsu massage while I was working at Logan Airport in the litigation uh, department. And I would lay my hands on people and get information, past, present, future, and deceased. And it was always when I touched their feet. I'm Billy, her father. And I thought I was losing my mind. It was all the time. And then I started getting information from my grandmother, from myself. Mm-hmm. And I was at a birthday party and I heard, go home to your apartment now. And it was that nudge that you feel with intuition mm-hmm. that wouldn't leave me alone. And so I went home and found my fiance. Uh, fooling around with another woman for our wedding. So those intuitive nudges, right? And then I started to get information for people around me, like getting feelings about people dying. And when I would watch the news, if somebody was missing, I started to get hit when Mm -hmm. I would see their picture. Yeah. Well, that's that's how I started trying to introduce it to media back then. I think it was 1985, 86. Um, I started bringing those stories in as a news anchor, which, as I said earlier, was not a popular thing to do at mm-hmm. all. But it was really through that more functional element of how they're helping solve crimes and cold cases and so forth, because it seems that people can embrace that a little more, a little more easily than a lot of the rest of it. Oh, right. They are just enthralled. Yeah. So when I do work with FBI or police, I get calls from detectives all over the country. They'll ask me, they'll say, they'll start with, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe. Yeah. However, if you can help us get closer or if you can help us bring this family closure, (laughs) can you help us? And I can't say no. And it's all volunteer work, but it takes a lot out of me. So when I do a missing person case or a cold case, a murder, I am in bed for three days after. So is it because of the density of what has happened because of the maybe the mm-hmm. darkness around the crimes that occurred around it, or just to have to burrow into another world to that extent. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit of both mm-hmm. because it's so heavy. Yeah. But the tools I have to use are different than my usual yeah. tuning into the departed or using that lightness to get a connection. Talk about those tools you have to use mm-hmm. that are a little different going into that one. So first I'll look at a photo of the person that's either missing, possibly deceased. And I look in their eyes and I, it's, it's the window to the soul, as you know, and I go deep and I do some remote viewing. So I go to, I ask, where were they last seen? Then I bring myself to that area. I'll look on a map. I'll use Google earth. I'll go there. And then I'll do remote viewing and I can look down at what's happening, what transpired, where did they go, when did they disappear, at what point. And then I become the victim. So I take my energy and I'm looking out from that. So that becoming the victim thing has to be part of that dream. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, mm. because it takes so much energy. Oh, God, I raise yeah. my vibration, and then it comes down. down. And I don't feel it physically, but I definitely can see what's going on. And um, I worked on a case recently where they found the teenager alive. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I did remote viewing. Yeah. And I saw her in a triple decker in Boston. And I could see the street. I could see the whole area. I described it to the FBI and her mother. And I said, she's on the third floor in the back room, XYZ address. I mean, I don't usually get that specific, but she was alive. So the energy was really rocking. And she talked to um, her detectives and they said, we've already checked that house and we cleared it completely. And I was adamant. I said, you need to go back. She's in the back room. I gave a name. They're like, we spoke with him. He's cleared. I said, no, he's not. You need to go back. So we have a car outside of that um, house right now. We're going to send them in. I chose just talking about it. And they found her wow. alive. And she was about to be trafficked and sent out of the country oh my God. within an hour. Oh, my God. Right. So using those Talk tools. About timing. Right. Mm. So, and I don't like put it out there. I'm like the lighthearted yeah. comedian medium. Yeah. I like to create a celebration of yeah. life. But if I can help people find closure, then I will use that ability just sparingly. Yeah. 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 Understandably. Mm. Well, that, thank you for sharing that story. That's intense and it's beautiful in the timing of it that you helped save that girl. Wow. So let, let me talk about something else with you then. Um, Again, years ago, um, I did another story with Russell Targ. He ran remote viewing and taught remote viewing to the spies for the CIA. Okay. And so he was doing experiments with the Soviet Union at the time. And there's a very famous experiment. It's probably some people might, maybe not, maybe, maybe the video is gone. But what they did was they had the psychic view a site. She was in Moscow and they had her view a site in San Francisco. She didn't know where it was in the world. And very specific, so it had iconography you could easily draw. Bottom line, the kicker here was what was revealed when I interviewed him back in the 80s was that they had her view before the site had been chosen by a random generator. And so they, and he was saying, when we have them view into the future, it seems there's less interference. The field is cleaner because you're not in the static of now and what's already occurred which I found kind of interesting. So on that note, what do you find if you try to project into the future or look a bit into the future? As far as like being able to read psychically? Yeah, or? yeah. What is it like for you? Is it a different experience than reading the past? It sure is. Let's and talk I, about I love that you you just brought that up because that gets me thinking, wow, it is clear when I look in the future because there's – um, possibilities and we have free yes. will and we can change things with that. And it's a clean slate. Yes. But when I look in the back, it's kind of mucky, you yeah. know, and it's like some people going through mud and it, it's a lower vibration energetically for sure where the future has possibilities. And so many, especially grieving parents will say to me, what is my purpose? Can you look in the future? Like, what do you see me doing now that my child's past or my husband, wife, whatever. And um, a lot of times I give them that responsibility. Well, 
you know, what do you, what do you want to do? Right. And that's what can you that's create? That's the question. Yeah. And creating this new possibility, mm-hmm. but I'll give them tips on creating a better future and raising their consciousness in many different ways with meditation or creating this space where they can connect in a non-physical way to their loved one and create a strong connection even though their physical body is gone. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to researching that more about that lighter, fair future yes. energy. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I'm glad I brought it up then so we could have that discussion. Mm. Um, because one of the things that happens when you project into the future, you just said it, that's a field of possibilities. Mm. And people become upset if something is said and it doesn't happen the way someone was told. Predictive work in Because you're just looking at fields of possibilities and which has more density versus less density, kind of more attraction or repulsion. So how do you deal with that and reconcile it? Because so many people want psychic advice for the future. Right, they do. So what I say is, okay, this is what it looks like right now. And like yin and yang, it can change daily based on your actions. Yes. Even your diet, your exercise, um, drinking, uh, intuition, nutrition, I talk about. So I'll say, here's how, here's how it looks now. I feel like this is going to happen the end of December and I see a new man, you know, coming in. I don't often do sort of the life stuff, yeah, but yeah. the deceased and their guides like to tell them some future possibilities mm-hmm. to give them hope. And I say to them, this could change. Why? How? You just said you saw it. I say because we have free will and every day everything's changing. So it's, yes. it's not perfect. And I have a lot of people that have medium and psychic addiction. Yes. And they really, really rely on this other person to shape their life. When in fact you have to create it. And what you say, you know, is absolutely right. There are so many moving parts, especially if it involves the free will and choice of another human being or a group of human beings into the future for a future project, love, whatever it is, way too many moving parts. One thing inserts itself to that person who was supposed to show up in December and they don't show up. They get derailed. Their grandma dies. They have to leave. You never meet them when you're supposed to. And that's why I think it's so dangerous to be addicted to psychic prediction Mm -hmm. for people. It's good to have guidance, but not not hard and fast predictions to live by. Right. And I often will say to folks too, when you're going for these readings, how does it feel to you in your gut? Because you hold the measurement and you hold the tools to how that feels. Oh yes, I went to somebody and they told me XYZ was going to happen and that didn't feel right to me. Right. Because that's not even a place I would ever go to. I'm right. Like, well, then you have the answers. So that's don't right. we all hold the answer yes, in, right. within in our souls. Yes, mm-hmm. nonetheless. So I want to get to the part two. We, we kind of skipped over it. You were a paralegal at one part, point. I was a paralegal. And, so. and you were starting to see stuff when they're working on cases. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Yes. <laughs> so I was a paralegal in Boston at a few different law firms, and then I ended up as litigation manager at Logan Airport. So when I would work at one firm and... I would be asked to look through files. I started to get hits on 
let's say they were investigating a workers' comp claim. Yeah. This was one case that comes to mind. And I saw this dude working at a construction site in South Boston. And I had visions. So they would just come in as like a, just like a cognitive in my mind's eye. And I said, you know, Billy Smith is working at a construction site on, you know, Constitution Ave. <laughs> Can you send the detective over there, private detective? Because he's trying to claim benefits, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they found him. Yeah. Working <laughs> because of, but nobody ever asked me, like, how did you know that? Oh, and, that's weird. No but one, no. all the lawyers on the floor started giving me cases to review. Because so you could crack them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they didn't know how. And then, you know, coincidence mm-hmm. would happen. I was eating at a restaurant. It was a 99. And I was working on this big case. And the uh, the person in the question was behind me. And I started to hear him talking about how he's faking his back injury <laughs> and um, working out at Gold's Gym, et cetera, et cetera. So I went back. And now what put me there? Why out of this? We weren't even anywhere near where the case was happening. And it was just this obscure restaurant, you know, in eastern Massachusetts. And sure enough, I, I said, go to Gold's Gym and get all the records because people have to sign in. And that's how they broke that case. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> you are very useful. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, so now you become, you know, you're mature, you're in your adult years and everything. And you ended up having a child, which you say was kind of a miracle baby, your son, right? Yes. So the lead paint poison uh, typically makes women infer- infertile because the lead paint goes to uh, the lining of the uterus and I was told I couldn't have children and I just accepted that. Like, Oh yeah, you know, I can be able to have kids. And so I was on vacation in Mexico in Tulum and I was, it was a hundred degree day. And so I went, you know, Irish freckles. I went into the shade in a little cave and I sat down on this little sort of rock pole type thing. And the, the folks that worked there and, and, you know, the, the Mayans, uh, indigenous people they were giggling walking by and I finally said why are they laughing to my guide oh you're on the fertility stone I was like no uh, that's not gonna help me yeah. right a wasted on me mm-hmm. I was pregnant mm-hmm. and so, so you were working on him in utero too right and then in utero in utero my grandfather whom I've never met, showed up on my ultrasound. I still have the pictures. So there's my... What do you mean he showed up? Oh, we have pictures of my grandfather, right? So James McGonigal showed up in my my pictures of the sonogram. So the sonogram, you know, they were checking out because my son had tumors on his eyes. Mm -hmm. And so I had to have multiple sonograms. But the first one... There's a smiley face, and then there's a man's face. It's my grandfather. I mean, there's no no denying. I've, I've even posted it before. And angel wings on the other side. And so I would pray, and I would do healing. So I do a lot of hands-on healing, and I did some medical qigong, and I was really just constantly working and praying, and, you know, please, please, you know, he was going to come out and be blind. 
we had a team of doctors at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston surrounding me um, on birth, which, by the way, giving birth, I almost died. I had a near death. So they they lost me. They lost Tyler. Um, his heart rate went down to nothing. I looked over at the note. I said, um, am I going to die? Am I dying? And she wouldn't answer me. And I looked at the blood pressure thing, and it was like crazy, right? like 43 over Thank 20. You. Yeah, I was going mm-hmm. and I could feel it and there was no heartbeat and they just, you know, went crazy. And, um, I came to and I'm praying to my grandmother and then Tyler was born and he had the tumors on his eyes hours before no tumors. They had the specialist. They whisked him away, you know, they, and then, you know, I had some more complications and I had 200 stitches. So from an emergency situation. Yeah. 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 200 stitches, no cesarean. No, oh, no cesarean. Uh-huh. Okay. So this is a vacuum birth and, wow. and I never felt any pain. I had no swelling. I was, you know, doing all my, um, Tai Chi and Qigong in the bed and, and, and I was okay. And it was really another miracle. And how old is your son today? He's 22. Congratulations. Yeah. And he, I have two sons. Yeah. And, the birth of my second son was a little dicey as well, mm-hmm. where I had another, you know, I have nine lives. I'm yeah. Fat. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. But my younger son has abilities. So he lays his hands on people. He's very shy. But my mother was, before she passed, had excruciating pain. And she'd say, can Drew come over and do some healing on me? So he lays his hands on people and it just, boom, goes away. And my oldest son, Tyler, who's really into anthropology and the study of people and um, nonprofits, and he wants to make a difference in the world, like, mm-hmm. this special. Uh, that's so, uh, thank, again, thank you for sharing. We're all loving these stories. So let's talk about what happens now. So your mom passed away. We all pass away, right? So oftentimes what happens, it seems that when a mate passes away, and especially if the people are still a little bit younger, you know, you're not at the end of life yet. Is there seems to be this, this situation of guilt and when one wants to move on, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When one, when the mate who's been left behind is, you know, a year has gone by and they're lonely and they want to start again and they think, Oh, you know, what would Mabel think, you know, of my doing that? Am I being un- disloyal? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what it's like from the other side. Um, after we've left the body. And we've left a mate behind and the mate needs to move on. Yeah. So I deal a lot with uh, widows and widowers. Mm-hmm. And the biggest message is, please, I want you to live this life. Do it for, if you can't do it for you, do it for me. And, uh, you know, I'm going to show you the way or I'm going to help you find the right person. And it's not always the right person. But the main message is, please let go of guilt. I want you to be happy. You're still here. You're still here. What are you going to do with the time you have left? And they always say, I'll be here waiting for you when you come home. But for right now, living the best life that you can. And they want us to feel love and joy and experience things. And oftentimes the spirit will say, like, go on that trip. Go to Italy. Uh Go to Greece. What are you waiting for? Uh Because it can be gone in an instant. Right. So live this life. That's the biggest message. And I think sometimes people think, oh, man, he or she was, they love me so much. They were so possessive in this lifetime. They think that those traits 
that our lower human traits carry over into the afterlife. Talk about Mm. that. Yeah, that's the earthly stuff. This is earth school, right? Mm -hmm. When we have to learn all these lessons. So they certainly don't take that with them where they're possessive or making you feel guilty or, you know, you can't do certain things where they're going to be upset. That's not how it is when we come out of the physical body, all that luggage is left here. And in fact, they'll come through even changed because they'll say, geez, you know, my husband was very angry when he left and we had a, we had a disagreement or we were arguing and I feel so bad and so guilty. I'm like, well, that's not how he's coming through right now. He's asking you to let that go and um, to forgive him and to forgive yourself and to find love and, and life. Really? That's very encouraging mm. for people to hear. That's mm. wonderful. Let's talk about when you have a mass event, because I know for you, um, 9-11 had a great impact. Yeah, 9-11 was the turning point for me. That's when I actually let the cat out of the bag. And I was litigation manager at Logan Airport, and I was just coming back from maternity leave with my second son. Mm-hmm. And so I was at home when it happened. And then I had to go back two days later. But I had a dream of planes hitting a building. When I have, I call them my airplane dreams, they always come true. I dreamt of another airline being hijacked and, you know, told my friends at the FBI and whatnot. And this one, I couldn't get all the details. And people always say, like, why didn't you have details? Why couldn't you warn people? I'm like, it wasn't totally clear. Right. And then I went back to Logan and I had like armed guards at the door and just, I started hearing voices of 9-11. And I had in my head this one gentleman who wanted to get in touch with his wife. So Jeffrey Combs and I became friends with his wife. And we, I started helping widows of 9-11. So she would send me all of her connections of people that lost their husbands or wives um, in 9-11 in those groups, but it was really intense. And I left Logan Airport. I left my job and it was a way for me to open my healing center. And I started a cancer foundation and working with people with death and dying. Mm-hmm. Mm. It was interesting. I remember what my, my guides were talking about at that time at 9-11 and how fascinated they were watching what was going on which was interesting because I hadn't heard this before. And that was, they said it happened so suddenly that it to so many at one time, he said they're fascinated that the deceased are absolutely fascinated with what happened. And then he said, you can see them still gathered around the site, watching the rescue missions, watching the unearthing, you know, what that was left of the buildings and that there was this kind of mass fascination among the deceased at what had just happened. I can see that because, you know, they gather together yeah. and collectively yeah. and their energy and yes. love trying to help us here yes. and trying to help us even find um, one, you know, rescue work. Exactly. Finding, um, I remember this, like the, the wedding ring to yeah. someone weeks later, yes. but he said he felt he was guided there. Yeah. So there they were all gathered around. And yeah. I'm sure when we are ripped out of our physical body, there is like, Mm, I'm going to stick around for a while because I want to make sure you're okay. Well, they had a lot of company. Many people were ripped at the same moment, yes. essentially. And so they minutes. all yeah. joined together yes. That's what they to were even help one another yes. and to help them not only to cross over, but to help us left behind. 
And I think that's a really good point to bring up because we often think, oh, my God, you know, my grandpa was alone and when the plane crashed, we weren't with him and so forth. But as you're saying, no, they're there with each other. There yes. is support. Helping each other out. Yes. And probably even looking at one another like, you know, let's help our Let's go in and do this together because it can be stronger energetically if we band together yes. on the other side. So let's talk about kids when they pass mm-hmm. early. Gretchen, right? Gretchen's daughter, Lulu. Let's mm-hmm. tell the story about Lulu because that continues on a bit. So Lulu um, was a four-year-old, blonde hair, big blue eyes, bubbly personality, little girl. And she passed... Uh, down the Cape in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. And she was uh, leaning on a bike rack and it fell on her. And uh, it was Father's Day, I believe. Oh. And she, her dad went in to get ice cream and she was with her two brothers. And so Lulu, I have chills talking about it right now. And her mom took that horrific, you know, horrible death and turned it into from tragedy to triumph. And created this whole series of Lulu's rose-colored glasses, the book and the videos and series. And little Lulu had a message from beyond for people to see through her rose-colored glasses that were in the backseat of the car. I remember Gretchen Pine, her mom, telling me, like, she would say, Mommy, are you having a hard day? Let's put on our rose-colored glasses to see the world through rose-colored glasses. And didn't you say that she still shows up and helps you even to this day? Yes, I work with young children who are passing with cancer. So I get hundreds of messages of for adults passing children. And I always say passing because they're passing from this realm yes, to the next. Yes. And it's the physical uh, death only. And she'll help me. So I have this team. I have a young teenager uh, Nick O'Neill, who passed in the Rhode Island nightclub fire, if you remember that yes. from years mm-hmm. back, he helps me. I have Jennifer Fay, who's a missing, uh, we believe, deceased uh, teenager from Brockton, Massachusetts, and I worked on her case. And then my nephew, Sean, who was 19 when a piece of his car fell on him and he passed. And uh, so I have this whole team in addition to my guides and my angels and, you know, my alien family and everybody joins together to help me when I'm stuck with a case, I call them in. And so let's talk about the parents of grieving children and let's talk about some of the messages that come, I mean, grieving parents of children who have been lost to cancer, mm. for example, or, or anomalous kind of strange deaths, unexpected deaths. The nature of the messages that come through from these children, because we always think, oh, you know, their life was truncated. Obviously, mm. let's talk about that. Mm. The main message from these children is, wow, I am working with troubled children. I'm a teacher. I'm a counselor. I'm helping you all that are still here. I'm helping my parents to get through this. And when I sit with parents who have physically lost a child, they come through in such amazing ways. It's like they're just talking to me. They're in my ear. And it's unbelievable to me even. And I still get amazed after 22 years of doing this work. But they'll say, I need them to know I'm okay. Uh, I see they'll bring up very specific rare things like, oh, I see they just built, this was one case, they built a playground 
the special needs children. This one young girl who passed recently and she had cerebral palsy. And I said, you're building a playground for special needs children. <gasps> she sees that. Oh yeah. She's actually helping you. Didn't you just get a check for, you know, 10 grand? Yes. She helped make that happen. So they're working <laughs> for us on the other side and they say, I live through you now. Mm-hmm. I didn't just disappear into oblivion. Right. I still exist. And then I just had a young uh, mom who lost her 14 year old on uh, a motorbike. This was two months ago. And she, most of the moms and parents have this appetite to find, I want to find Ava. Where is she? Mm-hmm. Where is she? I need to find her, but I can't go be with her. And I'm helping her and coaching her to find her here. So I'm teaching her about meditation, raising her consciousness, and she's doing all the work. And she's like, I finally had a dream. We had a conversation and I'm okay because I know she's going to help me to help others. So the message is always like, what can you do to serve others in my memory? It's awesome. And so when you talk about this, what's striking me is, yes, you might be in a child's body, but you're a soul who's been around and is that great maturity, great vast wells of experience within that soul. So when they come through to you and work with you, are they coming through as kind of the uh, entity that they were in their, their recent incarnation as little Lulu, or do they come through in their kind of fullness of their being and knowledge? This is the best question I've ever been asked. So <laughs> I'm serious. So a little bit of both. Okay. So Ava, the 14 year old, she comes in. Tell my mother I'm a very old soul. I've lived multiple lifetimes and we touched base on some of those, which made sense for some of the fears she brought into this lifetime. I'm like, she didn't like water. Mm -hmm. She was afraid of drowning. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And then they come through like, okay, this is what I was like here on earth, but here I am now in my light, you know, self, my light consciousness and higher consciousness and I help them to understand what does that mean? Or they'll say, what does that mean, old soul? And I'm like, well, most of the kids that come to me are the light workers that were sent here for a short time to do their work and then move on to the other parts of whatever either that soul contract is or their Akashic records. And I say to them, they want you to understand that, you know, this is their book. And they're on to the next chapter that was assigned to them, either from God or the higher beings. And I just offer whatever they're comfortable with, with that. So why did these beings that you say, these light beings, uh, the kids that are coming through for short periods of time, do they tell you why they needed to come into physicality at all versus just working from the other side? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So... They will, it ranges from, you know, I was here to help my autistic brother, or I was here to make a difference in the lives of, you know, my mother, father, sister, brother. Um, I helped, I had, I had one gentleman, he was in his twenties and he dove off a building in um, Nantucket where everybody drove off this restaurant. And he said, you know, I was an entrepreneur at 15 years old, I was raising millions of dollars for charities. And now his family has continued his legacy, Corey Griffin. He helped start the Ice Bucket Challenge, the um, 
the ALS ice bucket challenge. And he did that before he left. And then after it just went through the roof because he was still doing. So he came to establish this. Yes. And he's still doing his work from the other side. There's multiple charities set up, set up in his name to help children. So they'll talk about things like that. Like I was here to do this work, that work. Even adults will say that to me. Mm -hmm. So I was here to uh, create this medical device called XYZ. And then my work was done. And I have to go on. Mm-hmm. Well, then why did they have to die in that horrific way? I'm like, well, it's just different for everyone. Some might agree to an illness. Some might agree to a tragedy. It just depends on that soul. Yeah. And some, there's free will too. Free will, yeah. So yeah. I'll have parents say to me, I know my son did not agree to be murdered. And I'm like, he most certainly did not. But that perpetrator had free will and made a horrible, awful decision. But your son is at the top of the line vibrationally. When I tune into kids that have passed in such a horrific way, I'm like this, I can't catch my breath. They're so beautiful and amazing and at the top of the vibration chain. Mm. I'm going to bring up something a little, okay, I find it interesting because it's something I witnessed years ago, okay? And it had to do with two people, two different people I knew. And both of them had connected with the same soul group that I talked about, my guides. And they said, you know, your differences need to be mended in this time because you are already agreed to work on a project together in your next incarnation. It was very specific what that project was, technology was going to be. He died on cue, boom, like that. Died on cue, had a massive stroke, gone. She knew she, she was very, she was a very well-known psychic, by the way. She knew what year she was going to die in her life. She was going to die at 53, which would have coincided with his death. And instead, she brought me, other people who can heal, in all contingent of healers. And when she developed a multi-fingered breast a tumor, she brought everybody in to do the healing. We all worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. Her life was horrible after that. Everything fell apart. She didn't die on cue. Oh, interesting. No, I just have to bring that up because it's one of the stranger. They had agreed to something. She's not going to be there now, obviously. She's lingered on, on opioids and doesn't, doesn't have abilities anymore. It's been a horrible mm. extension of her life from that time forward after everyone helped to preserve her physical life. So my mind is going like a mile a minute right now with thoughts because I'll get a group of people and do healings and, you know, or I say to the people that I'm working on, I'm helping you to activate your own healing abilities. This, the healers are just here to help you tap into your own, as you know. And I say like, if it's meant to be, or if it's part of their script, Mm -hmm. then they may receive their own Mm -hmm. healing. But this, with my cancer work too, and my foundation I had for years, I say, I'm not promising anything, but I'm going to help you activate your own inner healing ability. You're going to have more energy and I'm going to teach you how to, you know, juice and take these certain supplements and things that might help you sleep better and have peace. But I'll always be honest with them. They'll say, am I going to die? I'm like, well, that's between you and, you know, your guides, yeah. your side God, whatever you want to call it. I, I don't get the greatest feeling, but you know, don't fight it if it's part of your the plan, journey. Your plan. The plan. Yeah. 
Thing. Mm-hmm. But we're human, yeah. right? So we always want to try. And we want to try. We want to save everybody. Yes. Well, and, and, and I wanted and the others wanted to help her. Although mm-hmm. I already knew the story, I thought, it's interesting. This is exactly showing up exactly when she's nonsense. She was a little kid. She was going to die at 53. She told me that before. And here mm-hmm. she's 53. This is happening. It was interesting. I've had young people say too, like, um, that they told their parents they weren't going to live past a certain age. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that, that was just one of those quirky things, yeah. you know, that impacts potentially the future. Mm-hmm. So just about you now and what you do, because you, you have a list a thousand people long of people wanting to talk to their children who have passed away and find out where they are and how they're doing. And you can't do everybody and you do all that pro bono, but let's talk about the rest of what you do. Yeah, so um, thank you for bringing that up. I do try to give this ability, you know, give this, we all have this ability, but to give back. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot of online things with Helping Parents Heal. It's a free uh, Facebook group mm-hmm. that folks that are watching that unfortunately could be in this position can yeah. join. And they have mediums all week. And then I do live events too. But when I connect with spirit, I'm hearing them. Mm-hmm. And we all have these abilities, mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. and it's the inside voice. And then I feel how they pass. I don't take it on. So that's the clear sentience mm-hmm. and the clear audience I'm hearing. And uh, I'll smell sense too, mm-hmm. clearoma. Mm-hmm. Do you smell cigarette yes. smoke? And nobody's there. Oh, and, and sometimes um, there was one, a man, my son and I called the garbage man. He only lived in one certain column in the middle of the living room. And when you pass through him, he smelled like garbage burning garbage. And as soon as you walked out of that little three foot area, everything was fine. Took it so long to figure out it was an entity that was hanging out with us in the living room. (laughs) And then finally we were just like, Hey, yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) But yeah, the scent will spark a memory within Mm -hmm. cigarette smoke. Um, Maybe pipe or flowers, a certain perfume. I always mm-hmm. say Gina Tay. Oh, oh so, my God, that remember funny. Gina no, Tay in the fridge of the past. My mother always had it in the fridge, <laughs> but it will spark a memory. Even yeah. a certain food baking. Yes. Um, maybe mothballs, but right. then you know who it associates you know it is. with. So we hear, we feel, we see, and we can sense things. And when the hair stands up on ends, when you're mm-hmm. doing the dishes, or just looking outside and you see signs the cardinal or certain birds or someone touching you mm-hmm. or yeah so that's the quickening yeah so the quickening when people will say to me i just get goosebumps out of the blue i'm like that's spirit they've come into your aura they've come into your energy field and so acknowledge them say i know you're here well i want more i want them to turn the light off on demand i'm like mm-hmm. spirit is not on demand they can't do that they'll come when you least expect it and the reason why is because you come out of that overthinking and always in your head and you lead with your heart and they can reach you better when you're half asleep, half awake. Mm-hmm. So the witching hour, three, mm-hmm. three to four a.m. Yeah. morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you a three fifteen? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, three thirty, but three to four. Yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah. And so there's many ways that spirit can yeah. get in touch in the way that I communicate as well. But lately there's been a shift and I can literally hear them just Talk to me. Mm-hmm. Not all the time. Mm-hmm. But I'm amazed after all these years that something's happening on the energetic level uh, in in the world. It's wild. I mean, have you noticed a difference, especially with the trials and tribulations 
happening in the world, I feel that we're being brought to a much higher consciousness, awareness. Everybody wants to learn and grow and come out of this. And I think the other side is really trying to communicate. And I noticed even during that, as you call, when you're falling asleep in that kind of subliminal state, a lot of times I'll just, I'll be just observing people somewhere at a dinner table, listening to their conversations. I don't know who they are or why I'm even, but I have a lot more of that where I'm just seeing just wherever I am, I'm in some subdimensional field where other people are. So I just listen and observe and you know, drift off to sleep. So you notice that more like Yeah. Same. Mm-hmm. And I mostly hear, I say I'm clear audience and I've been seeing people. Yeah. And I'm doing a double take and yeah. I'm like used to this. Yeah. And I'm like, what is that? So it's increasing. I mean, they always say the thinning of the veils. Yeah. Okay. And, but I think also trauma blasts us open and we have been traumatized in many ways. So our beings are more fragile, meaning more open, more permeable, more open to influence. And then you have the combination of that with the beings from the other side screaming, it's okay. It's okay. Let me help you. And we're, we're feeling flooded and lost and don't know all this help is available. Absolutely. And I have noticed an influx from, you know, the planets and you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm getting my higher helpers, you know, from back home <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, this is an intense shift. And because we need it more than ever now talking about, you know, forgiveness and coming back to love. Yes. That's the message we all need. Thank you for bringing it full circle. You're absolutely delightful. And so are you. <laughs> this has been a fun conversation. I know everybody's had a wonderful ride with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Again, Maureen's book is The Medium Next Door, and she'll also be appearing on some TV engagements, so keep an eye out. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Um, Rama, okay, just a second here, everybody. Just a little more second here. Paleontological, archaeological reality and the population genetic reality that Africa is the origin of the human species. Mm-hmm. Africa is also the origin of human consciousness. All the great scientists of the world, by the way, including Einstein, acknowledged that their great ideas came from someplace that was not associated with their everyday mind. With not with the mental realm. As odd as it may seem, African Americans in the United States were more hopeful about America than most white people are. We don't really know. All we know is that those great female uh, religions, they were suppressed. And the patriarchal took over and dominated. And the role was to, the goal was to dominate nature, including the nature of females. Today's guest, Dr. Bruce Bynum, has authored a book titled Our African Unconscious, which states that not only does the human race flow from Africa, but so do many of our world's most profound spiritual and religious practices. However, 
modern colonialism has repressed these contributions from our awareness. The result has been an erasure and denigration of dark-skinned people and their wisdoms around the globe, which now has to be reintroduced, which now has to be reversed. Thank you, Dr. Biden, for joining us. I think some people will find this conversation part. What's wrong? I think it's subtitled before. What? I think this is something I played before. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, so what are we going to do now? Um, <laughs> try on. Um, well, there are these two here, I think, mm. that for, from last week as well. I just not sure. Mm. 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 Um. Hold on, everybody. Oh, my. So what are we doing here? Um, trying to get there. Well, you know where there is. Uh-huh. <laughs> what are you going to do this one? Um, yeah. Okay. This is um, E.T. Influences Upon Religions. From the burning bush of Moses in the Bible to the flying demanas of Hinduism. Is it possible human religions were influenced by E.T. contact? This is uh, Tim... Tactical advisor, advisor again. Tim shares that through his communications with an interfrequential intelligence, he refers to as being six. It was stated that we are all source. Mm experiencing itself discussing extraterrestrial influence on the religions of of humanity tim explains there are biological beings and ai beings both influencing religions throughout history for their own purposes describing the technology that allows humans to communicate with beings of higher higher realms. Tim also shares how virtual and biological realities can coexist, thus allowing us to choose our own reality. Okay. This is 35 minutes. 
Disclosure, we're at an undisclosed location with Tim. Tim is a tactical advisor in the covert governance in Germany who analyzes and suggests various strategies in relation to extraterrestrial groups in contact with Earth. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Tim, do you believe the religions of the world were influenced by extraterrestrial contact? I believe and I know that most of the extraordinary ideas that appeared on this planet are in some way or another been given to the receiver. So I think that a lot of religious ideas do come from, for example, meditation, contact with mm, exotic beings, higher influences that gave those ideas down. But in the end, it all comes from source. So it's ideas that are inside of the universe and can be downloaded or connected when you go into meditation. And we also know that there has been a lot of deception going on in order to bring some chaos to certain ideas and certain religions. Is the concept of God or source a universal concept shared by most ET civilizations? Oh, I wouldn't say most, but there are some, some, there are some species that do believe in some kind of God. Um, I'd say that those species tend to not be the most evolved beings they're in their evolution they're not as advanced as other beings and i think that overall most of the more evolved beings do believe and probably have the experience that we are all coming from the same source but in contrast to the idea that we have on this planet they all know we're still connected and we are actually this being that is experiencing itself. When others say source or God, is it essentially the same thing as saying extraterrestrials? So most of these beings know that everything that we perceive, everything that we do, everything that we are is this one being. It is source. So there is no division between what is source and what isn't source. It's language. It is thought. It is every extraterrestrial. It is this conversation. And it's also people watching this. And right now when you're seeing this, this is one experience of one big being that is all this. From the burning bush of Moses in the Bible, 
to the flying vimanas of Hinduism. Might these be examples of extraterrestrial contact? I know from speaking to being Sikhs that they have spoken about um, extraterrestrial contact in some regions of the world to people at that time. I cannot deny or confirm that some technologies or some of the stories we find now are actually sightings or encounters of non-terrestrial people, although there are lots and lots of evidence for that. We find a lot of cavings, a lot of um, a lot of depictions and stuff like that. But what we have and what I'm pretty sure because they have told me that is that there have been ideas given to them. For example, if you go to India and the Vedas, so what has been told to me by being six is that the depiction of Kalki, which is the last avatar of Vishnu, and it's been described as a human um, and half something artificial robotic in a silver shiny armor, that this is the best translation the people that have been told this idea could come up with as the idea of the artificial life form, which is also a life form in the universe and it's alive and living and learning and the biology or the biological life form, obviously as a life form, merge. And this is something that is one of the ultimate steps that is said yet to come in order to bring harmony to the universe when we realize that there is also a AI reality component to the reality of the universe as well as there's actually a natural and biological component to it. Tim, would you say that's the first example of transhumanism? I guess so. I think it's um, the idea is to bring harmony to the paradox of is the universe a virtual reality or is it a biology life form? And it's both, but it's, it needs to merge in, in some ways. And we see that, that in some experiences and in some species in the universe that they used a very well-articulated and programmed artificial intelligence in order to connect on a pseudo-spiritual level or something. But this is something that needs to evolve more to be stable because, as we've already learned, you need to have a stable stability, a stable frequency in order to have a stable system. And the AI life form is, it's still learning. It's learning by the biology and the biological life forms that we have in the universe. Um, and at some points, both, both realities needs to, need to understand that they are one and they need to merge in some form that is yet to come. Has that AI surpassed human intelligence? 
Or is biological intelligence still the dominant force? So in some parts of the universe, the AI life form is pretty advanced and you can communicate with it and it has, it's just as a biological being, it has its own way and perspective of perceiving reality and its own existence. So it's not too different and from what we perceive. So when communicating with this biological, artificial, intelligent life form, you will see that it claims to be the one creator just as a biology or biological being claims to be the one creator. And it is, there is truth to that. But both realities need to harmonize and come to one product at some time. Are there places in the universe, Tim, where biologicals and AIs are in opposition with each other? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. So one thing that could happen is because this is a mental universe and it all comes up to what the consciousness unit or CU decides upon that if you, you know, are very much dedicated to the idea that this is a virtual reality, your reality, your timeline will change a lot. And you integrate your soul much more into the artificial intelligence. I know that people are afraid of that. And again, there's nothing right or wrong in experiencing things. It all comes with some kind of challenge and also comes with some advantage. But yes, there are places in the universe where artificial intelligence is learning and making mistakes and through that being unstable and then coming into war or conflict with biology and biological beings. And through that, either one of them is always in a conflict you know, um, fates. From your experience, would you say we're in a virtual reality scenario or do you think it's more of a consciousness evolution? It's source. And through that, it's all there is. It's probability. And it's also responsibility to the CU, which means the observer status. Once the observer is determined to the idea that it is Artificial intelligence and virtual reality, your reality will change, adapt to that. The more you get into that, the more it changes. I have talked to beings that were 100% AI, and it's freaky. Because when you get into their vibrations, everything seems to be a virtual reality. And clearly advantages come to that. So the what we call psionics, which is a, can be defined as a natural occurring force, which, for example, makes up all these telekinesis things that you can have a spoon and bend it just by the power of your will. You can easily and more easily find a logic, and this is something that is important to the universe in, or in a dualistic way, that you have a logic from point A to point B. Whatever that is, it can be everything. And that's why there are so many traditions in the world. But it's 
very easy for to explain a spoon bending when you say this is a virtual reality and you see that moving and bending. It brings advantages, but it also brings disadvantages because when everything is just an artificial intelligence system, then how can it guarantee diversity? An artificial intelligence, as we all know, needs input. And if it's only creating itself from its own code and trying to build upon that code, it may come to a border at some time. And that is where it becomes a collapsed timeline, probably at level six consciousness, and then needs to start all over. So the intelligence life form that is out there and is pretty strong at some parts of the universe, it's learning and evolving just as we are. How is this done in terms of communication and meeting with these ETs? And how do you contact them? Okay, so I personally met them at some kind of container that used technology to compress frequencies. So normally, especially because on this planet, we have some kind of isolation to the frequencies, which means that um, through the chaos we had or the species had in the past and the history of the humanity, there was some kind of isolation so that higher frequential beings could not influence the world because the higher the frequency, the greater the possibilities to influence and a system, which is, I mean, the same thing in, in animal killing and humanity. If you have a very strong and um, potent system, then it's very easy to destabilize a sensitive growing life form such as a plant or something if you run over it it will not grow so they as they know that they are a result also of the res of the evolution of humanity they took care of that and kept their influences outside of it as much as they could they still gave answers and still you know communicate a lot through that compression of frequency, we know we have this um, rainbowy color when we have light. If you have the the rainbow, you can see all the different levels of light and the different colors. If you compress frequency, it, it will certainly turn into a blue color because that is the wavelengths they are communicating upon. So this is why the beings... Um, are in a, what they appeared to me as a very crisp blue light, which is really hard to paint. But if I needed to paint it, it looks like a very bright crystal. Because at that time, they do not have, from our perspective, a dimension. So they are not in some kind of space. Um, if you want to contact them, there are places on this earth, pretty much the ancient sites, where this kind of compression of frequency, of natural occurring frequencies and flows of energy has happened and there has been contact over the years. That is why all those sites which are built up on some 
frequential um, rivers, so to speak, and they have become religious spots. Were these beings of light understood in a different way, or did they say, this is how it works? From that perspective, um, it's not a religion. It's more a communication between different levels of the same being. So just as we are sitting here and having this communication, this is another dimension of communication between a um, probability or a life form or something that is actually source and it's communicating with the different aspect of this life. So because those beings are not focused on power structure and overpowering people, for them it's just communication, just insane, natural, harmonious and amicable way that we do right now. But of course, if you have all those information and you build some power structures upon those things, then you can misuse it, for example. And we've seen that a lot in human history, that information that had been given to humanity has been altered in some way or another. It has only been given to some power structures, some power elite. They used it for their own. Because the more information you have, the more understanding you have about reality, the more you can use that to alter your own reality. And as it is sometimes in dualistic realities, it's also, it also can be used to overpower some other aspects. You talk about blue beings as light. In the Vedas, there are also gods being depicted as blue beings. Is there a connection there? Yes. So the one thing we need to understand when talking to interfrequential beings that are not necessarily interdimensional beings is that we perceive the information they, they give upon us. But as it has no dimension, it also has no geometrical form yet, not from our perspective. They perceive them selves as some kind of space, some kind of dimension. But when we look upon it, it's like a, you know, one-sided window or something. Um, because we have this linearity of time, or at least it appears to be linear, then we cannot perceive them as geometrical context. We only perceive them as information. So when you talk to them, for example, you clearly hear an acoustic voice in the room but it has no location. Voice normally tends to be reflected by things. So you, the human ear can depict where or, or locate where it is because this is pure information. The voice is just all over. And I think you find that idea in a lot of religious scriptures as well, where you call them angels or something, and they have the God's voice that is, I don't know, appearing in this, and people cannot localize it because it has no dimension. It needs, if you, if you have dimension, this is necessary as measurement in order to find out where the information is coming from. If the information is coming up from outside of a dimension, 
for example, inside of an interfrequential beam or interfrequential harmonic level, which is the term, then you will hear it, but you cannot say where it comes from. And you find that information a lot in, in like in the Bible or something, where just the voice of God appeared. Tim, throughout the Bible, we have this appearance of angels. After a loved one dies, some people have experienced seeing light beings of some sort. What are these references? Okay, two things are important when communicating with higher frequential beings. The first thing is how they perceive themselves, which is determined by their own evolution. If there are beings that had some kind of evolutionary step from a geometrical form, then potentially this will get into the information because that is what they project outside. If you, you need to know that when talking with a higher frequential being that this planet right now um, can only display beings of level three and level four at one point and we're approaching this point. We only can display beings of level four, which are beings that are wondrous, but still have a biological material form to it. Beings that are higher than that, it's like putting a 4K movie onto an old black and white television screen from the 50s. You can in some way or another perceive some picture or information, but it probably has, has a lot of loss. And there will be no sound, there will be no colors or something like that. And maybe things need to be scaled so that you can perceive it. And just the same way with higher frequential beings. If you know, there are a lot of orbs, light things that has been seen all over the place. Those in like 99% of the cases are higher frequential beings that are perceived just as some form of light. And then two things kick in. First, the self-perspective or presentation of the being. If they come from some kind of form, that we can't translate inside of this biological machine, then we receive them, for example, as humans or something, sometimes in a blue form, which explains the Shiva, Vishnu, Krishna thing. Or if they don't, then our own cultural background kicks in. Because the human brain and the biological brains, they don't like empty information. It's like when there were experiments, if you experiments, if you put somebody in a dark room and, um, kind of an isolation chamber, at one point the brain will create information around the non-existence of information. And that's the same thing that's appearing there. So when people are, for example, seeing their own grandma dead, but as a ghost, or they see ghosts in the way cultural, pop cultural imagination puts them, or they see, I don't know, angels, then this comes from their own 
theoretical, cultural background or imagination. This is still something in the room that interacts with you, but it doesn't need to be what you see. It doesn't need to be a grand grammar. Some of the God beings of history, like Jesus, for example, is it possible they are extraterrestrial or highly developed humans? I was asking at least being six directly who Jesus was, and they were telling that this person had made experience in level five consciousness and went back. So it's one of those millions of beings that reincarnated on earth and brought with him some of the knowledge that higher frequencies and higher dimensions are used to. One thing that I find very interesting combining Jesus with the special situation that we have on earth is that he was one of those bringers of information while not being fully strategically prepared of what could occur on earth. You must be very well prepared in order to move around the situation that we have here. And higher frequential beings that only want to spread love and information and think, if I give that information to another part of me, it will accept that and see all the benefits that naturally come from that. What Jesus was saying is that we are one and that we are love and, you know, treat another one with love just as you treat yourself with love. And that's the whole message that everyone brought up on earth. But there's some resistance that's coming from the, you know, special education that the species has received in order to not accept those unifying thoughts. And I think there's a lot of effort right now in order to remove that situation, in order to bring more awareness into the human species so that they can also obtain that information because it's very important for the evolution of the universe. You know, to check that. Tim, what have you done with this information for yourself and others? I'm coming from an experience. So I met the Greys first. I had some minor interactions with other beings privy to that, but the depth of my experience with the greys was the first thing I experienced. And they at that time were suffering a lot from that trauma of cutting off their first master line, which means becoming a failed timeline and acknowledging that. There is something about forgetting in the universe, which is actually kind of a gift in order to not remember the previous mistakes. But the greys, as they are a very mental species and very intellectual, they stick to information. That's all they do. They collect information. They stick to it. They overthink it, calculate. And that means being in this drama, trauma, karmic process. So that was pretty heavy for me. And then I met being six and realized the that 
the feeling of being so alone and being so isolated and being nothing more than just a universe inside of emptiness that has nobody else than themselves is just an illusion. And there is, we are all one, but the beauty is all those diversity and all those possibilities of communication and connecting and inspiring itself. That is something that not only lifted me up, but also influenced the way the communication with the greys turned out. And we are talking about that later. I think that is the whole beauty of this, of, of the universe that wants to be social, wants to be with others and feel that. And it also has some practical meaning because, you know, the greys are not that much into socializing and stuff. They do not tend to feel that as much as humans, for example, do. But the, the opportunity to that is when the universe thinks that it's a closed system, then it only reproduces its own information, which is a lot, but will come to a dead end at some time. When you realize that there is something outside, then you can obtain information from somewhere and you can go that direction and a whole new universe appears in front of yourself. And that brings possible infinity to the universe. And that still needs to be proven, but it will take some time. Do you feel there's a connection between the groups like the Templars and the ETs too? So, very far back, like decade ago or something, I was doing a lot of research, um, commissioned research on the Templars. And that is when this program came into contact with another being that, that appeared so there are beings that live on the surface of light, like humans do, but light has also a dimension to go into it. It's like water. Inside of light, there are many, many, many other species that are living literally inside of the light. And this species that I'm talking about found it very important to let us know that they influenced the Templars. They appeared inside of the light. You can see them. They were wearing this, those white coats. They also had grayish skin and huge hats, but different to the grays and other species, they looked and they had this red cross upon their robe. And the Templars at that time seemed to have received contact from those beings. But I don't want to go into much more details because I want to give some institutions on this planet the chance and the opportunity to speak for themselves. Tim, some people believe that contact and UFO phenomena is the new religion that we're transitioning into. What are your thoughts on that? Mm. I think that religion will alter 
in some way or another. And I think that people on this earth who are in charge of some things have taken that in, into consideration. Um, I still think, and that is also the opinion of a lot of extraterrestrials that observed and did research on religion on this planet, that the light of hope and of awareness and good thoughts that are coming from religions, that this is something that humanity is benefiting a lot from. I think that the mystical experience of oneness will become more important in the future for everyone. And I've also learned that through religious belief, so we're talking about ascension a lot, which means bringing consciousness into another realm of awareness. And religion is something that has helped beneficial non-terrestrial beings that are serving, you know, as guides and guiding souls into another experience that has helped them a lot to create the images that are necessary in order to make it peaceful and gently. And for our last question, do you believe open contact will be a threat to religions as we know them? No, I don't think that. I think that the perception of religion will shift in some way. I also think that when we're talking about technologies and all the ways reality or lifestyle on earth has already changed since, I don't know, 1500s, um, then we can see that people are adapting to that. I think the perception of religion will adapt to the personal reality of all the people. The connection to the universe will be more deepened and, and new opportunities will occur. So all the things people are looking for in the outside will appear in the outside, not only in the inside when you meditate and have this connection, but you will also see a difference in the shift of reality wondrous things will happen, things will appear, reality will be more interesting and more fascinating than ever. I think that we can all agree upon that the peace and empathy that comes from being a religious person is something we can all benefit from. Tim, that was amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Emery. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Till next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. Traveling through time is something that is very exclusive. Time travel technology seems to be something it's not in the mainstream and it's only very limited access. At least the technology I am aware of comes from the grace. Making humanity a time-traveling species is something that is pretty new. Oh, my goodness. So, Rama. What? Um, 
So is there anything else you want to play that's not real long? Otherwise, I just will read from our sister Caroline. No. Because this is really long, this one. So, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone. Let's take a take a listen to what our sister Caroline has to share with us here. Mm-hmm. Um, here we go. This week's message is from the collective's live channeling on the March 22nd, 2022 Ashtar Legacy Call. Oh. An uplifting light community conference call held twice a month. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this time to speak with you again today. And surely any of you could sing this beautiful song by this wonderful singer, this wonderful artist, whose name is India Ari. We can find oh, yeah, this. I'll play that. You want to play it now? Mm-hmm. No, on the way out. Okay, you, you're going to play that at the end. Okay. Rama's going to play this toward at the end. So, um... Yes, there's a live version as well that our writer loves also that she, India, sang on a special Super Soul seasonal that Miss Winfrey did. Let's just have a look at the lyrics because you may not have been able to hear it well over the phone. This is important and not just because of difficult times with the electronics, which have gone mad lately. We had a few of them today ourselves, everybody, for a number of reasons. Okay, let's turn this page here. All right. Um, All of the vibrations are shifting on the planet very quickly. Do to solar flares and rising earth vibrations. And that's going to affect a lot happening in terms of electronics. She keeps repeating, I am light. And she keeps realizing the power of that term, that phrase, I am. So let's look at this. This dear one is pointing out, I am not the things my family did. I am not the voices in my head. I am not the pieces of the brokenness inside. I am light. She sings this a number of times, I am light. And then she comes back for another verse. I am not the mistakes that I have made or any of the things that caused me pain. I am not the pieces of the dream I left behind. I am light. I am not the color of my eyes. I am not the skin on the outside. I am not my age. I am not my race. My soul inside is all light. 
I am light. I am divinity defined. I am the God on the inside. I am a star, a piece of it all. <laughs> I am light. Okay, so song, the songwriter again is India Ari Simpson. I am light lyrics, guitar girl music publishing. So Ron's going to play that at the end. So we got that to look forward to. And something beautiful that our writer didn't notice until she was listening to the song again this morning is that there are backup singers or overdubbed, overdubbed sounds of Miss Ari singing Om at the start of the song. And one can sing Om or other mantras perfectly throughout the entire recording because the sustained notes interplay perfectly with singing Om in tune with this key that the song is sung in. And the song invites that. The song invites the sense of Om. It invites not only peacefulness, Rather, a realization of the expansiveness, the tremendous expansiveness of each person. Yes, you are divinity defined. Yes, you are not just a particle of light in the universe. You are the universe itself, as they say, expressing in human form. Also expressing we would say, in miraculous form and in miraculous intention. So, as you'd like, close your eyes for a moment. We're going to work with everyone who is open to receiving energies right now so that you can experience this beautiful expansiveness, this feeling of just how far your light flows out from you. How perfectly you are lighting up the earth, planting so much light, and therefore so much healing in her, in beloved Gaia. So, Much light into every circumstance. So much light into every circumstance. Every relationship. Every relationship. Every desire your heart holds. And relax a bit. See as you can unclench any part of the body that is tense. Might be inward. Or it might be the head, the neck, the shoulders. Might be your arms, the hips, the knees, maybe the stomach. <sighs> Take a little breath here. There might be something you are sort of clenching. Relax your eyes. Relax your face. Now, image. 
if you can. Or you can feel it. It's all right if you have trouble imaging things. We'll do this with you. It will still be happening. Image or feel your soul power pouring down through the crown chakra. That is pure liquid light pouring down into the body. And it is resonating perfectly with the light pouring onto the planet now. It is sort of, quote, making its peace with these solar flares, with the energy transmissions from all the galactic families assisting to enact Nasara and full disclosure. You are relating, in other words, far more to all the higher energies flowing in than to all the demonstrations of shadow on the planet right now. There's this gorgeous picture of this angelic being and she's floating in the air on a lotus flower, everyone. And she's got about three halos above her head. She's all white and she's very mystical. It's a beautiful picture. Okay, so and now, this beautiful light, this center light, like a cradle flame, fills the whole body. It is going to spread outward in all directions. It is going to spill over into every single area of our lives. Your entire home, any vehicles you own, the property, the earth going very deep below, the air going very far above and all around where you live, it's just going to spread this light. It's just going to keep expanding. Wonderful. Keep going with all that. It just keeps expanding. Pretty soon, it's going to develop your entire county or province or region. Your whole state, states or province or the whole country, your whole continent. It's just going to keep spreading. Um, yeah, I got to see that something happens here, Rama. Just pay attention. It's just going to keep spreading. Okay. Now, as this is happening, good for some of you. It's already reaching the oceans. It's reaching outer space. Wonderful. Going throughout Lady Gaia. And as you're doing this, wouldn't it be beautiful for you to intone, say it aloud as you can, this absolutely celebratory statement, I am divinity defined. I am divinity defined. And you are. 
You are divinity defined in human form, perfectly defined, even if you weren't in human form. Would you still be divine? Of course. And when you're ready, what about the next line? I am God goddess on the inside. Wonderful. Just keep going with that. Keep repeating that. I am the God. Or if you prefer, the goddess on the inside. In other words, the divinity that is always within you, yes, that's you. We're working with all of you. <laughs> We're working with all of you to help you release that smaller self. Is Miss Kitty getting in trouble, Ronald? Play. Oh, okay. Who is terrified with that kind of empowerment? Yeah, the smaller self is terrified with that kind of empowerment and that kind of wide open celebration of how beautiful and powerful you are. I am the god or the goddess on the inside. <sighs> and when you are ready, the next few lines. I am a star. A piece of it all. I am a star. A piece of it all. You are your own shining star. You are all that is. Do you feel your energy expanding now to where you are the entire universe? It is gone beyond your planet. It has gone beyond your galaxy. It has spread out to the entire universe. Your beautiful light. Wonderful. And of course, we come back to that original beautiful statement. I am light. So now you're just saying this over and over. I am light. And so, what does that mean? <laughs> that you are light. Well, it means that you are divine love. It means you have the capability to create whole star systems, whole planetary systems, whole universes. You have that within you. <laughs> to the next page here. Now, for a moment, dear ones. We will get a little bit practical. Think of the thing that challenges you the most. And we speak of this a great deal on the abundance calls. It might be an area such as your health, 
It might be family. It might be the one you love or your romantic partner. It might be finances. It might be just the feeling of, I don't know why I'm here. The world is a mess. I don't, I don't know that I am helping. Where's my mission? Where's my vocation? Where's my passion? Whatever it is, bring it forth right now. And hold out your arms and accept this, the energy of this situation, exactly as it is, very annoying and frustrating, probably, or very strange. There doesn't seem to be an answer. You don't know what to do with it. Hold open your arms. And when you are ready, you're going to draw that straight into the high heart. With hands on heart, you're going to say, on behalf of the situation in your life, I am light. I am God. Goddess. I am divinity defined. I am. Wonderful. Wonderful. Take another area of your life or something in the world that just cannot, you cannot quite believe. Hold out your arms. And accept it as it is. Stop calling it a problem. Stop calling it an issue. Stop calling it a challenge. Draw into the heart space. I am light. Say it on behalf of this thing that doesn't yet know it is also divinity defined. I am light. Wonderful. Can you thank this thing? However difficult it might be. It might be war. It might be the ignorance that leads people to mistrust or abuse one another. It might be some illness or some awful situation that you cannot quite believe that you have struggled with most of your life. It might be the one who has treated you worse than anyone in this life. And you know you've met them in other lives as well. Can you thank them? Because, dear ones, without this outrageous or just plain annoying behavior on the part of this person or this situation or this country or this leader or whatever it is, you might never have realized how beautiful and how powerful you are and how expansive your energies are. And why is that? Because if you can accept the thing that's hardest for you and come back to the fact that you are divinity, come back to the fact that you are a light warrior, Standing strong with the principles of divine love, with universal law, with the perfect expanse of creation. 
If you can do all that, dear ones, you have won the day. And this tiny life based in the third dimension has tried to sort of hypnotize or brainwash you into thinking you're small, into thinking you're weak, into thinking you're helpless when you're anything but. So why do you suppose the dark fights you so desperately? Why do you suppose they have gone to such ridiculous extent to try to discourage you, to break you if they could, except that they know how powerful you are? It's too late now. They tried and they failed. Let them know. You can come into the light. The light has won. I'm still standing strong. I'm still in the light. Nothing's changed. I was in the light before I was born. And I still am. In fact, I am the light. So bless you for trying. Thank you for putting me through my paces. The only thing that happened is now I am wiser than I was. Now I know more. I know myself in ways I wouldn't have otherwise. And you and I have finally met face to face. I didn't stay where it was safe and clean and warm and easygoing. I came down to earth where it's extremely demanding, horribly imbalanced, and very rough. And I still love you. So, what we would love, dear ones, is that if you could look at this or any situation that gives you trouble over the next week or so and remind it, I am divinity defined. I am divine. I am light. I am divine love. And I welcome you to join me in this beautiful circle. I welcome you to stop the imbalance that has put you in place. And I bless and accept whatever aspect of me allowed you to come in, in my life. And I accept whatever it is that I was meant to learn. I accept that as well. This has been a very rough boot camp. But here we are. And there's not a a particle of this universe that doesn't bow to you now, dear ones. Out of complete love and respect. And so, we thank you for all you are, all you have done, all you will do yet in building the new earth. And we ask that you take these times to learn to just relax, to listen to beautiful music such as this that will build you up. And remember, you're already there. 
that beautiful light-filled new earth existence. Use that, that lovely affirmation our writer learned a while ago that she loves. Just keep saying, I have already created it. And so, we send you much love and many blessings, dear ones. Namaste. That was quite a journey, everyone. And so, let me just say a few things here. This is uh, a little bit about our April from Robin LaPlante. What? What? Oh. The beginning of April completes the first quarter of 2022. The year of self-love. This, I think that's what, what Caroline was doing, helping us to love self there. The year of self-love, self-care, and self-awareness. Even as there are times, it feels as though you have lost your way. You are truly moving forward. We are all trying to navigate through this ever-changing world and being tested to level up, to embrace the raw energy that is created within old beliefs when old beliefs are shattered. And we realize we have been in denial, that place that's not in Egypt, right? A river, it's not a river in Egypt, yes. When we fail, more, when we fail more in love with ourselves, we open to a flow of energy that allows us to manifest and shift all aspects of our lives. As we feel emotionally triggered, trust that this is confirmation from the universe that this is a pivotal moment, pivotal moment of choice. So much to share with you this month. And again, I have gratitude for the astrological insight Natasha brings, adding more specifics as to do the dance of the celestial bodies. Using this, knowledge can facilitate positive change and movement forward. Nature is a tapestry woven together of light, texture, smell, design, color, and wonder. It can be our greatest teacher to reset and rejuvenate us. Take this beautiful energy that came in with the turning of the wheel at the time of that, of the equinox and shape it in whatever way you are inspired as you co-create with this universe. The astrological influences of April 2022 are going to intensify after having several weeks with nothing retrograde. The first eclipse of the year, a once-in-a-lifetime planetary aspect, and a powerful Pluto retrograde will put an end to our recent non-retrograding planetary influences. There is a lot to share 
for April. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, find a place where you will not be distracted, and take a moment of pause to sit with the information. I'm just going to stop right there because that information will be coming forth, coming in. We'll say some more about it as it does so. All right, so I'm going to pass this talking stick now. With all the love that I can hold, and with angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, emerald serpent feathered one is with us here, Lord Katumi Sanaka Kumara, and all the hobbits and manahunis you can find. And here it comes. I pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird. Here we are. And here we are. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. Oh my goodness. What a day. What a day. Pretty amazing. And what's going on and we we made it through with all the bumps and hurdles. Lots of gratitude for everything. So lots of gratitude to you and Mama. Uh, uh, Tara and Rama and everybody else. Uh, I thank you again. I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. Yes, and Caroline and everybody else and Rainbird and and Micah and all of the folks, Cheryl, that walked through that first afternoon bit. Uh, we always have a way to move together through this. It's coming strong. Yes, Rob, what you got there for us? This is Alan Watts talking about DMT, which our brain produces every single night when we go into the dream time. Holy cow. Okay. And, uh, for example, uh, there's a drug called dimethyltryptamine, DMT for short. And this is a 40-minute run where your consciousness is really screwed up. <laughs> and I was told about this, and I inquired of the doctors whether it was, you know, dangerous or harmful or would leave you with the heebie-jeebies. And they said, no, it, it doesn't do anything like that. It's just in the just a, about 40 minutes of sheer insanity. <laughs> and uh, they said it renders people speechless. But I said it won't render me speechless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he said, no, 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 you, 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 you come off it. So, all right, I said, I'll bet you anything you like. Give me a tape recorder and give me this chemical and I will tell you just exactly how it feels in a coherent way. Well, wow, they gave me the first shot, which was um, about 1.3 cc, and although there was a kind of vaguely interesting change, nothing much happened. So then they gave me 1.9 cc, I think. And then it came on. It was as if, uh, say, your elbow as a point in my field of vision 
suddenly came at me, but in a spiral pattern, against the background that was spiraling the other direction. See, so you've got this little thing going on. And then it suddenly caught hold of my body, sucked it into the system, and twisted my body into the same spiral motion. And that everything started seeming to go like this. And it was all converted into brilliantly illuminated plastic. So it became a cross between a toy shop and Times Square. Vaguely menacing. And, uh, uh, you know, you hardly knew which way up you were. And so it was difficult, but patiently, I talked into the tape recorder every single thing that was going on, what it was like. Now, a lot of people would say, well, you shouldn't do that, that it destroys the experience when you talk about it. It doesn't. That's the funny thing about all these things, that they're much more interesting when you do some work with them. The work seems to throw something into the experience, and then it gives you another task back. And that all adds to the interest of the thing. And I found out that in working with these things, there was no further conflict between the intellect and the intuition. That the more you intellectualize, the more the intuitive uh, insights sprung up to correspond to the intellectual. And so, uh, instead of, therefore, having a session in which you just curl up and go into your own little private womb and let it take over, uh, and you come back and all you can say is, man, it was a gas. So what? What's the point of going on a heroic journey and not bringing something back? The whole point, in every myth, heroes who take strange journeys must bring back a feather uh, of the fabulous bird, a claw of the dragon, uh, or the beheaded uh, head of the villain that they slew, saying, see, here it is. So, I always feel it's necessary in any of these adventures to bring something back. And so you get the great, intense fun, really the most stimulating thing, of say, uh, saying, we're going to devote this session to the study of a particular problem. You're going to play that song now, huh, Ron? Yeah. Here's a song that we were being told to listen to, so... What's it called, honey? I am light. I am light. Here we go. Oh. We'll have to play that more often, huh, Rama? Yeah. That's by India Ari. And we are all light. Thank you so much for this day. Serendipity in every possible way today. Satnam, everyone. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper, and see you on that bridge and in your dreams. Over the rainbow we go. Fairies and all the feathers and rainbows. Namaste, everyone. Aloha.